Chapter 33 Gods and Men The priest ushers us through the temple's mouth, where we wait, kneeling on the black stone antechamber inside the mountain. The stone mouth grinds closed behind us. Flames dance in the center of the room, leaping up in a pillar of fire to the onyx ceiling. Acolytes wander through the cavernous temple, chanting softly, draped with black sackcloth hoods. Children of the eyes, a divine voice finally whispers from the darkness. A synthesizer, like the ones in our demon helms, layers the voice so it seems a dozen sewn together. The invisible gold woman doesn't even bother to use an accent. Fluent as I in their language, but disdainful of the fact and of the people to which she speaks. You come with news? I do, Sunborn. Tell us of the ship you saw, another voice says, this one a man. Less lofty, more playful. You may look upon my face, little child. Remaining on our knees, we glance up furtively from the ground to see two armored golds deactivating their ghost cloaks, they stand close to us in the dark room. The temple flames dance over their metallic god faces. The man wears a cloak. The woman likely didn't have time to don hers, so eager were they to attend us. The woman plays Freya while the man is dressed as Loki, his metal visage like that of a wolf. Animals can smell fear. Men can't. But those who kill enough can feel the vibrations in that particular silence. I feel them now from Sefi. The gods are true, she's thinking. Ragnar was wrong. We were wrong. But she says nothing. It bled fire across the sky. I murmur, head down, making great roars, and crashed upon the mountainside. You don't say, Loki murmurs. And is it in one piece, or lots of little itty-bitty pieces, child? It is risky saying we saw a ship fall, but I knew no other ruse that would draw the gulls away from their hollow screens in the middle of a rebellion, past the security systems and grey garrison to meet me here. They are peerless scarred, trapped here on the frontier as their world shifts beyond these walls. Once this post would have been considered glamorous, but now it's a form of banishment. I wonder about what crimes or failings brought these peerless scarred here to babysit the wastes. The bones of the ship litter the mountain, Sunborn, I explain, looking back at the ground so they do not insist I take away the riding mask that covers my face. The more groveling I do, the less curious I am. Broken like a fishing boat, laid upon mid-stern by a breaker. Splinters of iron, splinters of men upon the snow. I think that's a metaphor the obsidians would use. It passes muster. Splinters of men? Loki asks. Yes, men, but with soft faces, like seal skin in firelight. Too many metaphors but eyes like hot coals. I can't stop. How else did Ragnar speak? Hair like the gold of your face. The gold's metal masks remain impassive, 
communicating to one another over the comms in their helmets. Our priest claims you have a weapon of the gods, Freya says leadingly. Sefi produces the seal cloth once more, body tense, wondering when I will dispel the magic of the gods as I promised. Her hands tremble. Both golds move closer, the slight ripple of pulse shields evident. I touch them and I fry. They have no fear, not here on their mountain. Closer. Closer, you dumb bastards. Why did you not take this to the leader of your tribe? Loki asks. Or to your shaman, Freya adds suspiciously. The way of stains is long and hard. To climb all this way just to bring this to us. We are wanderers, Mustang says as Freya bends to look at the blade. No tribe, no shaman. Are you, little one? Loki asks above Sefi, voice hardening. Then why are there blue tattoos of the Valkyrie on the ankles of that one? His hand drifts to the razor on his hip. She was cast out from her tribe, I say, for breaking an oath. Is it marked with a house sigil? Loki asks Freya. She reaches for the weapon's hilt in front of me, when Mustang laughs bitterly, drawing her attention. On the handle, my good lady, Mustang says in Oriot lingo, remaining on her knees as she strips off her mask and tosses it onto the ground. You will find a pegasus in flight, Sigil of the House Andromedus. Augustus? Loki sputters, knowing Mustang's face. I use their surprise and slip forward. By the time they turn back to me, I've snatched the razor out from under Freya's hand and activated the toggle so it is the curved question mark shape that has burned on hillsides, been cut into foreheads, and killed so many of their kind. The same they would have seen on the hollow displays as I made my speech. Reaper! Freya manages, pulling up her pulse fist. I hack her arm off at the shoulder, then her head at the jaw before hurling my razor straight into Loki's chest. The blade slows as it hits his pulse shield, frozen in midair for half a second as the shield resists. Finally, the blade slips through, but it's slowed and the armor beneath holds, it embeds itself in the pulse armor plate, harmless, until Mustang steps forward and swivel kicks the hilt of the razor. The blade punches through the armor and impales Loki. Both guards fall. Freya to her back, Loki to his knees. Mask off! Mustang barks as Loki's hands wrap around the blade sticking from his chest. She slaps his hand away from his data pad. No comms! Holiday strips the razor from the man's hip as his pulse shield shorts. I take Freya's razor from her corpse. Do it! Sefi and her Valkyrie stare wide-eyed from their knees at the blood pooling beneath Freya. I remove Freya's helmet from her head to reveal the mangled face of a middle-aged, peerless scarred woman with dark skin and almond-shaped eyes. Does this look like a god to you, Sefi? I ask. Mustang snorts a dark little laugh when Loki removes his mask. Darrow, look who it is. Proctor Mercury.
the pudgy, cherub-faced, peerless scarred, who endeavoured to recruit me into his own house at the Institute before Fitchner stole me away. When last we saw each other five years ago, he tried to duel me in the halls as my howler stormed Olympus. I shot him in the chest with a pulse fist. He smiled all the while. He's not smiling now as he stares at the metal in his chest. I feel a pang of pity. Proctor Mercury, I say. You have to be the least lucky gold I've ever met. Two mountains lost to a red. Reaper! You have to be shitting me. He shudders in pain and laughs at his own surprise. But you're on Phobos. Negative, my goodman. That'd be my diminutive psychotic accomplice. Gory, damn it. Gory, damn it. He looks at the blade in his chest, grunting as he sits on his haunches and wheezes out breaths. How did we not see you? Quicksilver hacked your system, I say. You're here for... His voice trails away as he looks at the Valkyrie rising to gather around the dead god. Sefi bends over Freya. The pale warrior traces her fingers over the woman's face as Holiday strips off her armor. For them, I say. Bloody damn right I am. Oh, gory hell. Augustus, our old proctor says, turning to Mustang with a bitter laugh. You can't do this. It's madness. They're monsters. You can't let them out. Do you know what will happen? Don't open Pandora's box. If they are monsters, we should ask ourselves who made them that way. Mustang says in the obsidian tongue, so Sefi can understand. Now, what are the codes to Asgard's armory? He spits. You'll have to ask nicer than that, traitor. Mustang is deadly cold. Treason is a matter of the date, Proctor. Must I ask again, or must I begin trimming your ears? Beside Freya's body, Sefi dips her finger into the blood and tastes it. Just blood, I say, crouching beside her. Not ichor, not divine, human. I hold out Freya's razor for her to take. She flinches at the idea, but forces herself to wrap her fingers around the hilt, hands trembling, expecting to be struck by lightning or electrocuted like men are who touch pulse shields with bare hands. This button here retracts the whip. This one controls the shape. She cradles the weapon reverently and looks up at me, furious eyes asking which shape she should conjure. I nod to mine, trying to build kinship with her. And I do, if only in this martial way. Slowly, her razor takes the shape of the sling blade, 
the skin on my arm prickles as the Valkyrie laugh to one another. Vibrating with excitement, they pull their own axes and long knives and look at me and Mustang. There's five gods left, Mustang says. How'd you ladies like to meet them? Chapter 34 God Killers We drag the bodies of seven gods, two dead and five captured, behind us. I wear the armor of Odin, Sefi the armor of Tyr, Mustang the armor of Freya, all of which we pillaged from the armory on Asgard. Blood smears the stone of the hall. Feet slide and stumble as Sefi jerks one of the living girls behind us by his hair. Her Valkyrie dragged the rest. We returned to the spires on a shuttle stolen from Asgard, which we slipped through silently, using Loki's codes to access the armory and drape ourselves in the panoply of war before seeking the remaining gods out. Two we found in Asgard's mainframe, leading a team of greens attempting to purge Quicksilver's hackers from their system. Sefi, with her new razor, claimed the arm of one and beat the other unconscious, terrifying the greens, two of which held up fists to me as silent acknowledgement of their sympathy for the rising. With their help, we locked the others in a storage room as the two green sympathizers connected me directly with Quicksilver's operation room. We didn't reach Quicksilver himself, but Victor relayed news that Severo's gamble worked. A little more than a third of the Martian defense fleet is under control of the Sons of Ares and Quicksilver's blues. Thousands of the society's best troops are trapped on Phobos, but the Jackal is hitting back hard, taking personal command of the remaining ships and recalling forces from the Kuiper Belt to reinforce his depleted fleet. The rest of the golds we located through the station's biometric sensor map in the lower levels. One practicing with her razor in the training rooms. She saw my face and dropped her blade in surrender. Reputation is a fine thing sometimes. The remaining two golds we found in the monitoring bays, shifting back and forth between the cameras. They'd only just discovered that the footage was archival from three years before. Now... All our gold captives wear magnetic handcuffs and are tied together by long pieces of rope from Sefi's griffin, all gagged, all glancing around at the spires like we've dragged them into the mouth of hell itself. Obsidians of the spires flock to us in the halls, rushing from the deeper levels to see the strange sight. Most would only have seen their gods from a distance as flashes of gold streaking over the spring snow at Mach 3. Now we come among them, our pulse shields distorting the air, our shuttle's pulse cannons melting open the huge iron doors which closed off the griffin hangar from the cold. The doors melt inward like the door on the packs melted when Ragnar offered me stains. This is not how I intended to bring the obsidians into my fold. I wanted to use words, to come humbly, in sealskin, not armor, putting myself at the mercy of the obsidians to show Alia that I valued her people's worth, valued their judgment, and was willing to put myself in peril for them. I wanted to do as I preached, 
but even Ragnar knew that was a fool's errand. And now I don't have time for intransigence or superstition. If Alia will not follow me to war, I'll drag her to it, kicking, screaming, like Lorne before her. For Obsidian to hear, I must speak in the only language they understand. Might. Sefi fires her pulse fist past my head at the doors leading to our mother's sanctuary. The ancient iron buckles, bent and twisted hinges screaming. We flow past an army of prostrate giants who clutter the cavernous halls to either side. So much strength made frail by superstition. Once, when they were stronger, they tried to cross the seas, built mighty canars to carry explorers across the oceans to seek out new lands. The carved monsters the gold sowed in the oceans destroyed each boat, or the golds themselves melted them from the sea. The last boat sailed more than two hundred years ago. We come upon Alia as she sits in council with her famed seven and seventy war chiefs. They turn to us now amidst large smoking braziers. Huge warriors with white hair to the waists, arms bare, iron buckles on waists, huge axes on backs. Black eyes and rings studded with precious metals glitter in the low light. But they're too stunned by the sight of the three-hundred-year-old iron doors suddenly glowing orange and melting away to speak or kneel. I draw up before them, still dragging the corpses of the golds behind me. Mustang and Sefi hurl their captured golds forward, kicking out their legs. They sprawl on the ground and stumble to their feet, attempting beyond all reason to maintain some dignity here, surrounded by giant savages in the smoky room. Are these gods? I roar through my helmet. No one answers. Alia moves slowly through the parting warlords. Am I a god? I snarl, this time removing my helmet. Mustang and Sefi remove theirs. Alia sees her daughter in the armor of her gods, and she flinches back. Fear whispers over her lips. She stops near the five bound and gagged golds as they finally find their feet. They stand over two meters tall, but even bent and old as Alia is, she's a head taller than I. She stares down at the men and women who are once her gods, before looking up at her last daughter. Child, what have you done? Sefi says nothing, but the razor on her arm slithers, drawing the eyes of every obsidian. One of their greatest daughters carries the weapon of the gods. Queen of the Valkyrie, I say, as if we had never met. My name is Darrow of Lycos, blood brother of Ragnar Valaris. I am the warlord of the Rising which rages against the false golden gods. You have all seen the fires that rage around the moon. Those are caused by my army. Beyond this land, in the abyss, a war rages between slaves and masters. 
I came here with the greatest son of the spires to bring the truth to your people. I wave to the golds, who stare at me with the hatred of an entire race. They struck him down before he could tell you that you are slaves. The prophets he sent told it true. Your gods are false. Liar! Someone screams. A shaman with crooked knees and a bent spine. He babbles something else, but Sefi cuts him off. Liar! Mustang hisses. I have stood upon Asgard. I have seen where your immortals sleep. Where your immortals rut and eat and shit. She twists the pulse fist in her hand. This is not magic. She activates her grav boots, floating in the air. The obsidians stare at her in wonder. This is not magic. This is a tool. Alia sees what I have done, what I have shown her daughter, and what I have now brought her people, whether she wants it or not. We're the same cruel kind. I told myself I would be better than this. I failed that promise. But noble vanity can shine another day. This is war, and victory is the only nobility. I think that is what Mustang was looking for here with obsidians. She was more afraid that I would allow my own idealism let something loose that I could not control. But now she sees the compromise I'm willing to make, the strength I'm willing to exert. That's what she wants in an ally as much as she wants a builder, someone wise enough to adapt. And Alia? She sees how her people look at me, how they look at my blade, still stained with the blood of the gods, as though it were some holy relic. And she also knows I could have made her complicit in the gold's crime, could have accused her before her people, but instead... I offer her a chance to pretend she is just learning this for the first time. Lamentably, my friend's mother does not take the offer. She steps toward Sefi. I carried you, birthed you, nursed you. And this is my reward? Treason? Blasphemy? You are no Valkyrie. She looks at her people. These are lies. Free our gods from the usurpers. Kill blasphemers. Kill them all. But before the first war chief can even draw their blade, Sefi steps forward, lifts the razor I gave her, and decapitates her mother. Alia's head falls to the floor, eyes still open. The woman's huge body remains standing. Slowly, it tips backward and thuds to the ground. Sefi stands over the fallen queen and spits on the corpse. Turning back to her people, she speaks for the first time in twenty-five years. She... New. Her voice is deep and dangerous, hardly rising above the level of a whisper, yet 
it owns the room as surely as if she roared. Then tall Sefi turns away from the golds, walks back through the gaggle of war chiefs to the griffin throne, where her mother's fabled war chest has sat unopened for ten years. There she bends and takes the lock in her hands and roars gutturally like a beast as she pulls at the rusted iron till her fingers bleed and the iron crumbles apart. She throws the old lock to the ground and rips open the chest, pulling free the old black scarab skin her mother used to conquer the white coast, pulling free the red scale cloak of the dragon her mother slew in her youth, and hoisting high her great black double-headed axe of war called Throgmir. The rippling gleam of durosteel catches in the light. She stalks back to the golds, dragging the axe on the ground behind her. She motions to Holiday, who removes the gags from the mouths of the golds. Are you a god? Sefi asks, her tone so different from her brother's, direct and cold as a winter storm. You will burn, mortal, the man says. If you do not release us, a seer will come from the sky and rain fire upon your land. This you know. We will wipe your seed from the worlds. We will melt the ice. We are the mighty. We are the peerless guard. And this millennium belongs to... Sefi slays him there with one giant swing, cleaving him nearly in twain. Blood sprays my face. I do not flinch. I knew what would happen if I brought them here. I also know there's no way I could keep them as prisoners. The golds built this myth, but now it must die. Mustang moves closer to me, her sign that she accepts this, but her eyes are fixed on the golds. She will remember this slaughter for the rest of her life. It is her duty and mine to make it mean something. Part of me mourns the death of these golds. Even as they die, they make these other, taller mortals still seem so much lesser. They stand straight, proud. They do not quake in their last moment, in this smoky room so far from their estates, where they rode horses as children, and learned the poetry of Keats, and the wonder of Beethoven, and Volmer. A middle-aged gold woman looks back at Mustang. You let them do this to us. I fought for your father. I met you when you were a girl. And I fell in his reign. She glares at me and begins to recite with a loud, clear voice the Aeschylus poem the peerless guard use at times as a battle cry. Up and lead the dance of fate. Lift the song that mortals hate. Tell what rights are ours on earth over all of human birth. Swift of foot to avenge are we. He whose hands are clean and pure. Naught our wrath to dread hath he. One by one they fall to Sefi's axe, until only the woman is left, her head held high, her words ringing clear. She looks me in the eye 
as sure of her right as I am of mine. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. Sephi's axe sweeps through the air, and the last god of Asgard flops to the stone floor. Over her body towers the blood-spattered princess of the Valkyrie, terrible and ancient with her justice. She bends and removes the tongue of the female gold with a crooked knife. Mustang shifts beside me in discomfort. Sefi smiles, noticing Mustang's unease, and walks away from us to her dead mother. She takes the woman's crown and ascends the steps to the throne, bloody axe in one hand, glass crown in the other, and sits inside the ribcage of the griffin, where she crowns herself. Children of the Spires, the Reaper has called us to join him in his war against false gods. Do the Valkyrie answer? In reply, her Valkyrie raised their blue feathered axes high above their heads to drone out the obsidian chant of death. Even the war chiefs of fallen Alia join. It seems the ocean itself crashes through the stone hallways of the spires, and I feel the drums of war beating inside, chilling my blood. Then ride, Hjelda, Tharul, Veni, and Hroga. Ride, Faldir, and Urona, and Bolga, to the tribes of the Blood Coast, to the Bleaking Moor, the Shattered Spine, and the Witch Pass. Ride to kin and enemy alike, and tell them Sefi speaks. Tell them Ragnar's prophets told true. Asgard has fallen. The gods are dead. The old oaths have been broken. And tell all who will hear. The Valkyrie rides to war. As the world swirls around us, and the ecstasy of war fills the air, Mustang and I, look at one another with darkened eyes and wonder just what we have unleashed. Part 3 Glory All that we have is that shout into the wind, how we live, how we go, and how we stand before we fall. Carnus Albalona Chapter 35 The Light For seven days after the death of Ragnar, I travel across the ice with Sefi, speaking to the male tribes of the Broken Spine, to the blooded braves of the north coast, to women who wear the horns of rams and stand watch over the witch pass. Flying in grav boots beside the Valkyrie, we come bringing the news of the fall of Asgard. It is... Dramatic. Sefi and a score of her Valkyrie have begun training with Holiday and me to learn to use the grav boots and pulse weapons. They're clumsy at first. One flew into the side of a mountain at Mach 2. But when thirty land with their headdresses kicking in the wind, the left of their faces painted with the blue handprint of Sefi the Quiet, and the right with the sling blade of the Reaper, folks tend to listen.
We take the lion's share of obsidian leaders to the conquered mountain and let them walk the halls where their gods ate and slept and show them the cold, preserved corpses of the slain golds. In seeing their gods slain, most, even those who knew tacitly of their true condition as slaves, accepted our olive branch. Those who did not, who denounced us, were overcome by their own people. Two war chiefs hurled themselves from the mountain in shame. Another opened her veins with a dagger and bleeds out on the floor of the greenhouses. And one, a particularly psychotic little woman, watched with great malevolence as we took her to the mountain's data hub, where three greens informed her of a planned coup against her rule, showing her video of the conspiracy. We loaned her a razor, a flight back home, and two days later she added twenty thousand warriors to my cause. Sometimes I encounter Ragnar's legend. It has spread among the tribes. They call him the Speaker, the one who came with truth, who brought the prophets and sacrificed his life for his people. But with my friend's legend grows my own. My sling blade symbol burns across the mountainsides to greet me and the Valkyrie when we fly to meet with new tribes. They call me the Morning Star, that star by which griffin riders and travelers navigate the wastes in the dark months of winter, the last star that disappears when daylight returns in the spring. It is my legend that begins to bind them, not their sense of kinship with one another. These clans have warred for generations, but I have no sordid history here. Unlike Sefi or the other great obsidian warlords, I am their untouched field of snow, their blank slate on which they can project whatever disparate dreams they have. As Mustang says, I am something new and in this old world, steeped in legends, ancestors, and what came before, something new is something very special. Yet despite our progress with gathering the clans, the difficulty we face is massive. Not only must we keep the fractious obsidians from killing one another in honor duels, but many of the clans have accepted my invitation for relocation, Hundreds of thousands of them must be brought from their homes in the Antarctic to the tunnels of the Reds, so they are beyond the reach of gold bombardment, which will come when the golds discover what has transpired here. All this while keeping the jackal dumb and blind to our maneuvers. From Asgard, Mustang has led the counterintelligence efforts, with the help of Quicksilver's hackers— to mask our presence and project reports consistent with those filed in previous weeks to the Board of Quality Control HQ in Aegea. With no way to move them without someone noticing, Mustang, a gold aristocrat, has conceived the most audacious plan in the history of the Sons of Ares. One massive troop movement, utilizing thousands of shuttles and freighters from Quicksilver's mercantile fleet and the Sons of Ares Navy, to move the population of the Pole in twelve hours. A thousand ships skimming over the southern sea, burning helium, to set down on the ice before obsidian cities, 
and lower their ramps to the hundreds and thousands of giants swaddled in fur and iron, who will fill their hulls with the old, the sick, the warriors, the children, and the fetid stink of animals. Then, under the cover of the sons of Ares' ships, the population will be dispersed underground, and many of the warriors to our military ships in orbit. I do not think I know another person in the world who can organize it as fast as she does. On the eighth day after the fall of Asgard, I depart with Sefi, Mustang, Holiday, and Cassius to join Severo in overseeing the final preparations for the migration. The Valkyrie bring Ragnar with us on the flight, wrapping his frozen body in rough cloth and clutching him close in terror as our ship cruises just beneath the speed of sound five meters from the surface of the ocean. They watch in awe as we enter the tunnels of Mars through one of the many sun's subterranean access points. This one, an old mining colony in a southern mountain range. Sun's lookouts in heavy winter jackets and balaclavas salute with their fists in the air as we pass into the tunnel. Half a day of subterranean flying later, we arrive at Tinos. It is a hub of ship activity, hundreds cluttering the stalactite docks, taxiing through the air, and it seems the whole city watches our shuttle as it passes through the traffic to land in its stalactite hangar, knowing it bears not just me and our new obsidian allies, but the broken shield of Tinos. Their weeping faces blur past. Already rumors swirl through the refugees. The obsidians are coming, not just to fight, but to live in Tinos, to eat their food, to share their already crowded streets. Dancer says the place is a powder keg about to erupt. I can't say I disagree. The disposition of the sons of Ares is dour. They gather in silence as my ship's landing ramp unfurls. I go first down the ramp, Severo waits beside Dancer and Mickey. He slams me into a hug. The beginnings of a goatee mark his stoic face. He holds his shoulders as square as he can, as if those bony things alone could hold up the hopes of the thousands of sons of Ares who filled the docking bay to see the shield of Tinos brought back to his adopted home. Where is he? Severo asks thickly. I look back into my shuttle as Sefi and her Valkyrie carry Ragnar down the ramp. The Howlers are the first to greet them, Clown saying a respectful word to Sefi as Severo steps past me to stand before the Valkyrie. Welcome to Tinos, he says to the Valkyrie in Nagal. I am Severo Albarka, blood brother to Ragnar Volaris. These are his other brothers and sisters. Emotions to the Howlers, all of whom wear their wolf cloaks. Severo produces Ragnar's bear cloak. He wore this to battle. With your permission, I'd like him to wear it now. You were brother to Ragnar. You are brother to me, Sefi says. She clicks her tongue, and her Valkyrie passed stewardship of her brother's body to Severo. Mustang glances my way. Sefi's generosity strikes me as a promising sign. If she were a covetous creature, 
she would have kept his body in her lands and given him an obsidian funeral pyre before burying his ashes in the ice. Instead, she told me she knows where his true home lies, with those who fought beside him, who helped him come back to his people. Mustang moves closer beside me as the howlers drape Ragnar's cloak over his body and carry him through the crowd. The suns part for them, hands reach to touch Ragnar. Look, Mustang says, nodding to the thin black ribbons that the sons have tied into their beards and hair. Her hand finds my smallest finger. A small squeeze sends me back to the woods where she saved me, making me feel warm, even as we watch Severo leave the hangar with Ragnar's body. Go. She nudges me his direction. Dancer and I have a conference scheduled with Quicksilver and Victra. She needs a guard, I tell Dancer. Sons you trust. I'll be fine, Mustang says, rolling her eyes. I survived the obsidians. She'll have the pit vipers, Dancer says, examining Mustang without the kindness I'm used to seeing in his eyes. Ragnar's death has taken the spirit out of him today. He seems older as he waves Nair all over and nods to the shuttle. The Bologna on board? Holiday's got him in the passenger cabin. His neck's still torn up, so he'll need Virini to take a look at him. Be discreet about it. Give him a private room. Private? Place is crammed, Darrow. Captains don't even get private rooms. He's got intel. You want him shot before he can give it to us? I ask. Is that why you kept him alive? Dancer looks at Mustang skeptically, as if she's already compromising my decisions. Little does he know she'd have let Cassius die more readily than I ever would. Dancer sighs when I don't relent. He'll be safe. On my word. Find me later, Mustang says, as I depart. I find Severo slumped over Ragnar in Mickey's laboratory. It's a thing to hear of a friend's death. It's another to see the shadow of what they've left behind. I hated the sight of my father's old work gloves after he died. Mother was too practical to throw them away, said we couldn't afford to. So I did it myself one day, and she boxed my ears and made me bring them back. The scent of death is growing stronger from Ragnar. The cold preserved him in his native land. But Tinos has been suffering power outages and refrigeration units play second zither to the water purifiers and air reclamation systems in the city beneath. Soon Mickey will embalm him and make preparations for the burial Ragnar asked for. I sit in silence for half an hour, waiting for Severo to speak. I don't want to be here. Don't want to see Ragnar dead. Don't want to linger in the sadness. Yet I stay for several. My armpits stink. I'm tired. The scanty tray of food Dio brought me is untouched except the biscuit I chew numbly and think how ridiculous Ragnar looks on the table. He's too big for it, feet hanging off the edge. 
Despite the smell, Ragnar is peaceful in death. Ribbons red as winter berries nestled in the white of his beard. Two razors rest in his hands, which are folded across his bare chest. The tattoos are darker in death, covering his arms, his chest and neck. The matching skull he gave me and Severo seems so sad, telling its story, even though the man who wears it is dead. Everything is more vivid except the wound. It's innocuous and thin as a snake's smile along his side. The holes Aja made in his stomach seem so small. How could such little things take so large a soul from this world? I wish he were here. The people need him more than ever. Severo's eyes are glassy, and his fingers glide over the tattoos on Ragnar's white face. He wanted to go to Venus, you know, he murmurs, voice soft as a child's, softer than I've ever heard it before. I showed him one of the hollow vids of a catamaran there. Second he put the goggles on, I'd never seen anyone smile like that. Like he'd found heaven and realized he didn't have to die to go there. He'd sneak in and borrow my hollow gear in the middle of the night till one day I just gave him the damn thing. Things are four hundred credits, Max. Nobody did to repay me. I don't. Severo holds up his right hand to show me his skull tattoo. He made me his brother. He gives Ragnar a slow, affectionate punch to the jaw. But the big, fat idiot had to run at Aja instead of away from her. The Valkyries still scour the wastes in vain for signs of the Olympic night. Her trail goes deeper into the crevasse before it is covered by the frozen black blood of some creature. I hope something found her and took her to its cave in the ice to finish her slowly. But I doubt it. A woman like that doesn't just fade. Whatever Azure's fate, if she's alive, she'll find a way to contact the Sovereign or the Jackal. It was my fault, I say. My shit plan to take Aja out. She killed Quinn. Helped kill my father, Severa mutters. Killed dozens of us when you were locked up. Wasn't your bad. You'd have lost me too, if I were there. Even Rags couldn't have kept me from having a go at her. Severa rolls his knuckles along the edge of the table, leaving little white creases in the skin. Always trying to protect us. The shield of Tinos, I say. The shield of Tinos. He echoes, voice catching. He loved the name. I know. I think he'd always thought himself a blade before he met us. We let him be what he wanted. A protector. He wipes his eyes and backs away from Ragnar. Anyway, the little princeling is alive. I nod. We brought him on the shuttle. Pity. Two millimeters. He pinches his fingers together, 
illustrating how narrowly Mustang's arrow missed Cassius's jugular. After Sefi dispatched riders to the tribes, I took her and many of her warriors to Asgard aboard the shuttle to see the fortress there. I brought Cassius along as well, and Asgard's yellows saved his life. Why are you keeping him alive, Darrow? If you think he's going to thank you for your generosity, you've got another thing coming. I couldn't just let him die. He killed my father. I know. Give me a reason. Maybe I think the world would be a better place with him in it. I say tentatively. So many people have used him, lied to him, betrayed him. All that's defined him. It's not fair. I want him to have a chance to decide for himself what kind of person he wants to be. None of us get to be what we want to be. Several mutters. At least not for long. Isn't that why we fight? Isn't that what you just said about Ragnar? He was made a blade, but we gave him a chance to be a shield. Cassius deserves that same chance. Shithead. He rolls his eyes. Just because you're right doesn't mean you're right. Anyway, eagles are hated as much as the lions. Someone here is still going to try to pop him. And your girl, too. She's got the pit vipers with her. And she's not my girl. Whatever you say. He collapses into one of Mickey's stolen leather chairs and rubs a hand along his mohawk's ridge. Wish she'd taken the telemanuses with her. If she had, you'd have slagged Aja hard. He closed his eyes and leans his head back. Oh, hey! You remember suddenly. I got you some ships. I saw that. Thank you, I say. Finally! He snorts a laugh. A sign we're making a difference. Twenty torchships, ten frigates, four destroyers, a dreadnought. You should have seen it, Reap. Martian Navy pumped Phobos full of legionnaires, emptied their ships, and we just stole their assault shuttles, flew them back with the right codes, and landed them in their hangars. My squad didn't even fire a shot. Quicksilver's boys even hacked the PA systems in the Navy ships. They all heard your speech. It was mutiny almost before we got on board. Reds, oranges, blues, even greys. It won't work again, the PA system bit. Golds will learn to cut themselves off the network so we can't hack in. But it got him hard this week. When we reunite with the Pax and Orion's other ships, we'll have a real force to slag the pixies. It's moments like this that I know I'm not alone. Damn the world, so long as I have my mangy little guardian angel. If only I was so good at guarding him as he is at guarding me. Once again, he's done all I could ask, and more. As I marshaled the obsidians, he ripped a gaping hole in the jackal's defense fleet, crippled a fourth of them, forced the rest to retreat toward the outer moon of Deimos to regroup with the jackal's reserves and await additional reinforcements from Ceres and the Can. For a brief hour, he held naval supremacy over all of Mars's southern hemisphere, the Goblin King. Then he was forced to retreat to hunker close into Phobos, 
where his men eliminated the trapped loyalist marines by using Rolo's squads to cut off their air and vent them into space. I'm under no delusion. The Jackal won't let us have the moon. He might not care about its people, but he can't destroy the station's helium refineries. So another assault will come soon. It won't affect my war effort, but the Jackal will get tied down fighting the populace that we have woken. It'll drain his resources without trapping me. Worst possible situation for him. What are you thinking? I ask Severo. His eyes are lost in the ceiling. I'm wondering how long till it's us on the slab. And wondering why it's got to be us on the line. You see vids and hear stories and you think of the regular people. The ones who got a chance at life on Ganymede or Earth or Luna. Can't help but be jealous. You don't think you've gotten a chance to live? I ask. Not proper, he says. What's proper? I ask. He crosses his arms like he's a kid in a fort, looking down at the real world and wondering why it can't be as magical as he is. I don't know. Something far away from being a peerless scarred. Maybe a pixie, or even a happy mid-colour. I just want something to look at and say, That's safe. That's mine. And no one is going to try and take it. A house. Kids. Kids? I ask. I don't know. I never thought of it till Pops died. Till they took you. Till Victra, you mean? I say with a wink. Nice goatee, by the way. Shut up, he says. Have you to... He cuts me off, changing the subject. But it'd be nice to just be several. To have Pops. To have known my mother. He laughs at himself, harder than he should. Sometimes I think about going back to the beginning and wondering what would have happened if Pops had known the board was coming, if he'd escaped with my mother, with me. I nod. I always think about how life would have been like if Eo never died. The children I would have had, what I would have named them. I smiled distantly. I would have grown old, watched Eo grow old, and I would have loved her more with each new scar, with each new year, even as she learned to despise our small life. I would have said farewell to my mother, maybe my brother, sister, and if I was lucky, one day, when Eo's hair turned grey, before it began to fall out and she began to cough. I would hear the shift of rocks over my head on the drill, and that would be it. She would have sent me to the incinerators and sprinkled my ashes, then our children would have done the same, and the clans would say we were happy and good and raised bloody damn fine children. And when those children died, our memory would fade, and when their children died, it would be swept away, like the dust we become, down and away to the long tunnels. It would have been a small life, 
I say with a shrug. But I would have liked it. And every day I ask myself, if I was given the chance to go back, to be blind, to have all that back, would I? And what's the answer? All this time I thought this was for Eo. I drove straight on like an arrow because I had that one perfect idea in my head. She wanted this. I loved her, so I'll make her dream real. But that's bullshit. I was living half a bloody damn life, making an idol out of a woman, making her a martyr, some thing instead of someone, pretending she was perfect. I run my hand through my greasy hair. She wouldn't have wanted that. And when I looked out at the hollows, I just knew. I mean, I guess I realized, as I was talking, that justice isn't about fixing the past. It's about fixing the future. We're not fighting for the dead. We're fighting for the living. And for those who aren't yet born. For a chance to have children. That's what has to come after this. Otherwise, what's the point? Severo sits silently, thinking over what I've said. You and I keep looking for light in the darkness, expecting it to appear. But it already has. I touch his shoulder. We're it, boyer. Broken and cracked and stupid as we are, we're the light, and we're spreading. Chapter 36 Swill I run into Victra in the hall as I leave Severo with Ragnar. It's late, past midnight, and she's only just arrived to help coordinate the final preparations between Quicksilver Security, the Suns, and our new navy, which I've given her command of until we're reunited with Orion. It's another decision that peeves Dancer. He's frightened I'm bestowing too much power on golds who might have ulterior motives. Mustang's presence could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. How's he doing? Victra asks regarding Severo. Better, I say, but he'll be glad to see you. She smiles at that, despite herself, and I think she actually blushes. It's a new look for her. Where are you going? She asks. To make sure Mustang and Dancer haven't torn each other's heads off yet. Noble, but too late. What happened? Is everything prime? That's relative, I suppose. Dancer's in the war room, ranting about gold superiority complexes, arrogance, etc. Never heard him curse so much. I didn't stay long, and he didn't say much. You know, he's not that sweet on me. And you're not that sweet on Mustang, I say. I have nothing against the girl. She reminds me of home, especially considering the new allies you've brought us. I just think she's a duplicitous little filly, that's all. But it's the best horses that'll buck you right off, don't you think? I laugh. Not sure if that was innuendo or not. It was. Do you know where she is? Victra makes a sad little face. 
Contrary to popular opinion, I don't know everything, darling. She moves past me to join Severo, patting my head as she goes. But I'd check the commissary on level three if I were you. Where are you going? I ask. She smiles mischievously. Mind your own business. I find Mustang in the commissary, hunched over a metal bottle with Uncle Nero, Calix, and Daxo. A dozen members of the pit vipers lounge at the other tables, smoking burners and eavesdropping intently to Mustang, who sits with her boots up on the table, using Daxo as a backrest, as she tells a story about the Institute to the other two occupants of the table. I couldn't see them when I first entered, due to the bulk of the telemanuses, but my brother and mother sit listening to the tale. And so, of course, I shout for Pax. That's my son, Kavox reminds my mother. And he comes on over the hill, leading a column of my house members. Darrow and Cassius feel the ground shaking and go screaming into the lock, where they clung together for hours, shivering and turning blue. Blue, Kavak says, with a huge childish laugh that makes the sun's eavesdropping unable to keep their composure. Even if he's a gold, it's difficult not to like Kavak's Aotelemanus. Blue as blueberries, Sophocles, isn't that right? Give him another, Diana. My mother rolls a jelly bean across the table to Sophocles, who waits eagerly beside the bottle to gobble it up. What's going on here? I ask, eyeing the bottle my brother's refilling the gold's mugs with. We're getting stories from the lass, Nerol says gruffly through a cloud of burner smoke. Have a dram. Mustang wrinkles her nose at the smoke. Such an awful habit, Nerol, she says. Kirin looks pointedly at our mother. I've been telling both of them that for years. Hello, Darrow. Daxo says, standing to clasp my arm. Pleasure to see you without a razor in your hand this time. He pokes me in the shoulder with a long finger. Daxo, sorry about all that. I think I owe you a bit of a debt for taking care of my people. Orion did most of the minding there, he says with a twinkle in his eye. He returns gracefully to his seat. My brother's captivated by the man and the angels tattooed on his head. And how could he not be? Daxos twice as weight, immaculate, and more well-mannered than even a rose like Mateo, who I hear is recovering well on one of Quicksilver's ships, and is delighted to know I'm alive. What happened with Dancer? I ask Mustang. Her cheeks are flushed, and she laughs at the question. Well... I don't think he very much likes me, but don't worry, he'll come around. Are you drunk? I ask with a laugh. A little. Catch up. She swivels her legs down and puts her feet on the ground to clear a space on the bench beside her. I was just getting to the part where you wrestled packs in the mud. My mother watches me quietly, a little smile on her lips, as she knows the panic that must be going through me right now. Too shocked at seeing two halves of my life collide without my supervision, I sit down uneasily and listen to Mustang finish the story. 
With all that's transpired, I'd forgotten the charm of this woman, her easy, light nature, how she draws others in by making them feel important, by saying their names and letting them feel seen. She holds my uncle and brother in a spell, one reinforced by the Telemannus's admiration for her. I try not to blush when my mother catches me admiring Mustang. But enough of the Institute, Mustang says, after she's explained in detail how Pax and I dueled in front of her castle. Diana, you promised me a story about Darrow as a boy. How about the gas pocket one? Nero says, if only Lauren was here. No, not that one, Kieran says. What about... I have one, Mother says, cutting off the men. She begins slow, words sluggish through the lisp. When Darrow was small, maybe three or four, his father gave him an old watch his father had given him. This brass thing with a wheel instead of digital numbers. Do you remember it? I nod. It was beautiful. Your favourite possession. And years later, after his father had died, Kieran here got sick with a cough. Meds were always in short ration in the mines, so you'd have to get them from Gamma or Grey. But each has a price. I didn't know how I was going to pay. And then Darrow comes home one day with the medicine. Won't say how he got it. But several weeks later, I saw one of the greys checking the time with that old watch. I look at my hands, but I feel Mustang's eyes on me. I think it's time for bed, Mother says, Nerol and Kieran protest until she clears her throat and stands. She kisses me on the head, lingering longer than she usually would. Then she touches Mustang's shoulder and limps from the room with my brother's help. Nerol's men go with them. She's a quiet woman, Kavak says, and she loves you very much. I'm glad you met like this, I say to him. Then to Mustang, especially you. How's that? she asks, without me trying to control it, like last time. Yes, I would say that was quite the disaster, Daxo says. This feels right, I say. I agree, it does. Mustang smiles. I wish I could introduce you to mine. You would have liked her better than my father. I return the smile, wondering what this is between us, dreading the idea of having to define it. There's an easiness that comes with being around her, but I'm afraid to ask her what she's thinking, afraid to broach the subject for fear of shattering this little illusion of peace. Kavax awkwardly clears his throat, dissolving the moment. So the meeting with Dancer didn't go well? I ask. I fear not, Daxo says. The resentment he harbors runs deep. Theodora was more forthcoming, but Dancer was intransigent, 
Militantly so. He's a cipher, Mustang clarifies, taking another drink and wincing at the quality of proof. Hoarding information from us. Wouldn't share anything I didn't already know. I doubt you were very forthcoming yourself. She grimaces. No, but I'm used to making others compensate for me. He's smart, and that means it's going to be difficult to convince him that I want our alliance to work. So you do. Thanks to your family, yes, she says. You want to build a world for them, for your mother, for Kieran's children. I understand that. When I chose to negotiate with the Sovereign, I was trying to do the same thing, protecting those I love. The Telemannuses share a glance. Her finger traces dents in the table. I couldn't see a world without war unless we capitulated. Her eyes find my sigil-barren hands, searching the naked flesh there, as if it held the secret to all our futures. Maybe it does. But I can see one now. You really mean that? I ask. All of you. Family is all that matters, Kavok says. And you are family. Daxo sets an elegant hand on my shoulder. Even Sophocles seems to understand the gravity of the moment, resting his chin on my foot beneath the table. Aren't you? Yes. I nod gratefully. I am. With a tight smile, Mustang pulls a piece of paper from her pocket and slides it to me. That's Orion's comm frequency. I don't know where they are. Probably in the belt. I gave them a simple directive. Cause chaos. From what I've heard from Gold's chatter, they're doing just that. We'll need her and her ships if we're going to take down Octavia. Thank you, I say to them all. I didn't think we'd ever have a second chance. Nor did we, Daxo replies. Let me be blunt with you, Darrow. There is a matter of concern. It's your plan. You're designed to use claw drills to allow the Obsidians to invade key cities around Mars. We think it is a mistake. Really? I ask. Why? We need to wrest the jackal's centers of power away, gain traction with the populace. Father and I do not have the same faith in the obsidians you seem to have. Daxo says carefully. Your intentions will matter little if you let them loose on the populace of Mars. Barbarians, Kavak says. They are barbarians. Ragnar's sister is not Ragnar, Daxa replies. She's a stranger, and after hearing what she did to the gold prisoners, we can't in good conscience join our forces to a plan that would unleash the obsidians on the cities of Mars. The Arcos women won't either. I see. And there's another reason we think the plan flawed. Mustang says, it doesn't deal properly with my brother. Give my brother credit. 
He's smarter than you, smarter than me. Even Kavax does not contest this. Look what he's done. If he knows how to play the game, if he knows the variables, he'll sit in a corner for days, running through the possible moves, counter-moves, externalities, and outcomes. That's his idea of fun. Before Claudius's death and before we were sent to live in different homes, he'd stay inside, rain or shine, and piece together puzzles, create mazes on paper, and beg me over and over again to try and find the centre when I came back from riding with father, or fishing with Claudius and Pax. And when I did find the centre, he would laugh and say what a clever sister he had. I never thought much of it until I saw him afterward one day, alone in his room, when he thought no one was watching, shrieking and hitting himself in the face, punishing himself for losing to me. The next time he asked me to find the centre of a maze, I pretended I couldn't, but he wasn't fooled. It was like he knew I'd seen him in his room. Not the introverted but pleasant, frail boy everyone else saw. The real him. She gathers her breath, shrugging away the thought. He made me finish the maze. And when I did, he smiled, said how clever I was, and walked off. The next time he drew a maze, I couldn't find the centre, no matter how hard I tried. She shifts uncomfortably. He just watched me try from the floor among his pencils, like an old evil ghost inside a little porcelain doll. That's how I remember him. It's how I see him now when I think about him killing father. The Telemannuses listen with a foreboding silence, as afraid of the jackal as I am. Darrow, he'll never forgive you for beating him at the Institute, for making him cut off his hand. He'll never forgive me for stripping him naked and delivering him to you. We are his obsession, just as much as Octavia is as much as father was. So if you think he's going to just forget how Severo waltzed into his citadel with a claw drill and stole you from under him, you're going to get a lot of people killed. Your plan to take the cities won't work. He'll see it coming a kilometre off. And even if he doesn't, if we take Mars, this war will last for years. We need to go for the jugular. And not just that, Daxo says. We need assurances that you're not aiming to begin a dictatorship or a full democracy in the case of victory. A dictatorship? I ask with a smirk. You really think I want to rule? Daxo shrugs. Someone must. A woman clears her throat at the door. We wheel around to see Holiday standing there with her thumbs in her belt loop. Sorry to interrupt, sir, but the Bologna is asking for you. It seems rather important. Chapter 37 The Last Eagle 
Cassius lies handcuffed to the rails of the reinforced medical gurney in the centre of the Sons of Ares Infirmary, the same place I watched my people die from the wounds they suffered to save me from his clutches. Bed after bed of injured rebels from Phobos and other operations on the thermic fill the expanse. Ventilators whir and beep. Men cough. But it's the weight of the eyes that I feel most. Hands reach for me as I pass through the rows of cots and pallets lying on the floor. Mouths whisper my name. They want to touch my arms, to feel a human without sigils, without the mark of the masters. I let them as well as I can, but I haven't time to visit the fringes of the room. I asked Dancer to give Cassius a private room. Instead, he's been set smack in the middle of the main infirmary, among the amputees, adjacent to the huge plastic tent that covers the burn unit. There he can watch and be watched by the low colors and feel the weight of this war the same way they do. I sense Dancer's hand at work here, giving Cassius equitable treatment. No cruelty, no consideration, just the same as the rest. I feel like buying the old socialist a drink. Several of Nero's boys... A grey and two weathered ex-hell divers slump on metal chairs playing cards near Cassius's bedside. Heavy scorchers slung around their backs. They jump to their feet and salute as I approach. Heard he's been asking for me, I say. Most the night, the shorter of the reds answers gruffly, eyeing Holiday behind me. Wouldn't have bothered you, but he's a bloody damn Olympic so thought we should pass the word up the chain. He leans so close I can smell the menthol of the synth tobacco between his stained teeth. And the slagger says he's got information, sir. Can he talk? Yeah, the soldier grumbles. Doesn't say much, but the boat's missed his box. I need to speak with him privately, I say. We got you covered, sir. The doctor and the guards wheel Cassius's gurney to the far back of the room to the pharmacy, which they keep guarded under lock and key. Inside, among the rows of plastic medication boxes, Cassius and I are left alone. He watches me from his bed, a white bandage around his neck, the faintest pinprick of blood dilating between his Adam's apple and the jugular on the right side of his throat. It's a miracle you're not dead. I say. He shrugs. There's no tubes in his arms or morphine bracelet. I frown. They didn't give you painkillers? Not punishment. They voted. He says very slowly, taking care not to rip the stitches on his neck. Wasn't enough morphine to go around. Low supplies. As they tell, the patients voted last week to give the hard meds to the burn victims and amputees. I'd think it noble if they didn't moan all night from pain, like lonely little puppies. He pauses. 
I always wondered if mothers can hear their children weeping for them. Can yours? I didn't weep. And I don't think my mother cares much for anything other than revenge. Whatever that means at this point. You said you had information. I ask. To business, because I don't know what else to say. I feel an ironclad kinship with this man. Severo asked why I saved him, and I could aspire to notions of valor and honor. But the deep spine reason is, I desperately want him to be a friend again. I crave his approval. Does that make me a fool? Disloyal? Is it the guilt speaking? Is it his magnetism? Or is it that vain part of me that just wants to be loved by the people I respect? And I do respect him. He has honor, a corrupted sort, but true honor nonetheless. Was it her, or was it you? He asks carefully. What do you mean? Who kept the obsidians from boiling out my eyes and taking my tongue? You or Virginia? It was both of us. Liar. Didn't think she'd shoot to tell the truth of it. He reaches up to feel his neck, but the manacles jerk his hands to a halt, startling him back into the room. Don't suppose you could take these off. It's dreadful when you've got an itch. I think you'll live. He chuckles as if saying he had to try. So, is this where you act morally superior for saving me? For being more civilized than gold? Maybe I'm going to torture you for information, I say. Well, that's not exactly honorable. Neither is letting a man put me in a box for nine months after torturing me for three. Anyway, what the hell ever made you think I'd give a shit about being honorable? True. He frowns, creasing his brow and looking startling, like something Michelangelo would have carved. If you think the sovereign will barter, you're wrong. She won't sacrifice a single thing to save me. Then why serve her? I ask. Duty. He says the words, but I wonder how deeply he means them any longer. In his eyes I glimpsed the loneliness, the longing for a life that should have been, and the glimmer of the man he wants to be, underneath the man he thinks he has to be. All the same, I say. I think we've done enough evil to one another. I'm not going to torture you. Do you have information, or are we just going to dance around it for another ten minutes? Have you wondered yet why the Sovereign was suing for peace, Darrow? Surely it must have crossed your mind. She's not one to dilute punishment unless she must. Why would she show leniency to Virginia, to the Rim? Her fleets outnumber those of the Moon Lord rebels three to one.
the core is better supplied. Romulus can't match Roke. You know how good he is. So why would the Sovereign send us to negotiate? Why compromise? I already know she wanted to replace the Jackal, I say. And she can't very well have a full-scale rebellion on the rim while trying to cuff his ears and fight the sons of Ares. She's trying to limit her theatres of war so she can focus all her weight on one problem at a time. It's not a complicated strategy. But do you know why she wanted to remove him? My escape, the camps, the disruptions in helium processing... I could list a hundred reasons why installing a psychopath as arch-governor could prove burdensome. All those are valid, he says, interrupting. Convincing, even. And they are the reasons we provided Virginia. I step back toward him, hearing the implication in his voice. What didn't you tell her? He hesitates, as if wondering even now if he should tell me. Eventually, he does. Earlier this year, our intelligence agents discovered discrepancies between the quarterly helium production logs reported to the Department of Energy and the Department of Mine Management and the yield reports from our agents in mining colonies themselves. We found at least 125 instances where the jackal falsely reported helium losses due to Sons of Ares' disruption. Disruptions which didn't exist. He also claimed 14 mines destroyed by Sons of Ares' attacks, attacks which never happened. So, he's skimming off the top, I say with a shrug. Hardly the first corrupt arch-governor in the world. But he's not reselling it on the market, Cassius says. He's creating artificial shortages while he stockpiles. Stockpiles? How much so far? I ask tensely. With the surplus inventory from the 14 mines and the Martian Reserve? At this rate... In two years, he'll have more than the Imperial Reserves on Luna and Venus and the War Reserve on Ceres combined. That could mean a hundred things, I say quietly, realizing just how much fuel that is. Three quarters of the most valuable substance in the world, all under the control of one man. He's making a play for Sovereign. Buying senators? Forty so far, Cassius admits. More than we thought he had. But there's another kink which he's involved them in. He tries to sit up straighter in his cot, but the manacles around his hands anchor him to a half-slouched pose. I'm going to ask you a question, and I need you to tell me the truth. I'd laugh at the idea if I didn't see how serious he is. Did the sons of Ares rob a deep space asteroid warehouse in March, several days after your escape? About four months ago? Be more specific, I say. 
a minor main belter in the Karin cluster. Designation S-1988. Silicate-based junk asteroid. Nearly zero mining potential. Specific enough? I reviewed the entirety of Severo's tactical operations when I was making my recovery with Mickey. There were several assaults on Legion military bases within the asteroid belts, but nothing remotely like what Cassius is talking about. No, there were no operations on S-1988 that I know of. Gory damn, he mutters under his breath. Then we judged right. What was in the warehouse? I ask. Cassius? Five hundred nuclear warheads, he says darkly. The blood on his bandage has spread to the size of a gaping mouth. Five hundred, I echo, my own voice a distant, hollow thing. What was their yield? Thirty megatons each. World killers. Cassius. Why would they even exist? In case the Ash Lord ever had to repeat Rhea, Cassius says, the depot lies between the core and the rim. Repeat? Rhea? That's who you serve? I ask. A woman who stores enough nuclear warheads to destroy a planet, just in case? He ignores my tone. All evidence pointed to Ares, but the Sovereign thought it gave Severo too much credit. She had Moira investigated personally, and she was able to trace the tags of the hijacker's ship to a defunct shipping line, formerly owned by Julii Industries. If the Suns truly didn't steal them, then the Jackal has the weapons. But we don't know what he's doing with them. I stand there, numb, mind racing to piece together how the jackal might utilize so many atomics. According to the compact, the Martian military is only permitted twenty in its arsenal for ship-to-ship -ship warfare, all under five megatons. If this is true, why would you tell me? I ask. Because Mars is my home too, Darrow. My family has been there as long as yours. My mother is still there, in our home. Whatever the Jackal's long-term strategy is, the judgment of the Sovereign is that he will use the weapons here if his back is to the wall. You're afraid we might win, I realize. When it was Severo's war, no. The Sons of Ares was doomed. But now? Look what's happening. He looks me up and down. We've lost containment. Octavia doesn't know where I am, whether or not Aja is alive. She has no eyes on this. The Jackal might know she tried to betray him to his sister. He's a wild dog. If you provoke him, he will bite. He lowers his voice. You might be able to survive that, Darrow. But can Mars? 
Chapter 38 The Bill Five hundred nuclear warheads, several whispers. Holy bloody damn shit. Tell me you're joking. Go on. Dancer sits quietly at the war room table, kneading his temples. It's bullshit, Holiday grunts from the wall. If he has them, he'd have used them. Let's leave the deductions to the individuals who have actually met the man, shall we? Victor says. Adrius doesn't function like a normal human. That's for damn sure, Severo says. Still, that's a solid question, Dancer says, annoyed at the presence of so many golds, particularly Mustang, who stands beside me. If he has them, why hasn't he used them? Because that sort of escalation will hurt him almost as much as it hurts us, I say. And if he uses them, the Sovereign will have every excuse to replace him. Ah, oh, he doesn't have them, Quicksilver says dismissively. He floats before us, blue hollow pixels shimmering over a display panel. It's a ploy. Bologna knows what you care about, Darrow. He's plucking your heartstrings with notions of oblivion. It's bullshit. My techs would have seen major ripples if he was moving missiles, and I would have heard about plutonium enriching if the Sovereign had built them. Unless they're old missiles, I say. Lots of relics lying about. And it's a big solar system, Mustang says evenly. I've got big ears, Quicksilver replies. Had, Victor says, they're whittling them down as we speak. The leaders of the rebellion sit in a semicircle in front of a hollow projector, which displays asteroid S-1988. It's a barren hunk of rock, part of the Karin subfamily of the Coronas family of asteroids in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. The Coronas asteroids are the base for heavy mining operations by an Earth-run energy consortium and home to several disreputable astral way stations for smugglers and pirates, most notably 208 Lacrimosa, where Severo refueled on his journey from Pluto to Mars. The locals call the smugglers' cove Our Lady of Sorrows, where life is cheaper than a kilo of iced helium and a gram of demon dust, or so he says. He's unusually quiet about the place and his time there. Gold war room meetings are held in circles or rectangles because people facing one another are more likely to engage in intellectual conflict than people sitting side by side. Golds relish that. I'm trying a different tack. Having my friends face the problem. The hollow projector. So if they want to argue with one another, they have to crane their necks to do it. It's a shame we don't have the Sovereign's oracles, Mustang says. Strap one on his wrist and see how forthcoming Cassius really is. Sorry we don't quite have the resources you're used to, Domina, Dancer says. That's not what I meant. We could torture him, Severo says. He's in the middle of the table, cleaning his fingernails with a blade. Victor leans against the wall behind him, flinching in annoyance with each flake of nail that falls onto the table. Dancer is to Severo's left. 
The meter-tall hologram of Quicksilver glows to his right, between us. Having declared Phobos a free city on behalf of the Rising, he functions as its governor, and now hunches over a small stack of thumb-sized heart oysters with a platinum octopus shocking knife, arranging the shells in five even mounds. If he's nervous about the jackal's reprisals against his station, he doesn't look it. Sephi sweats underneath her tribal furs as she stalks along the perimeter of the table like a trapped animal, making Dancer shift in agitation. You want the truth? Severa asks. Just give me seventeen minutes and a screwdriver. Should we really be having this talk with her here? Victor asks of Mustang. She's on our side, I say. Are you sure? Dancer asks. She was crucial to recruiting the Obsidians, I say. She's connected us with Orion. I made contact with the woman after speaking with Cassius. She's burning hard with the packs and a sizable remnant of my old fleet to meet me. Seems impossible I'd ever see the ornery blue again, or that ship which was the first place to feel like home since Lycos. Because of Mustang, we'll have a real navy. She preserved my command. She kept Orion at the helm. Would she have done that if she didn't have the same aims as us? Which are, Dancer asks, defeating Loon and the Jackal, she says. That's just the surface of what we want, Dancer says. She's working with us, I stress. For now, Victor says, she's a clever girl. Maybe she wants to use us to eliminate her enemies, place herself in a position of power. Maybe she wants Mars. Maybe she wants more. Seems only yesterday my Council of Golds was discussing whether or not Victra was worth trusting. Roke spoke up for her when no one else would. The irony is apparently lost on Victra, or maybe she remembers Mustang's vocal distrust of her intentions a year ago and has decided to repay the old debt. I hate to agree with the Julii, Dancer says, but she's right in this. Augustans are players. Not one's been born that hasn't been. Apparently Dancer wasn't impressed with Mustang's lack of transparency earlier. Mustang expected this. In fact, she asked to stay in her room, away from this, so she wouldn't detract from my plan. But in order for this to work, in order for there to be some way to piece things together in the end, there must be cooperation. They expect me to defend Mustang, which shows how little they know her. You are all being rather illogical, Mustang says. I don't mean that as an insult, but simply as a statement of fact. If I meant you ill, I would have hailed the Sovereign or my brother and brought a tracking device on my ship. You know what lengths she would go to in order to find Tinos. My friends exchanged troubled glances. But I didn't. I know you will not trust me, but you trust Darrow, and he trusts me, and since he knows me better than any of you do, I think he's in the best position to make the call. So stop whimpering like gory damn children, and let's be about the task, eh? 
If you have a buzz saw, I could do it in around three minutes. Severo says. Will you shut the hell up? Dancer barks at him. It's the first time I've ever seen him lose his temper. A man will lie through his teeth, say whatever you want to hear if you're pulling off his toenails. It doesn't work. He was tortured himself by the jackal, just like Evie and Harmony were. Severo crosses his arms. Well, that's an unfair and massive generalization, Gramps. We don't torture, Dancer says. That's final. Oh, yeah, right, Severo says. We're the good guys. Good guys never torture, and always win. But how many good guys get their heads put in boxes? How many get to watch their friends' spines cut in half? Dancer looks to me for help. Darrow. Quicksilver pops open an oyster. Torture can be effective, if done correctly, with confirmable information in a narrow scope. Like any tool, it is not a panacea. It must be used properly. Personally, I don't really think we have the luxury of drawing moral lines in the sand. Not today. Let Barker have a go. Pull some nails. Some eyes, if need be. I agree, Theodora says, surprising the council. What about Matteo? I ask Quicksilver. Severo shattered his face. Quicksilver's knife slips on the new oyster, punching into the meat of his palm. He winces and sucks at the blood. And if he hadn't have passed out, he would have told you where I was. From my experience, pain is the best negotiator. I agree with them, Darrow, Mustang says. We have to be certain he's telling the truth. Otherwise, we're letting him dictate our strategy, which is classic counterintelligence on his part. It's what you would do. And it's what I tried to do till the torture started with the jackal. Victor, who has been silent on the issue till now, walks abruptly around the table into the hollow projection so that black space and stars play along her skin. Jagged, white-blonde hair drifts in front of angry eyes as she pulls her grey shirt off. She's muscled and lithe beneath, and wears a compression bra. A half-dozen razor scars stretch three inches at a diagonal across her flat belly. There's more than a dozen on her sword arm, a few on her face, neck, clavicle. Some I'm proud of, she says of the scars. Some I'm not. She turns to show us her lower back. It's a waxy, melted swath of flesh where her sister left her mark in acid. She turns back to us, raising her chin in defiance. I came here because I didn't have a choice. I stayed when I did. Don't make me regret that. It's startling to see the vulnerability in her. I don't think Mustang would ever let her guard down in public like this. Severo stares intensely at the tall woman as she tugs her shirt back on and turns back to the hollow. She reaches for the asteroid with both hands to stretch the hologram 
Can we get better resolution? She asks, as if the matter is settled. The picture was taken by a Census Bureau drone, I say, nearly 70 years ago. We don't have access to the current society military records. My men are on it, Quicksilver says, but they're not optimistic. We're fighting a legion of society counterattacks right now. Gory damn maelstrom. This is when having your father around would come in handy, Severo says to Mustang. He never mentioned anything like this to me, she replies. Mother did once, Victor says thoughtfully. Antonia and I. Something about nasty little goodie bags that imperators could collect on the fly if the rim went off the tracks. That matches with what Cassia says. She turns back to us. I think Cassius is telling the truth. So do I, I say to the group. And torturing him doesn't resolve anything. Cut off his fingers one by one, and what if he still says it's true? Do we keep cutting until he says it's not? Either way, it's a gamble. I get a few reluctant nods and feel relief that at least one battle's won, if a little wary knowing how savage my friends can become. What did he suggest we do? Dancer asks. I'm sure he had a proposal. He wants me to have a hollow conference with the Sovereign, I say. Why? To discuss an alliance against the Jackal. They give us intel, we kill him before he can detonate any bombs, I say. That's his plan. Severo giggles. Sorry, but that would be bloody damn fun to watch. He pulls up his left hand and makes a talking motion with it. Hello, you old rusty bitch. You recall when I kidnapped your grandchild? He pulls up his right hand. Why, yes, my goodman, just after I enslaved your entire race. He shakes his head. No purpose in talking to that pixie. Not until we're knocking on her doorstep with a fleet. You should send me and the howlers after good old jackal. Can't press a button without a head. The Valkyrie will attend this mission with the howlers, Sefi says. No, the jackal will invite a personal attack. I say, glancing at Mustang, who has already warned me off that course. He knows us too well to be surprised by things we've done in the past. I'm not throwing lives away by playing into his understanding of our strengths. Do you have anyone inside his inner circle, Regulus? Dancer asks Quicksilver. Surprisingly, the two men seem to rather like one another. I did, until your greys broke Darrow out. Adrius had his chief of intelligence purge his inner circle. My men are all dead, or imprisoned, or scared shitless. What do you think, Augustus? Dancer asks Mustang. All eyes turn to her. She takes her time in replying. I think the reason you've managed to stay alive so long is because goals are so consumed with the individual ego that they've forgotten how they conquered Earth. Each thinks they can rule. With Orion returning and Severo's gains, your greatest strength now lies with your navy and an obsidian army. Don't help the Sovereign. She is still the most dangerous enemy. 
You help her, she focuses on you. Sow more seeds of discord. Dancer nods in agreement. But are we sure the Jackal would actually use the nukes on the planet? The only thing my brother ever wanted was my father's approval. He did not get it. So he killed my father. Now he wants Mars. What do you think he'll do if he doesn't get it? A menacing silence fills the room. I have a new plan, I say. I should bloody damn hope so, several mutters to Victra. Do I get to hide inside anything? I'm sure we can find something for you, darling, she says. I nod my agreement. He waves a hand. Well, then let's hear it, Reaper. Hypothetically, assume we can take half the cities of Mars. I say, standing and summoning a graphic from the table that shows a red tide flowing over the globe of Mars, claiming cities, pushing back the golds. Say we crush the Jackal's fleet in orbit when Orion joins us, even though we are outnumbered two to one. Say we shatter his armies. With the Valkyrie's help, we fracture the Obsidians away from the Legions and have them join us. And we have a groundswell from the populace itself. The machines of industry grind to a complete halt on Mars. We've rebuffed the Society's countless reinforcements, and we have insurrection in every street, and we have cornered the Jackal after years of warfare. And it will take years. What happens then? The machines of industry don't stop off of Mars, Victor says. They keep rolling, and they'll keep pumping men and material here. Or, I say, he uses the bombs, Dancer says, which I also believe he'll use on the Obsidians and our army if we go ahead with Operation Rising Tide. I say. We've been prepping the operation for months, Dancer protests. With the obsidians, it might just work. You want to scrap it? Yes, I say. This planet is why we fight. The strength of rebel armies throughout history is that they have less to protect. They can rove and move and are impossible to pin down. We have so much to lose here. So much to protect. This war won't be won in days or weeks. It will be a decade. Mars will bleed, and at the end, ask yourselves, what will we inherit? A corpse of what was once our home. We must fight this war, but I will not fight it here. I propose we leave Mars. Quicksilver coughs. Leave Mars? Sefi steps forward from the shadows of the stone room. You said you would protect my people. Our strength is here, in the tunnels, Dancer continues. In our population. That's where our responsibility lies, Darrow. He glances at Mustang, his suspicions clear. Don't forget where you come from, why you're doing this. I have not forgotten, Dancer. Are you so sure? This war is for Mars. It's for more than that, I say. 
for low colours. He continues, voice gaining volume. Win here, and then spread across the society. It's where the helium is. It is the heart of the society, of red. Win here, then spread. That's how Ares intended it. This war is for everyone, Mustang corrects. No, Dancer says territorially. This is our war, gold. I was fighting it when you were still learning how to enslave human beings at your... Severo looks at me in annoyance as our friends descend into bickering. I give him a little nod and he pulls his razor and slams it into the table. It cuts halfway through and trembles there. Reapers trying to speak, you shit-gobblers. Besides, all this colorism bores me. He looks around, terribly pleased with the silence. He nods to himself and waves a theatrical hand. Reaper, please, continue. You are getting to the exciting part. Thank you, Severo. I won't fall into the trap of the jackal. I say. The easiest way to lose any war is to let the enemy dictate the terms of engagement. We must do the thing the Jackal and the Sovereign least expect of us. Create our own paradigm so they're playing our game, reacting to our decisions. We must be bold. Right now, we've sparked a fire. Rebellions in almost all society territories. We stay here... That means we are contained. I will not be contained. I transfer the image on my datapad to the table so that the hologram of Jupiter floats in the air. Sixty-three tiny moons dot the periphery, but the four great Jovian moons dominate its orbit. These four largest, Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa, are referred to collectively as Ilium. Around those moons are two of the largest fleets in the solar system, that of the Moon Lords and that of the Sword Armada. Severo looks so pleased he might faint. I'm giving him the war he didn't even know he wanted. The civil war between Bologna and Augustus has exposed larger fault lines between the core and the outer rim. Octavia's main fleet, the Sword Armada, is hundreds of millions of kilometers away from its nearest support. Accepting the scepter armada around Luna, it is the greatest weapon Octavia has. Octavia sent our good friend Roque Ao Fabii to bring the Moon Lords to heel. He has shattered every fleet that has been thrown against them. Even with the help of Mustang, the Telemanuses, and the Arcoses, he has beaten the rim down. On board these ships are more than two million men and women, more than 10,000 obsidian, 200,000 greys, 3,000 of the greatest killers alive, peerless scarred, preters, legates, knights, squad commanders, the greatest golds of their institutes. This fleet has been reinforced by Antonia Aus Severus Julii, and it is the instrument of fear by which the sovereign binds the planets to her will. It, like its commander, has never been defeated. I pause, allowing the words to sink in so they all know the gravity of my proposal. In forty days, we're going to destroy the Sword Armada 
and rip the beating heart out of the society war machine. I pull Severo's razor out of the table and toss it back to him. Now, I'll take your bloody damn questions. Chapter 39 The Heart Dancer finds me as I make final preparations to board the shuttle with Severo and Mustang that will lead us to the fleet in orbit. Tinos swarms with activity. Hundreds of shuttles and transports gathered by Dancer and his Sons of Ares leadership depart through the great tunnels to make their migration toward the South Pole, where they will still ferry the obsidian young and old from their home to the safety of the mines. But the warriors will go to orbit to join my fleet. In twenty-four hours they will move eight hundred thousand human beings in the greatest effort in Sons of Ares history. It makes me smile thinking how much happier Fitchner would be, knowing the greatest endeavor of his legacy was to save lives instead of to take them. After covering the evacuation with the fleet, I will burn hard for Jupiter. Dancer and Quicksilver will remain behind to continue what they started, and holds the jackal on Mars till the next evolution of the plan begins. It's haunting, isn't it? Dancer says, watching the sea of blue engine flares that flow past our stalactite up to the great tunnel in the ceiling of Tinos. Victor stands closely with Severo at the edge of the open hangar, two dark silhouettes watching the hope of two peoples float away into the darkness. The Red Armada goes to war. Dancer breathes. Never thought I'd see the day. Fitchner should be here, I reply. Yes, he should, Dancer grimaces. It's my greatest regret, I think, that he couldn't live to see his son wear his helm. And you become what he always knew you to be. And what's that? I ask, watching a red howler jump twice with his grav boots and rocket off the edge of the hangar to enter the open cargo hatch of a passing troop carrier. Someone who believes in the people, he says delicately. I turn to face Dancer, glad that he sought me out in my last moments here among my kin. I don't know if I'll ever return. And if I do, I fear he will see me as a different man. One who betrayed him, our people, Eo's dream. I've been here before, saying goodbye on a landing pad. Harmony stood with him then, Mickey too, as they said goodbye on that spire in Yorkton. How can I feel so melancholy for so terrible a past? Maybe that's just the nature of us, ever wishing for things that were and could be, rather than things that are and will be. It takes more to hope than to remember. Do you think the Moon Lords will really help us? He asks. No. The trick will be making them think they're helping themselves, then getting out before they turn on us. It's a risk, boy. But you like those, don't you? I shrug. It's also the only chance we have. Boots clomp on the metal deck behind me. Holiday moves past, up the ramp, carrying a bag of gear with several new howlers. 
Life moves on, carrying me with it. It's been nearly seven years since Dancer and I met, yet it seems thirty on him. How many decades of war has he faced? How many friends has he said goodbye to that I've never known, that he's never even mentioned? People who he loved as much as I love Severo and Ragnar. He had a family once, though he rarely speaks of them now. We all had something once. We're each robbed and broken in our own way. That's why Fitchner formed this army. Not to piece us together, but to save himself from the abyss his wife's death opened in him. He needed a light, and he made it. Love was his shout into the wind. Same with my wife. Lorne once told me, if he had been my father, he would have raised me to be a good man. There's no peace for great men, he said. I smile at the memory. I should have asked him who he thinks makes the peace for all those good men. You are a good man, Dancer tells me. My hands are scarred and brutal things. When I clench them, their knuckles turn that familiar shade of white. Yeah, I grin. Then why do I want to do bad things? He laughs at that, and I surprise him by pulling him into a hug. His good arm wraps around my hips, his head barely coming to my chest. Several might have worn the helmet, but you're the heart here, I tell him. You always have been. You're too humble to see it, but you're as great a man as Ares himself. And somehow you're still good. Unlike that dirty rat bastard. I pull back and thump his chest. And I love you. Just so you know. Oh, bloody damn. He mutters, eyes tearing up. I thought you were a killer. You gone soft on me, boy. Never, I say, winking. He pushes me off. Go say goodbye to your mother before you go. I leave him to shout at a group of sons marines and work my way through the bustle, bumping fists with Pebble, whose screw face pushes on a wheelchair toward a boarding ramp, tossing a salute to sons of Ares I recognize, talking shit back to Uncle Nerol, who walks with a troop of pit vipers. They're destined for a sabotage mission against the Jackal's deep space communication relays. My mother and Mustang stop talking abruptly when I arrive. Both look distraught. What's the matter? I ask. Just saying goodbye, Mustang says. My mother steps close to me. Dio brought this from Lycos. She opens a little plastic box and shows me the dirt inside. My little mother smiles up at me. You fly into night, and when all grows dark, remember who you are. Remember you are never alone. The hopes and dreams of our people go with you. Remember home. She pulls me down to kiss my forehead. Remember you are loved. I hug her tight and pull back to see she has tears in her hard eyes. 
I'll be all right, ma, I say. I know. I know you don't think you deserve to be happy, she says. But you do, child. You deserve it more than anyone I know. So do what you need to do, then come home to me. She takes my hand and Mustang's. Both of you come home. Then start living. I leave her behind, confused and emotional. What was that about? I ask Mustang. Mustang looks at me as if I should know. She's afraid. Why? She's your mother. I walk up my shuttle's landing pad with Severo and Victra, who join Mustang and I at the bottom. Helldiver! Dancer shouts before we reach the top. I turn back to find the gnarled man with his fist thrust in the air, and behind him, the whole of the stalactite hangar watches me, hundreds of deckhands on mechanized loading trams, pilots, blue and red and green, who stand at the ramps of their ships, or on the ladders leading into their cockpits, helmets in hands, platoons of greys and reds and obsidians standing side by side, carrying combat gear and supplies, the scythe sewn onto shoulders, painted onto faces, as they board shuttles bound for my fleet. Men and women of Mars all, fighting for something larger than themselves, for our planet, for their people. I feel the weight of their love. I feel the hopes of all those people in bondage who watched as the sons of Ares rose to take Phobos. We promised them something, and now we must deliver. One by one, my army raises their hands till a sea of fists clench, as Eos did when she held the Hemanthus and fell before Augustus. Chills run through me, as Severo and Victra and Mustang and even my mother raise their hands in union. Break the chains! Dancer bellows. I raise my own scarred fist and step silently into the shuttle to join the Red Armada as it sails to war. Chapter 40 Yellow Sea The yellow sea of Io rolls in around my black boots. Great dunes of sulphur-laced sand with razorback ridges of silicate rock as far as the eye can see. In the steel-blue sky, the marbled surface of Jupiter undulates. One hundred and thirty times the diameter that Luna appears from the surface of Earth, it seems the vast and evil head of a marble god. War grips it sixty-seven moons. Cities hunker under pulse shields. Blackened husks of men in starshells litter moons, while fighter squadrons duel and hunt troop and supply transports among the faint ice rings of the gas giant. It's quite a sight. I stand upon the dune, flanked by Sefi and five Valkyrie in black pulse armor, waiting for the Moon Lord's shuttle. Our assault ship sits behind us, engines idling. It's shaped like a hammerhead shark, dark gray. But the Valkyrie and red dock workers 
painted its head together on our journey from Mars, giving the ship two bulging blue eyes and a gaping mouth with ravenous blood-stained teeth. Up between the eyes, Holiday lies on her belly, sniper rifles scanning the rock formations to the south. Anything? I ask, voice crackling through the breathing mask. Nothing, Severo says over the comm. He and Clown scout the little settlement two clicks away on grav boots. I can't see them with the naked eye. I fidget with my sling blade. They'll come, I say. Mustang set the time and place. Io is a strange moon. Innermost and smallest of the four great Galilean moons, she is a belt notch larger than Luna. It was never her destiny to be fully changed by the gold's terraforming machines. She's a hell Dante could be proud of. The driest object in the Sol system, rife with explosive volcanism and sulfur deposits and interior tidal heating. Her surface a canvas of yellow and orange planes, broken by huge thrust faults from her shifting surface. Dramatic sheer cliffs rising from the sulfur dunes to scrape the sky. Huge stains of concentric green freckle her equatorial regions. Finding crops and animals difficult to cultivate so far from the sun, the Society Engineering Corps covered millions of acres of Io's surface with pulse fields, imported dirt and water for three lifetimes on cosmos haulers, thickened the planet's atmosphere to filter Jupiter's massive radiation, and used the planet's interior tidal heating to power great generators to grow foodstuffs for the entire Jupiter orbit and exportation to the core and, more importantly, the rim. She's a farm deck with the biggest breadbasket between Mars and Uranus with easy gravity and cheap land. Guess who did all the labor? Beyond the pulse fields is the sulfur sea, stretching from pole to pole, interrupted only by volcanoes and lakes of magma. I may not like Io, but I can respect the people of this land. Ionian men and women are not like humans of Earth or Luna or Mercury or Venus. They are harder, lither, eyes slightly larger to absorb the dimmed light six hundred million kilometers from the sun, skin pale, taller, and able to withstand higher doses of radiation. These people believe themselves most like the iron golds who conquered Earth and put man at peace for the first time in her history. I shouldn't have worn black today. My gloves, my cloak, my jacket underneath. I thought we were going to the anti-Jupiter side of Io, where sulfur dioxide snowfields crossed the planet. But the Moon Lord's operation team demanded a new meeting point at the last moment, setting us on the edge of the sulfur sea. Temperature, 120 degrees Celsius. Sefi walks up to stand beside me with her new optics scanning the yellow horizon. She and her Valkyrie have taken quickly to the gear of war, studying and training day and night with holiday during our month-and-a-half journey to Jupiter, practicing shipboarding and energy weapon tactics, as well as grey hand signals. How's the heat? I ask. Strange, she says. Only her face can feel it. 
The rest benefits from the cooling systems and the armor. Why would people live here? We live everywhere we can. But golds choose, she says. Yes? Yes. I would be wary men who choose such a home. The spirits here are cruel. Sand kicks up from the wind and the low gravity, floating down in wavering columns. It's Sefi who Mustang thinks I should be wary of. On our journey to Jupiter, she has watched hundreds of hours of hollow footage, learning our history as a people. I keep track of her datapad's activity. But what concerns Mustang isn't that Sefi is fond of rainforest videos and experientials, but that she has spent countless hours watching hollows of our wars, particularly the nuclear annihilation of Rhea. I wonder what she makes of it. Sound advice, Sefi, I reply. Sound advice. Severo lands dramatically before us, spraying us with sand. His ghost cloak ripples away. Bloody damn shithole. I dust off my face, annoyed. He was incorrigible the whole journey out here. Laughing, pulling pranks, and slipping off to Victor's room whenever he thought no one was looking. Ugly little man's in love. And for what it's worth, it seems to go both ways. What do you think? I ask. The whole place smells like farts. That's your professional assessment? Holiday asks over the comm. Yup. There's a Wagar settlement over the ridge. His howler wolf pelt kicks in the wind, jingling the little chains that connected to his armor. Bunch of red-hunched goggleheads carting distillation gear. You've scanned the sand? I ask. Ain't my first slag, boss. I don't like this face-to-face -face bullshit, but it looks clear. He glances at his data pad. Thought Moonies were supposed to be punctual. Pricklicks are thirty minutes late. Probably cautious. Must think we've air support, I say. Yeah, because we'd be bloody damn shitbrains for not bringing some. Roger that, Holiday says in agreement over the calm. Why would I need air support when I've got you, I say, gesturing to Severo's grav boots. A plastic grey case sits on the ground behind him. Inside, a Sarissa missile launcher in foam padding. The same Ragnar used on Cassius's craft. If the need arises, I've got myself a psychotic goblin-sized fighter jet. Mustang said they'll be here, I say. Mustang said they'll be here, several mocks in childish voice. They better. Fleet can't squat for long out there without being spotted. My fleet waits with Orion in orbit since Mustang took her shuttle to Nessus, the capital of Io. Fifty torchships and destroyers hunkered down, shields off, engines dark, on the barren moon of Sinope, as the larger fleets of the Golds swim through space closer in to the Galilean moons. Any closer, and the Gold sensors will pick us up. But as it hides, my fleet is vulnerable. With one pass, a measly squadron of ripwings could destroy it. The Moonies will come, I say. But I'm not sure of it. They're a cold, proud, insular people, these Jovian golds. 
Roughly 8,000 peerless scarred call the Galilean moons of Jupiter home. Their institutes are all out here, and it is only societal service, or vacations for the wealthiest among them, that takes them to the core. Luna might be the ancestral home of their people, but it's alien to most of them. Metropolitan Ganymede is the center of their world. The sovereign knows the danger of having an independent rim. She spoke to me of the difficulty of imposing her power across a billion kilometers of empire. Her true fear was never Augustus and Bologna destroying one another. It was the chance that the rim would rebel and cut the society in half. Sixty years ago, at the beginning of her reign, she had the ash lord nuke Saturn's moon Rhea, when its ruler refused to accept her authority. That example held for sixty years. But nine days after my triumph, the children of the moon lords who were kept on Luna in the sovereign's court as insurance towards their parents' political cooperation escaped. They were assisted by Mustang spies, which she left behind in the citadel. Two days after that, the heirs of the fallen arch-governor Rivas Aura, who was killed at my triumph, stole or destroyed the entirety of the societal garrison fleet in its dock at Callisto. They declared Io's independence and pressured the other more populous and powerful moons into joining them. Soon after, the infamously charismatic Romulus Aura was elected sovereign of the Rim. Saturn and Uranus joined soon after that, and the Second Moon Rebellion began sixty years, two hundred and eleven days after the first. The Moon Lords obviously expected the Sovereign would find herself mired on Mars for a decade, maybe longer. Add to that a certain low-color insurrection in the core, and one can see why they assumed she would not be able to devote the resources needed to send a fleet of sufficient size six hundred million kilometers to quash their nascent rebellion. They were wrong. We've got inbound, Pebble says from her station at the shuttle sensor boards. Three ships, two ninety clicks out. Finally, Severa mutters. Here come the bloody damn moonies. Three warships emerge from the heat mirage on the horizon. Two black Sarpedon-class fighters, painted with the four-headed white dragon of Ra, clutching a Jovian thunderbolt in its talons, escort a fat, tan, Priam-class shuttle. The ship lands before us. Dust swirls, and the ramp unfurls from the belly of the craft. Seven lithe forms, taller and lankier than I, walk down into the sand. Golds all. They wear krill, organic breathing masks made by carvers over nose and mouths. Looks like the shed skin of a locust, legs stretching to either ear. Their tan combat gear is lighter than core armor, and complemented with brightly colored scarves. Long-barreled railguns with personalized ivory stocks are strapped to their backs. Razors hang from their hips. Orange optics cover their eyes, and on their feet are skippers. Lightweight boots that use condensed air instead of gravity to move their user, skipping them over the ground like stones on a lake. Can't get much height, but you can move nearly sixty kilometers an hour. 
They're about a quarter the weight of my boots, have battery life for a year, and are dead cold on thermal vision. These are assassins, not knights. Holiday recognizes the different breed of danger. She's not with them, she says over her calm. Any telemanesis? No, I say. Hold, I see her. Mustang steps out of the craft, joining the much taller Ionians. She's dressed like them, except without a rifle. Joined by another Ionian woman, this one with the forward-hunching shoulders of a cheetah, Mustang joins us atop the dune. The rest of the Ionians stay near the ship. Not a threat, just an escort. Darrow, Mustang says. Sorry we're late. Where's Romulus? I ask. He's not coming. Bullshit, Severo hisses. I told you, Reap. Severo, it's fine, Mustang says. This is his sister, Vila. The tall woman stares down her smashed flat nose at us. Her skin is pale, body adapted for the low gravity. It's hard to see her face past the mask and goggles, but she seems in her early fifties. Her voice is one even note. I send my brother's greetings and welcome, Darrow of Mars. I am Legate Vila Aura. Sefi slinks around us, examining the alien gold and the strange gear she carries. I like the way people talk when Sefi circles. Seems a little more honest. Well met, Legatus. I nod cordially. Will you be speaking for your brother? I'd hoped to make my case in person. The skin to the side of her goggles crinkles. No one speaks for my brother, not even I. He wishes for you to join him at his private home, on the wastes of Carrick. So you can lure us into a trap? Several asks. Better idea. How about you tell your bitch of a brother to honour his bloody dumb agreement before I take that rifle and shove it so far up your fartel you look like a skinny pixie shish kebab? Severo, stop, Mustang says. Not here, not these people. Vila watches Sefi's circle, taking note of the razor on the huge obsidian's hip. I could give a shit and piss who this is. She knows who we are. And she ain't got a little trickle going down her legs, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the bloody damn reaper of Mars. Then she's got less brains than a wad of ass lint. He cannot come, Vila says. Understandable, I reply. Severo makes a grotesque motion. What is that? Vila asks, nodding to Sefi. That is a queen, I say. Sister to Ragnar Volaris. Vila is wary of Sefi, as well she should be. Ragnar is a name known. She cannot come either. But I was speaking in regards to that hunk of metal you flew here on. Is it meant to be a ship? She snorts and turns up her nose. Built on Venus, obviously. It's borrowed, I say. But if you care to make an exchange... Vila surprises me with a laugh before becoming serious once more. If you wish to present yourself to Moon Lords as a diplomatic party, then you must show respect for my brother, and trust the honour of his hospitality. I've seen enough men and women set aside honour when it's inconvenient, I say probingly.
In the core, perhaps. This is the rim. Vila replies. We remember the ancestors. We remember how iron gold should be. We do not murder guests like that bitch on Luna, or like that jackal on Mars. Yet, I say. Vila shrugs. It is a choice you must make, Reaper. You have sixty seconds to decide. Vila steps away as I confer with Mustang and Severo. I motion Sefi over. Thoughts? Romulus would rather die than kill a guest, Mustang says. I know you don't have any reason to trust these people, but honor actually means something to them. It's not like the Bologna who just tossed the word around. Adhira, gold's word means as much as his blood. Do you know where the residence is? I ask. She shakes her head. If I did, I'd take you there myself. They've got equipment inside to check for radiation and electronic trackers. They've studied you. We'll be on our own. Lovely. But this isn't about tactics. No short-term gain here. My big play was coming out to the rim knowing I had leverage the Sovereign doesn't. That leverage will keep my head on my shoulders better than anyone's honor. Yet, I've been wrong before. So I double-check and listen now. Do the rules governing treatment of guests extend to reds? Several asks. Or just gold? That's what we need to know. I glance back at Vila. It's a fair point. If he kills you, he kills me, Mustang says. I'm not leaving your side, and if he does that, my men turn against him. The Telemannuses turn against him. Even Lorne's daughter-in-law will turn against him. That's nearly a third of his navy. It's a blood feud he can't afford. Sefi, what do you think? She closes her eyes so her blue tattoos can see the spirits of this waste. Go. Give us six hours, Severo. If we're not back by then, wank off in the bushes. Lay waste. Can do. He bumps my fist with his and winks. Happy diplomacy, kids. He keeps his fist out for Mustang. You too, horsey. We're in this shit together, eh? She happily bumps his knuckles with her own. Bloody damn right. Chapter 41 The Moon Lord The home of the most powerful man in the Galilean moons is a simple, wandering place of little gardens and quiet nooks. Set in the shadow of a dormant volcano, it looks out over a yellow plain that stretches to the horizon where another volcano smolders and magma creeps westward. We sat down in a small covered hangar in the side of a rock formation, one of only two ships. The other, a sleek, black racing craft, Orion would die to fly, next to a row of several dust-covered hover bikes. No one comes to service our vessel as we disembark and approach the home along a white stone walkway set into the sulfur chalk. It curves around to the side of the home, the entirety of the small property enclosed by a discreet pulse bubble. Our escorts are at ease on the property. They fly in ahead of us through the iron gate that leads to the grass courtyard into the home, removing their dust-caked skipper boots and setting them just inside the entryway beside a pair of black military boots. Musting and I exchange a glance, 
then remove our own. It takes me the longest to remove my bulky graf boots, each weighing nearly nine kilos and having three parallel latches around the boot that locks my legs in. It's oddly comforting to feel the grass between my toes. I'm conscious of the stink of my feet. Odd seeing the boots of a dozen enemies stacked by the door, like I've walked in on something very private. Please wait here, Vila says to me. Virginia, Romulus wishes to speak with you alone first. I'll scream if I'm in danger, I say with a grin when Mustang hesitates. She winks and leaves to follow Vila, who noticed the subtlety of the exchange. I feel there's little the older woman misses, even less that she doesn't judge. I'm left alone in the garden, with the song of a wind chime hanging from a tree above. The courtyard garden is an even rectangle, maybe thirty paces wide, ten deep from the front gate to the small white steps that lead into the home's front entrance. The white plaster walls are smooth and covered with thin, creeping vines that wander into the home. Little orange flowers erupt from the vines and fill the air with a woodsy, burning scent. The house rambles, rooms and gardens unfolding out from each other. There is no roof to the house, but there's little reason for one. The pulse bubble seals off the property from the weather outside. They make their own rain here. Little misters drip water from the morning's watering of the small citrus trees whose roots crack the bottom of the white stone fountain in the center of the garden. A little glance at a place like this was what led my wife to the gallows. How strange a journey she'd think this was. But also, in a way, how marvelous. You can eat a tangerine if you like. A small voice says behind me. Father won't mind. I turn to find a child standing by another gate that leads off from the main courtyard to a path that winds around the left of the house. She might be eight years old. She holds a small shovel in her hands, and the knees of her pants are stained with dirt. Her hair is short-cropped and messy, her face pale, eyes a third again as large as any girl of Mars. You can see the tender length of her bones, like a fresh-born colt. There's a wildness in her. I've not met many gold children. Core, peerless families often guard them from the public eye, for fear of assassination, keeping them in private estates or schools. I've heard the rim is different. They do not kill children here. But everyone likes to pretend that they don't kill children. Hello, I say kindly. It's a fragile, awkward tone I haven't used since I saw my own nieces and nephews. I love children, but I feel so alien to them these days. You're the Martian, aren't you? She asks, impressed. My name is Darrow. I reply with a nod. What's yours? I am Sarah Aura, she says proudly. Were you really a red? I heard my father speaking, she explains. They think just because I don't have this. 
She runs a finger along her cheek in an imaginary scar. That I don't have ears. She nods up to the vine-covered walls and smiles mischievously. Sometimes I climb. I still am, I read, I say. It's not something I stop being. Oh, you don't look like one. She must not watch Hollows if she doesn't know who I am. Maybe it's not about what I look like, I suggest. Maybe it's about what I do. Is that too clever a thing to say to a six-year-old? Hell if I know. She makes a disgusted face, and I fear I've made a mistake. Have you met many Reds, Sarah? She shakes her head. I've only seen them in my studies. Father says it's not proper to mingle. Don't you have servants? She giggles before she realizes I'm serious. Servants? But I haven't earned servants. She taps her face again. Not yet. It darkens my mood to think of this girl, running for her life through the woods of the Institute. Or will she be the one chasing? Nor will you ever earn them if you don't leave our guest alone, Serafina. A low, husky voice says from the main entry to the house. Romulus Aura leans against the doorframe of his home. He is a serene and violent man. My height, yet thinner, with a twice-broken nose. His right eye a third larger than mine, set in a narrow, wrathful face. His left eyelid is crossed with a scar. A smooth globe of blue and black marble stares out at me in place of eyeball. His full lips are pinched, the top lip bearing three more scars. His dark gold hair is long and held in a ponytail. Except for the old wounds, his skin is perfect porcelain. But it's how he seems more than how he looks that makes the man. I feel his steady way his easy confidence, as if he's always been at the door, always known me. It's startling how much I like him from the moment he winks at his daughter, and also how much I want him to like me, despite the tyrant I know him to be. So, what do you make of our Martian? he asks his daughter. He is thick, Serafina says, larger than you, father but not as large as a Telemannus, I say. She crosses her arms. Well, nothing is as large as a Telemannus. I laugh. If only that were true. I knew a man who was nearly as large to me as I am to you. No, Serafina says, eyes widening. An obsidian? I nod. His name was Ragnar Valaris. He was stained a prince of an obsidian tribe from the south pole of Mars. They call themselves the Valkyrie, and they are ruled by women who ride griffins. I look at Romulus. His sister is with me. Who ride griffins? The notion dazzles the girl. She's not yet gotten there in her studies. Where is he now? He died and we fired him toward the sun as we came to visit your father. Oh, 
I'm sorry, she says with the blind kindness it seems only children still have. Is that why you looked so sad? I flinch, not knowing it was so obvious. Romulus notices and spares me from answering. Serafina, your uncle was looking for you. The tomatoes won't plant themselves, will they? Serafina dips her head and gives me a farewell wave before departing back down the path. I watch her disappear and belatedly realize that my child would be her age now. Did you arrange that? I ask Romulus. He steps into the garden. Would you believe me if I said the no? I don't believe much from anyone these days. That'll keep you breathing, but not happy. He says seriously, voice having the clipped staccato delivery of a man raised in gladiatorial academies. There's no affectations here, no purring insults or games. It's a refreshing, if estranging, directness. This was my father's refuge, and his father's before mine. Romulus says, gesturing for me to take a seat on one of the stone benches. I thought it a fitting place to discuss the future of my family. He plucks a tangerine from the tree and sits on an opposite bench. And yours. It seems a strange amount of effort to expend, I say. What do you mean? The trees, the dirt, the grass, the water. None of it belongs here. And the man was never meant to tame fire. That's the beauty of it, he says challengingly. This moon is a hateful little horror, but through ingenuity, through will, we made it ours. Or are we just passing through? I ask. He wags a finger at me. You've never been credited for being wise? Not wise, I correct. I've been humbled, and it's a sobering thing. The box was real, Romulus asks. We've heard rumours this last month. It was real. Indecorous, he says in contempt, but it speaks to the quality of your enemy. His daughter left little muddy footprints on the stone path. She didn't know who I was. Romulus concentrates on peeling the tangerine in delicate little ribbons. He's pleased, I noticed, about his daughter. No child in my family watches hollows before the age of twelve. We all have nature and nurture to shape us. She can watch other people's opinions when she has opinions of her own, and no sooner. We're not digital creatures. We're flesh and blood. Better she learns that before the world finds her. Is that why there are no servants here? There are servants, but I don't need them seeing you today. And they aren't hers. What kind of parent would want their children to have servants? He asks, disgusted by the idea. The moment a child thinks it is entitled to anything, they think they deserve everything. Why do you think the core is such a Babylon? Because it's never been told no. Look at the institute you attended. Sexual slavery, murder, cannibalism of fellow golds. 
He shakes his head. Barbaric. It's not what the ancestors intended. But the core worlders are so desensitized to violence, they've forgotten it's to have purpose. Violence is a tool. It is meant to shock, to change. Instead, they normalize and celebrate it, and create a culture of exploitation where they are so entitled to sex and power that when they are told no, they pull a sword and do as they like. Just as they've done to your people, I say. Just as they've done to my people, he repeats. Just as we do to yours. He finishes peeling the tangerine, only now it feels more like a scalping. He tears the meat of it gruesomely in half and tosses one part to me. I won't romanticize what I am, or excuse the subjugation of your people. What we do to them is cruel, but it is necessary. Mustang told me on our journey here that he uses a stone from the Roman Forum itself as a pillow. He is not a kind person, not to his enemies at least, which I am, regardless of his hospitality. It's hard for me to speak to you as if you are not a tyrant, I say. You sit here and think you are more civilized than Luna because you obey your creed of honor, because you show restraint. I gesture to the simple house. But you're not more civilized, I say. You're just more disciplined. Isn't that civilization? Order? Denying animal impulse for stability? He eats his fruit in measured bites. I set mine on the stone. No, it's not. But I'm not here to debate philosophy or politics. Thank Jove. I doubt we'd agree upon much. He watches me carefully. I'm here to discuss what we both know best. War. Our ugly old friend. He glances once at the door to the house to make sure we're alone. But before we move to that sphere, may I ask you a question of personal note? If you must. You are aware my father and daughter died at your triumph on Mars. I am. In a way, it's what began all this. Did you see it happen? I did. Was it as they say? I wouldn't presume to know who they are or what they say. They say that Antonia aus Severus Julii stepped on my daughter's skull till it caved in. My wife and I wish to know if it is true. It's what we were told by one of the few who managed to escape. Yes, I say. It is true. The tangerine drips in his fingers, forgotten. Did she suffer? I hardly remember seeing the girl in the moment, but I've dreamed of the night a hundred times, enough to wish my memory was a weaker thing. The plain-faced girl wore a grey dress with a brooch of the lightning dragon. She tried to run around the fountain, but Vixus slashed the back of her hamstrings as she walked past. She crawled and wept on the ground until Antonia finished her off. 
She suffered. For several minutes. Did she weep? Yes, but she did not beg. Romulus watches out the iron gate as sulfur dust devils dance across the barren plain beneath his quiet home. I know his pain, the horrible crushing sadness of loving something gentle, only to see it ripped apart by the hard world. His girl grew here, loved, protected, and then she went on an adventure and learned fear. Truth can be cruel, he says, yet it is the only thing of value. I thank you for it, and I have a truth of my own, one I do not think you will like. You have another guest, I say. He's surprised. There's boots at the door, polished for a ship, not a planet. Makes the dust stick something awful. I'm not offended. I half expected it when you didn't meet me in the desert. You understand why I will not make a decision blindly or impetuously? I do. Two months ago, I did not agree with Virginia's plan to negotiate for peace. She left of her own accord with the backing of those frightened by our losses. I believe in war only insofar as it is an effective tool of policy, and I did not believe we stood in a position of strength to gain anything from our war without achieving at least one or two victories. Peace was subjugation by another word. My logic was sound, our arms were not. We never made the victories. Imperator Fabii is... Effective. And the Corps, as much as I despise that culture, produces very good killers with very good logistical supply and support. We are fighting uphill against a giant. Now you are here, and I can achieve something with peace that I could not with war. So I must weigh my options. He means he can leverage my presence into suing the Sovereign for better terms than she would have given if the war had continued. It's boldly self-interested. I knew it was a risk when I set this course, but I'd hoped he'd be hot-blooded after a year of war with the woman and would want to pay her back. Apparently, Romulus Aura's blood runs a special kind of cold. Who did the Sovereign send? I ask. He leans back in amusement. Who do you think? Chapter 42 The Poet Roque Au Fabii sits at a stone table in an orchard along the side of the house, finishing a dessert of elderberry cheesecake and coffee. Smoke from a brooding dwarf volcano twirls up into the twilight horizon with the same indolence as the steam from his porcelain saucer. He turns from watching the smoke to see us enter. He's striking in his black and gold uniform, lean like a strand of golden summer wheat with high cheekbones and warm eyes. But his face is distant and unyielding. 
By now he could drape a dozen battle glories across his chest. But his vanity is so deep that he thinks affectation a sign of boorish decadence. The pyramid of the society, given flight with imperator wings on either side, marks each shoulder. A gold skull with a crown burdens his breast, the sigil of the Ash Lord's warrant. Roke sets the saucer down delicately, dabs his lips with the corner of his napkin, and rises to his bare feet. Darrow, it's been an age, he says, with such mannered grace that I could almost convince myself that we were old friends reuniting after a long absence. But I will not let myself feel anything for this man. I cannot let him have forgiveness. Victra almost died because of him. Fitchner did. Lorne did. And how many more would have, had I not let Severo leave the party early to seek his father? Imperator Fabii, I reply evenly. But behind my distant welcome is an aching heart. There's not a hint of sorrow on his face, however. I want there to be. And knowing that... I know I still feel for the man. He is a soldier of his people. I'm a soldier of mine. He is not the evil of his story. He is the hero who unmasked the Reaper, who smashed the Augustus Telemannus fleet at the Battle of Deimos the night after my capture. He does not do these things for himself. He lives for something as noble as I, his people. His only sin is in loving them too much, as is his way. Mustang watches me worriedly, knowing all I must feel. She asked me about him on the journey from Mars. I told her that he was nothing to me, but we both know that isn't true. She's with me now, anchoring me among these predators. Without her, I could face my enemies— but I would not hold on to so much of myself. I would be darker, more wrathful. I count my blessings that I have people like her, to which I can tether my spirit. Otherwise I fear it would run away from me. I can't say it's a pleasure to see you again, Roke, she says, taking the attention away from me, though I am surprised the Sovereign didn't send a politico to treat with us. She did, Roke says, and you returned Moira as a corpse. The sovereign was deeply wounded by that, but she has faith in my arms and judgment, just as I have faith in the hospitality of Romulus. Thank you for the meal, by the by, he says to our host. Our commissary is woefully militaristic, as you can imagine. The benefit of owning a breadbasket, Romulus says. Siege is never a hungry affair. He gestures for us to take our seats. Mustang and I take the two facing Roke as Romulus sits at the head of the table. Two other chairs to the right and left of him are filled with the arch-governor of Titan and an old, crooked woman I don't know. She wears the wings of Imperator. Roke watches me. It does please me, Dara, knowing you're finally participating in the war you began. 
Darrow isn't responsible for this war, Mustang says. Your sovereign is. For instilling order? Roke asks. For obeying the compact? Oh, that's fresh. I know her a bit better than you, poet. The crone is a nasty, covetous creature. Do you think it was Aja's idea to kill Quinn? She waits for an answer. None comes. It was Octavia's. She told her to do it through the comm in her ear. Quinn died because of Darrow, Rogue says. No one else. The jackal bragged to me that he killed Quinn, I say. Did you know that? Roke is unimpressed with my claim. If he'd let her be, she would have lived. He killed her in the back of the ship while the rest of us fought for our lives. Liar. I shake my head. Sorry, but that guilt you feel in your skinny little gut, that's gonna stick around. Because it's the truth. You made me a mass murderer against my own people, Rogue says. My debt to my sovereign and the society for my part in the Bologna-Augustus War is not yet paid. Millions lost their lives in the Siege of Mars. Millions who need not have died if I had seen through the ruse and done my duty to my people. His voice quavers. I know the lost look in his eyes. I've seen it in my own in the mirror as I wake from a nightmare and stare at myself in the pale bathroom light of that same stateroom on Luna. All those millions cry to him in the darkness, asking him why. He continues. What I cannot understand, Virginia, is why you abandoned the talks on Phobos. Talks which would have healed the wounds that divide gold and permit us to focus on our true enemy. He looks at me heavily. This man wanted your father to die. He desires nothing but the destruction of our people. Pax died for his lie. Your father died because of his schemes. He is using your heart against you. Spare me, Mustang snorts contemptuously. I'm trying to. Don't talk down to me, poet. You're the weeping sort here, not me. This isn't about love. This is about what is right. That has nothing to do with emotion. It has to do with justice, which rests upon facts. The Moon Lords shift uncomfortably at the notion of justice. She jerks her head in their direction. They know I believe in rim independence. And they know I'm a reformer. And they know I'm intelligent enough not to conflate the two or to confuse my emotions with my beliefs. Unlike you. So since your rhetorical plays here are going to fall on deaf ears, shall we spare ourselves the indignity of verbal jousting and make our propositions so we can end this war one way or another? Roke glowers at her. Romulus smiles slightly. Do you have anything to add, Darrow? I believe Mustang covered it quite thoroughly. Very well, Romulus replies. Then I shall say my piece and let you say yours. You are both 
my enemies. One has plagued me with workers' strikes, anti-government propaganda, insurrection. The other with war and siege. Yet here, on the fringe of the darkness, away from both your sources of power, you need me, and my ships, and my legions. You see the irony? My lone question is this. Who can give me more in return? He looks first to Rogue. Imperator, please begin. Honourable lords, my sovereign mourns this conflict between our people, as do I. It spawned from the seed sown in previous disputes, but it can end now, as Rim and Kor remember that there is a greater, more pernicious evil than political squabbling and debate over taxes and representation, and that is the evil of democracy, that noble lie that all men are created equal. You've seen it tear Mars apart. Adrius our Augustus has nobly fought the battle there on behalf of the society. Nobly? Romulus asks. Effectively. But still the contagion has spread. Now is our best chance to destroy it before it can claim a victory from which we may never be able to recover. Despite our differences, our ancestors all fell upon earth in the conquering. In remembrance of that, the Sovereign is willing to cease all hostilities. She requests the aid of your legions and Armada in destroying the Red Menace that seeks to destroy both Rim and Kor. In return, after the war, she will remove the societal garrison from Jupiter, but not Saturn or Uranus. The Arch-Governor of Titan snorts contemptuously. She will enter into talks in good faith regarding the reduction of taxes and rim export tariffs. She will grant you the same licenses for belt mining which core companies currently hold, and she will accept your proposal for equal representation in the Senate. And the reformation of the sovereign election process? Romulus asks. She was never meant to be an empress. She's an elected official. She will revise the election process after the new senators have been appointed. Additionally, the Olympic Knights will be appointed by the vote of the Arch-Governors, not by order of the Sovereign as you requested. Mustang tilts her head back and laughs one hard note. I'm sorry. Call me sceptical. But what you're saying, Roke, is that the Sovereign will say yes to everything Romulus might want until she's back in a position to say no. She blows air out of her nose comically. Trust me, my friends. My family well knows the sting of the Sovereign's promises. And what of Antonia Au Julii? Romulus asks, noting Mustang's scepticism. Will you deliver her to our justice for the murder of my daughter and father? I will. Romulus is pleased by the terms, and moved by Rogue's comments about the Red Menace. It doesn't help that his promises seem very plausible. Practical. Not promising too much or too little. All I can do to combat them is to embrace the fact that I offer them a fantasy, 
and a dangerous one at that. Romulus looks to me, waiting. Color notwithstanding, you and I have a common bond. The sovereign is a politician. I am a man of the sword. I deal in angles and metal, like you. That is my lifeblood, my entire purpose for being. Look how I rose in your ranks without being one of you. Look how I took Mars, the most successful iron reign in centuries. I lean forward. Lords, I will give you the independence you deserve. Not half-measured, not transient, permanent independence from Luna. No taxes, no twenty years of service to the core for your greys and obsidians. No orders from the Babylon that the core has become. A bold promise, Romulus says, showing the depth of his character by bearing the insult he must feel at a red promising to deliver him his independence. An outlandish promise, Rogue says. Darrow is only who he is because of who is around him. Agreed, Mustang says cheerily. And I still have everyone around me, Rogue. Who do you have? No one, Mustang answers. Just dear old Antonia, who has become my brother's quizzling. The words hit home with Roke and Romulus. I return to addressing the Moon Lords. You have the greatest dockyard the worlds have ever seen. But you started your war too quickly. Without enough ships, without enough fuel thinking the Sovereign would not be able to send a fleet here so quickly. You were wrong. But the Sovereign has made a mistake as well. All her remaining fleets are in the core, defending moons and worlds against Orion. But Orion is not in the core. She is with me. Her forces joined to the ships I stole from the Jackal to form the armada with which I will smash the sword armada from the sky. You don't have the ships for that. Rogue says. You don't know what I have, I say, and you don't know where I hide it. How many ships does he have? Romulus asks Mustang. Enough. Rogue would have you believe I'm a wildfire. Do I look wild? Not today, at least. Romulus, you have no interest in the core, just as I have no interest in the rim. This is not my home. We are not enemies. My war is not against your race, but against the rulers of my home. Help us shatter the sword armada, and you will have your independence. Two birds with one stone. Even if I do not defeat the sovereign in the core after we defeat the poet here, even if I lose within the year, we will cause such damage that it will be a lifetime before Octavia can summon the ships, the money, the men, the commanders, to cross the billion kilometers darkness again. The moon lords lean into my words. I may yet have them. Roke scoffs. Do you really think this self-styled liberator will abandon the low colors in the rim? In the Galilean moons alone, over a hundred and fifty million are enslaved. If I could free them... I would, I admit, but I cannot. 
I recognize that, and it breaks my heart, because they are my people. But every leader must sacrifice. This receives nods from the gold's. Even if I am the enemy, they can respect my loyalty to my people, and also the pain I must feel. It is odd having such veneration in the eyes of my enemies. I am not used to it. Roke also sees the nods. I know this man better than any of you, he presses. I know him like a brother, and he is a liar. He would say whatever it took to break the bonds that bind us together. Unlike the sovereign, who never lies, I say lightly, drawing a few laughs. The sovereign will honor her agreement, Roke insists. As she did with my father, Mustang asks scathingly, when she planned to kill him at the gala last year. I was her lancer, and she planned it right under my nose. And why? because he did not agree with her politics. Imagine what she'd do to men who actually went to war with her. Hear, hear, the arch-governor of Titan says, rapping his knuckles on the table. And instead you would trust a terrorist and a turncoat? Roke asks. He has conspired to destroy our society for six years. His entire existence is deception. How could you trust him now? How could you think a red cares more for you than a gold? Roke shakes his head sadly. We are Oriot, my brothers and sisters. We are the order that protects mankind. Before us was a race intent on destroying the only home it had ever known. But then we brought peace. Do not let Darrow manipulate you into bringing back the dark age that came before. They will purge all the wonders we have made to fill their bellies and sate their lusts. We have a chance to stop him, here, now. We have a chance to unite once more, as we were always meant to, for our children. What world do you want them to inherit? Rogue puts a hand over his heart. I am a man of Mars. I have no love for the core any more than you. The appetites of Luna have pillaged my planet long before I was born. That must change, and it will change, but not at the end of his sword. He would burn the house to fix a broken window. No, friends. That is not the way. To change for the better, we must look past the politics of the day and remember the spirit of our golden age. Oriot, united over all. The longer this plays, the more likely Roke will convince them of their patriotism. Mustang and I both know it, just as I knew I would have to sacrifice something in coming here. I'd hoped it would not be what I'm about to offer, but I know by the looks in the eyes of the Moon Lords that Roke's message has struck home. They fear an uprising. They fear me. It is the great dread of the Sons of Ares, the great mistake Severo made in releasing my carving and taking the Sons to a true war. 
In the shadows, we could let them kill each other. We were just an idea. But Rokas made them think the thought that unites all masters who have ever been. What if the slaves take my property for their own? When my uncle gave me my sling blade, he said it would save my life for the price of a limb. Every miner is told that, so he knows from the first day he steps in the mine, the sacrifice is worth it. I make one now, for which I may never be forgiven. I will give you the sons of Ares, I say quietly. No one hears me through Roke's continued speech, only Mustang. I will give you the sons of Ares. I repeat more loudly. Quiet falls over the table. Romulus's chair creaks as he leans forward. What do you mean? I told you I have no interest in the rim. Now I will prove it. There are over 350 Sons of Ares cells throughout your territories, I say. We are your dock strikes. We are the sanitation sabotage, and the reason why Nessus's streets fill with shit. Even if you hand me over to the Sovereign today, the Sons will bleed you for a thousand years. But I will give you every single Son of Ares cell in the Rim— I will abandon the low colors here and take my crusade to the core, never coming through the asteroid belt as long as I live if you help me kill his bloody damn fleet. I stab a finger at Roke, who looks horrified. That is insanity, Roke says, noting the effect my words have had. He's lying. But I am not lying. I've given orders for the Sons of Ares cells to evacuate across the rim. Not many will make it out. Thousands will be captured, tortured, killed. Thus is war and the peril of leadership. Lords, the Imperator is asking you to bow, I reply. Aren't you tired of that? Of groveling to a throne six hundred million kilometers from your home? They nod. The Sovereign says I am a threat to you. But who has bombed your cities? Who has slain a million of your people? Who kept your children hostage on Luna, slaughtered your father and daughter on Mars? Who burned an entire moon? Was it me? Was it my people? No. Your greatest enemy is the greed of the core, the burners of Rhea. That was a different time, Rogue protests. It was the same woman, I snarl, and look to the Saturnian gold to Romulus's left, who pays rapt attention. Who burned Rhea? The Sovereign has forgotten, because her throne sits with its back toward the rim. But you see her glassy corpse every night in your skies. Rhea was a mistake, Rogue says falling into the pitfall that Mustang helped me prepare. One that must never be repeated. Never repeated? Mustang asks, springing the trap shut. She turns to Vila, 
who watches from the steps of the house with several other Ionian goals. Vila, my friend, may I please have my data pad? Don't play her game, Rogue says. My game? Mustang asks coyly. My game is facts, Imperator. Are those not welcome here, or is rhetoric alone permissible? Personally, I trust no man who fears facts. She looks back to Vila, amused by her own barbs. You can operate it for me, Vila. The password is L17L6363. She grins at my surprise. Vila looks to her brother. She might send a message to Barker. Deactivate my connection, Mustang says. Romulus nods to Vila. She deactivates it. Look in data folders, cache number three, please. She does. At first, the quiet girl's eyes narrow, confused at what she's looking at. Then, as she reads, her lips curl back and the skin on her arms pucker with goosebumps. The rest of the small gathering watches her reaction with growing anxiety. Illuminating, isn't it, Vila? What is it? Romulus demands. Show us. Vila glares hatefully at Roke, who is as confused as anyone, and walks the device to her brother. His face manages to remain impassive as he reads the data, fingers swiping through the files. I use Cassius's information against his master now, turning his gift into an arrow aimed at her heart. Mustang and I thought it would be better coming from her, however lending the lie to the credibility of her friendship with Romulus. Put it up, Romulus says, tossing the data pad to Vila. What is this? Roke asks angrily. Romulus? His words falter, as an image of asteroid S-1988, part of the Karin subfamily of the Coronas family of asteroids in the Kuiper belt between Mars and Jupiter, blossoms in the air. It rotates slowly over the table, the green stream of data beneath it spelling the sovereign's doom. It's a series of falsified society communiques detailing the delivery of supplies to an asteroid without a base. The stream continues to roll, detailing high-level society directives for refueling at the asteroid. Then it shows the footage of the ship I sent away from the main fleet to investigate the asteroid as the rest of us journeyed to Jupiter. Reds float through the dark warehouse, the small jets on their suits silent in the vacuum, but their Geiger meters, which are synced to their helms, crackle at the amount of radiation in the place. A far greater amount of radiation than is present in the legal five-megaton warheads, which are used in space combat. Romulus stares at Rogue. If Raya was not to be repeated, then why did your fleet empty a nuclear weapons depot before coming to our orbit? We did not visit the depot, Rogue says still trying to process what he's seen and the implications of it. The evidence is compelling. All lies are better served with a hefty helping of the truth. 
The Sons of Ares pillaged it months ago. The information is falsified. He's operating off of the wrong information, which means the Sovereign has kept the Jackal's sedition tight to her chest. And now she pays for trusting so few. He's not prepared for this argument, and it shows. So there is a depot? Romulus asks. Rogue realizes how devastating the admission was. Romulus frowns and continues. Imperator Fabii, why would there be a secret depot of nuclear weapons between here and Luna? That's classified. Surely you jest. The societal navy is responsible for the security of... If it was for security, then wouldn't it be nearer a base? Romulus asks. This is near the edge of the asteroid belt, on the path a fleet from Luna would use when Jupiter is in closest orbit to the sun. As if it was a cache meant to be acquired by an imperator on the way to my home. Romulus, I realize how this looks. Do you, young Fabii? Because it looks as if you are considering annihilation to be an option against the people you call brother and sister. This information is clearly falsified, except the existence of the depot. Yes, Roke admits, that exists. And the nuclear warheads? With that much radiation? They're for security, but the rest of it is a lie. Yes. So you didn't, in fact, come to my home with enough nuclear weapons to make our moons glass? We did not, Roke says. The only warheads we have aboard are for ship-to-ship -ship combat— Five megaton yield, max. Romulus, on my honour, the same honour you had when you betrayed your friend? Romulus gestures to me. When you betrayed Honourable Lorn, my ally, Augustus, my father, Rivas, that honour by which you watched as my daughter's head was stomped in by a sociopathic matricide who takes orders from a sociopathic patricide? Romulus... No, Imperator Fabii, I do not believe you deserve the intimacy of using my given name any longer. You call Darrow a savage, a liar, but he came here wearing his heart on his sleeve. You came with the lies, hiding behind manners and breeding. Archgovernor Ra, you must listen. There's explanation if you will just... Enough! Romulus screams, surging to his feet and slamming his large hand on the table. Enough hypocrisy! Enough schemes! Enough lies, you snivelling core sycophant! He trembles finally with the rage. If you were not my guest, I would hurl my glove at you and cut your manhood away in the bleeding place. Your lost generation has forgotten what it means to be gold. You have forsaken your heritage, suckling at the tit of power. And why? For what? Those wings on your shoulders, Imperator. He scoffs at the word, you whelp. I pity a world where you decide if a man like Lorn Ao Arcus lives or dies. Did your parents never teach you? They did not. 
Roke was raised by tutors, by books. What is pride without honour? What is honour without truth? Honour is not what you say. It is not what you read. Romulus thumps his chest. Honour is what you do. Then do not do this, Roke says. Your master did this, Romulus replies indifferently. If she could not make us bow, she would make us burn. Again. Mustang tries and fails to keep the smile from her face as Roke watches the Moon Lord slip through his fingers. A darkness enters his cultured voice, one which leaves my heart in tatters. To think that voice once defended me, now he guards something far less loving, a society that cares nothing for him. I always wondered why Fitchner selected Roke for House Mars. Until his betrayal, I had known him to be only the most gentle soul. But now the Imperator shows his wrath. Arch-Governor Ra, listen to me carefully, he says. You are mistaken in believing we came here with intent to destroy you. We came to preserve the society. Don't give in to Darrow's manipulation. You are better than that. Accept the Sovereign's terms, and we may have peace for another thousand years. But, if you choose this path, if you renege on our armistice, there will be no quarter. Your fleet is ragged. Darrow's, wherever it hides, can be nothing more than a coalition of deserters in borrowed vessels. But we are the Sword Armada. We are the Iron Hand of the Legion and the Fury of the Society. Our ships will darken the lights of your worlds. You know what I can do. You do not have a commander to match me. And when your ships burn, the Knights of the Corps will pour into your cities at the head of flying columns and fill the air with ash enough to choke your children. If you betray your colour, the compact, the society, which is what this will be, Ilium will burn. I will acquaint you with ruin. I will hunt down every person you have ever known, and I will exterminate their seed from the world's. I will do so with a heavy heart, but I am a man of Mars, a man of war, so know my wrath will be unending. He extends a thin hand. The wolf of House Mars's mouth is open in a silent, hungry howl. Take my hand in kinship for the sake of your people and the sake of gold or I will use it to build an age of peace upon the ashes of your house. Romulus walks around the edge of the table so that he is facing Roke, the younger man's outstretched hand between them. Romulus draws his razor from where it is coiled on his hip. It rasps into rigid form, 
a blade etched with visions of earth and of the conquering. His family is as old as Mustangs, as old as Octavia's. He uses that blade to slice open his hand and suck the scarlet blood from the wound before drawing up and spitting it into Roke's face. This is a blood feud. If ever again we meet, you are mine or I am yours, Fabii. If ever again we draw breath in the same room, one breath shall cease. It is a formal, cold declaration that requires one thing of Roke. He nods. Vila, see the Imperator to his shuttle. He has a fleet to prepare for battle. Romulus, you can't let him leave, Mustang says. He's too dangerous. I agree, I say, but for another reason. I'd spare Rogue from this battle. I do not want his blood on my hands. Hold him prisoner until the battle is over, then release him unharmed. This is my home, Romulus says. This is how we conduct ourselves. I promised him a safe passage. He shall have it. Roke dabs the blood and spit away with the same napkin he used for the cheesecake and follows Vila away from the table toward the steps that lead back into the home. He pauses there before turning back to face us. I cannot say if he speaks to me or the golds gathered, but when he recites his last words, I know they are for the ages. Brothers, sisters, till the last, woe that this has come to pass. By your grave I shall weep, for it was I who made you sleep. Roke bows minutely. Thank you for the hospitality, Archgovernor. I will see you shortly. As Roke leaves the assembly, Romulus instructs Vila to hold him until I am safely off Ire. Hail my Imperatus and Pretus, he tells one of his lancers. I want them on hollows in twenty minutes. We have a battle to plan. Darrow, if you would like to link in your Pretus. But my mind is on Rogue. I may never see him again, never have a chance to say so many things which swarm my chest now. But so, too, do I know what letting him go could mean for my people. Go, Mustang says, reading my eyes. I rise abruptly, excusing myself, and manage to catch Roke as he finishes tying his boots in the garden. Vila and several others are moving him toward the iron gate. Roke! He hesitates, something in my voice causing him to turn and watch me approach. When did I lose you? I ask. When Quinn died, he says. You planned to kill me, even when you thought I was a gold? Gold, red, it doesn't matter. Your spirit is black. Quinn was good. Leah was good. And you used them. You are ruin, Darrow. You drain your friends of life, and leave them spent and wasted in your wake, convincing yourself each death is worth it.
Each death brings you closer to justice. But history is littered with men like you. This society is not without fault, but the hierarchy, this world, it is the best man can afford. And it's your right to decide that? Yes, it is. But beat me in space, and it will be yours. Chapter 43 Here Again Blood drips from Mustang's hand. The voices of children drift through the air. My son, my daughter, now that you bleed, you shall know no fear. A young virgin girl, with hair of white and feet bare on cold metal panels, walks through the lines of kneeling giants, carrying an iron dagger that drips with aureate blood. No defeat. Gold armor etched with deeds of their ancestors. The boy's cloak, innocent as snow. Only victory. She slices the already injured hand of Romulus Aldra, whose eyes are closed, his dragon armor white and smooth as ivory, as his other hand holds his eldest son's hand. The boy is no older than seventeen, only just having won his year at the Ganymede Institute. His eyes are flashing and wild for the day. If only his intrepid young soul knew what waited on the other side of the hour. His older cousin kneels by his side, her hand on his knee. Her brother beside her. The family forming a chain across the bridge. Your cowardice seeps from you. Behind the girl, more children walk through the fold, carrying the four standards of gold. A scepter, a sword, and a scroll crowned with a laurel. Your rage burns bright. She holds up the dripping dagger before Kavax Autelemanus and his youngest daughter, Thraxa, a wild-haired, freckle-faced, squat girl with her father's laugh and Pax's simple kindness. Rise, children of Ilium, warriors of gold, and take with you your colour's might. Two hundred gold preters and legates rise. Mustang and Romulus at their head, flanked by the Telemannuses and House Arcos. Mustang lifts up her hand and smears the blood upon her own face. Two hundred killers join her. But I do not. I watch from the corner with Sethi, as the combined officer corps of my gold allies honors their ancestors. Martian reformers, rim tyrants, old friends, old enemies, clutter the bridge of Mustang's flagship. The two-hundred-year-old dreadnought, Dejah Thoris. The battle today is to decide the fate of our society. Whether we live under the rule of a tyrant or whether we carve our own destiny. Mustang catalogues the list of enemies for the day's hunt. Roke au Fabii, Scipia au Falth, Antonia au Severus Julii, 
Syriana Autanus. Thistle. These are wanted lives. I've been here before, witnessing this benediction, and I can't help but feel I will be here again. It has lost none of its luster, none of the grandeur that so sheathes this remarkable people. They go to death not for the veil, not for love, but for glory. We have never seen a race quite like them, nor will we again. After months surrounded by the sons of Ares, I see these golds less as demons than falling angels, precarious, flaring so brilliantly across the sky before disappearing beyond the horizon. But how many more days like this can they afford? In the halls of our enemies, Roke will be reciting our names and the names of my friends. He who kills the reaper will have glory unending, bounty and renown. Young beasts with wide shoulders and angry eyes, straight from the halls of the corps' schools, will hunt me, ready to make their name. So too will the old grey legionnaires hunt me, those who see my rebellion as the great threat against mother society, against that union which they have loved and fought for their entire lives. And Obsidian will seek me, led by masters who promised them pinks in exchange for my head. They will hunt my friends. They will say Severo's name, and Mustangs, and Ragnar's because they do not yet know he is gone from us. They will hunt the Telemannuses, and Victra, Orion, and my howlers. But they cannot have them. Not today. Today, I take. I stand looking down at my gold allies. I am encased in militarized metal. 2.1 meters tall, 160 kilograms of death in a pulse armor suit of blood red. My sling blade is coiled around my right vambrace, just above my wrist. A grav fist on my left hand. Built for collisions in corridors today, not speed. Sefi is just as monstrous as I in her brother's armor. Hate in her eyes, seeing this host of enemies. My allies needed to see her, to see me, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Reaper is more alive than ever. Many of the Martians fell with me in the rain. Some look at me with hate, others with curiosity, and some, a very few, salute. But from most, there's a contempt that will never be washed away. That's why I brought Sefi. Absent love, fear, will do nicely in a pinch. Upon hearing news that Roke's fleet has begun its journey from Europa, I make my farewell to Romulus and his coterie of pleaters who helped devise our battle plan. Romulus's handshake is firm. Respect between us, but no love. In the hangar I say goodbye to Mustang and the Telemannuses. The floor vibrates as shuttles ferry the hundreds of peerless back to their ships. It seems like we're always saying farewell, I say to Kavax, after he says his goodbyes to Mustang, lifting her up easy as he might a little doll, and kissing her head. Farewell? It is not farewell. He rumbles with a toothy grin. Win today.
and it becomes just a long hello. Much life left for the both of us, I think. I don't know how to thank you, I say. What for? Kavax asks, confused as per usual. The kindness. I don't know how else to say it. For watching over my friends when I'm not even one of you. One of us? His ruddy face smirks. A fool. You speak like a fool. My boy made you one of us. He looks across the hangar where Mustang speaks with one of Lorne's daughters-in-law near a transport. She makes you one of us. It's all I can do to keep the tears from my eyes. And if we damn all that, I say you're one of us. So one of us you are. He lets Sophocles down from his shoulder perch to lope onto the floor. Circling, the fox jumps up onto my leg to dig something out of a joint in my armor. A jelly bean. Thraxa puts a finger to her lips behind her father. The big man's eyes light up. What fresh deliciousness is this, Sophocles? Oh, your favorite kind, watermelon. The fox returns, jumping up onto his shoulder. See, you have his benediction as well. Thank you, Sophocles, I say, reaching to scratch him behind the ears. Kavax slams me into a hug before departing. Take care, Reaper. He trundles up the ramp. Fishing? He booms down at me before he's gone ten meters. What? Do reds fish? I never have. There is a river through my estate on Mars. We will go, you and I, when this is done, and sit by the bank and toss our lines, and I will teach you how to tell a pike from a trout. I'll bring the whiskey, I say. He points a finger at me. Yes, and we will be drunk together. Yes. He disappears into the ship, throwing his arm around Thraxa and calling to his other daughters about a miracle he just witnessed. I think he might be the luckiest of us, I say, as Mustang comes up from behind me to watch the Telemannus ship depart. Is it ridiculous if I ask you to be careful? She asks. I promise not to do anything rash, I reply with a wink. I'll have the Valkyrie with me. I doubt anyone will want to tangle with us for long. She glances over my shoulder to where Sefi waits by my own shuttle, admiring the engines of other ships as they fly away. Mustang looks like she wants to say something, but is wrestling with how. You're not invincible. She touches the armor of my chest. Some of us might want you around after all of this. After all, what's the point of all this if you go and die on me? You hear? I hear. Do you? She looks up at me. I don't want to be left alone again. So come back. She wraps her knuckles on my chest and turns to go to her ship. Mustang. I chase after her and grab her arm, pulling her back toward me. Before she can say anything, 
I kiss her there, surrounded by metal and engine roar. Not some delicate kiss, but a hungry one, where I pull her head to mine and feel the woman beneath the weight of duty. Her body presses against me, and I feel the shudder of fear that this will be the last time. Our lips part, and I sink into her, rocking there, smelling her hair and gasping at the tightness in my chest. I'll see you soon. Chapter 44 The Lucky Ones I pace my bridge like a caged wolf, his meal just beyond the bars. The kindness of me hidden again behind the reaper's savage face. Virga, are the howlers in position? I ask. Behind and below me, the skeleton crew of blues chatter in their sterile pit, faces illuminated by hollow screens, subdermal implants pulsing as they sink with the ship. The captain, Pellas, a wayfish gentleman who was a former lieutenant aboard the Pax when I first took the ship, awaits my orders. Yes, sir, Virga says from her station. Forward elements of the enemy fleet will be within long-range guns in four minutes. The arrogant might of gold unfolds across the black of space, an unending sea of pale, white splinters. I'd give anything to be able to reach out and shatter them. My own capital ships cluster in three groups around our powerful dreadnoughts above the north pole of Io. Mustang and Romulus marshal their forces around the south. And together, 8,000 kilometers apart, we watch Rogue's fleet cross the void between Europa and Io, to bring us battle. Enemy cruisers at 10,000 kilometers, a blue in tones. There is no preamble for my fleet, no benediction or rite that we perform before battle like the golds. For all our rite, we seem so pale and simple compared with them. But there's a kinship here on my ship, one I saw in the engine rooms, in the gunnery stations, on the bridge. A dream that links us together, and makes us brave. Give me Orion, I say without turning. A hollow of the overweight, ornery blue ripples into life in front of me. She's half a hundred kilometers away in the heart of Persephone's howl, one of my other four dreadnoughts, sitting in a command chair synced with every ship captain in my fleet, save those of my strike force. Much of today relies upon her and the pirate fleet she's assembled in the months since last we saw one another, She's been raiding core shipping lines, drawing blues to her cause, enough to help the sons staff the ships we stole from the jackal with loyal men and women. Big fleet, Orion says of our enemy, impressed. I knew I never should have answered your call. I was rather enjoying being a pirate. I can tell, I say. Your stateroom's gaudy enough to make a silver blush. The Pax has been her home for the last year and a half. She took over my old quarters and filled it right up with the booty of her raids. Rugs from Venus, paintings from private gold collections. I found a Titian jammed behind a bookcase. What can I say? I like pretty things. Well, pull this off today, and I'll find you a parrot for your shoulder. How about that? Ah, Pellis told you I was looking for one. Good man, Pellis. The waifish captain tilts his head genteelly behind me. 
Damn hard to find parrots when you can't dock planetside anywhere. We found a hawk, a dove, an owl, but no parrot. If you make it a red one, I'll personally shoot a hole in Antonia Severus Julii's bridge. Red parrot it is, I say. Good, good. I suppose now I should go be about the battle. She laughs to herself and takes a tea from a valet on her bridge. Just want to say thank you, Darrow, for believing in me, for giving me this. After today, Blue will have no master. Good speed, boy. Good speed, Admiral. She vanishes. I glance back at the central sensor projection. The tactical readout floats before the windows as a to-scale globe of the Jupiter system. Four tiny inner moons orbit Jupiter more closely than the four huge Galilean moons. My eyes focus on Thebe, the outermost of them and closest to Io. It's a small mass, barely larger than Phobos. Long since mined for valuable minerals, and now the home of a military base that was blasted apart in the early days of the war. Sixty ticks till howler comms go black. Virga intones from her station as Victra enters the bridge wearing thick golden armor painted with a red sling blade on the chest and back. The hell are you doing here? I ask. You're here, she replies innocently. You're supposed to be on the shout of Mykos. This isn't the Mykos? She bites her lip. Well, I suppose I got lost. I'll just follow you around so that doesn't happen again. Prime. Severo sent you, didn't he? His heart's a black little thing, but it can break. I'm here to make sure it doesn't by keeping you nice and cosy. Oh, and I want to say hello to Roke. What about your sister? I ask. Roke first, then her. She elbows me. I can be a team player, too. Grinning, I turn back to the pit. Virga, give me a helmet patch to the howlers. Aye, sir. The comm in my ear crackles. I activate my armor's helmet. The transparent heads-up display shows me the tags on my crew, ranks, names, everything that's logged into the central ship register. I activate the comm hollow function, and a semi-translucent collage of my friends' faces appear over the sight of my ship's bridge. Sup, boss? Severo asks. His face is painted red with war paint, but bathed in blue light from his mech's HUD display. Need a goodbye kiss or something? Just checking to make sure you're all tucked in. Your kin could have carved us a bigger nook, Severo mutters. It's foot-to-face-to-fart-box in here. So you're saying Tactus would have liked it? Victor asks. She patched into the panel so I hear her voice in Link. I laugh. What didn't he like? Clothing, predominantly. Mustang replies from her own bridge. She wears her armor as well. Pure gold with a red lion roaring on her chest. And sobriety. Victra adds. This moon smells like royal shit, Clan mumbles from his own starshell mech. Worse than a dead horse. You're in a mech in vacuum, Holiday draws. I hear the clang and shouts of the people behind her in the hangar bay of my ship. She wears a huge blue handprint on her face, given to her by one of her obsidians. 
It's likely not the moon. Oh, then it must be me, Clown says. He sniffs. Oh-ho, it's me. I told you to shower, Pebble mutters. Howler Rule 17. Only pixies shower before battle, Severo says. I like my soldiers savage, stinky, and sexy. I'm proud of you, Clown. Thank you, sir. Thraka, put your safety on, Holiday shouts. Now! Sorry, bloody damn obsidians walking around with their fingers on the bloody damn triggers. Shit is terrifying. Why do we laugh and speak like children? Sefi booms over the comm, so loud my eardrums rattle. Bloody shit in the handbasket! Several yelps. There's a chorus of curses at Sefi's volume. Turn down your output volume! Clown snaps at the queen. I do not understand. Your output! What is output? The quiet is a bit of a misnomer, eh? Victor asks. Mustang snorts a laugh. Sefi, bend down. Holiday box. I can't reach. Bend down! Holiday's found Sefi in the hangar and helps her turn down her output volume. The Obsidian Queen sleeps with her new pulse fist every night, but she's a bit behind on her understanding of telecommunication equipment. So, like the big girl asked, was there a reason for this little tete-a-tete? Holiday says. Tradition, Holly, Severo says, mimicking her twang. Reaps a sentimental sap. He's probably going to give a speech. No speech, I say. My odd little family whines and catcalls. You're not going to admonish us to rage, rage against the dying of the light? Severo asks. But the joke feels strange, knowing it is what Roke would have said. My chest tightens again. I feel so much love for this band of misfits and oath-breakers. So much fear. I wish that I could protect them from this. Find some way to spare them the coming hell. Whatever happens, remember we're the lucky ones, I say. We get to make a difference today. But you're my family. So be brave. Protect each other. And come home. You too, boss, Severo says. Break the chains, Mustang says. Break the chains, my friends echo. Severo's face becomes a snarl as he booms out, Howlers, go! Oh! They howl like fools, cracking up. One by one, their images flicker away, and I'm left in the solitude of my helmet. I breathe and say a silent prayer to whoever is listening. Keep them safe. I let the helmet slither back into the neck of my armor. My blues watch me from their displays. A small coterie of red and gray marines stand by the door, waiting to escort me to the hangar. The strings of so many lives, from so many worlds, all intersecting here, at this moment around mine. How many will fray? How many will end this day? Victor smiles at me, and it seems I'm too lucky already for this day to end in joy. She should not be here, 
She should be across the void at the helm of an enemy battlecruiser. Yet she's here, with us, seeking the redemption she thought she could never have. Once more into the breach, she says. Once more, I reply. I address the crew. How do you all feel? Awkward silence. They exchange nervous glances, unsure of how to answer. Then a young blue woman with a bald head bursts up from her console. We're ready to kill some bloody damn golds. Sir. They laugh, tension broken. Anyone else? Victor booms. They roar in reply. Marines as young as eighteen and as old as lawn would be now slam their steel-heeled boots against the ground. Pass me through to the fleet, I command. Broadcast on an open frequency to Quicksilver. Make sure the golds can hear me so they know where to find me. Virga gives me a nod. I'm live. My friends, this is the Reaper. My voice echoes over the master com in all 112 capital ships in my fleet, in the thousands of rip wings, in the leechcraft and the engine rooms and the med bays, where doctors and newly appointed nurses walk through empty beds with crisp white sheets, waiting for the flood. Thirty-eight minutes from now, Quicksilver and the sons of Ares on Mars will hear it, and they'll boost the signal to the core. Whether we're alive at that time will depend on my dance with Roke. In mine, in space, in city and sky, we have lived our lives in fear. Fear of death, fear of pain. Today, fear only that we fail. We cannot. We stand upon the edge of darkness, holding the lone torch left to man, that torch will not go out. Not while I draw breath. Not while your hearts beat in your chests. Not while our ships yet have menace in them. Let others dream. Let others sing. We chosen few are the fire of our people. I beat my chest. We are not red. Not blue or gold or grey or obsidian. We are humanity. We are the tide. And today we reclaim the lives that have been stolen from us. We build the future we were promised. Guard your hearts. Guard your friends. Follow me through this evil night. And I promise you, morning waits on the other side. Until then, break the chains. I pull my razor from my arm and let it take the shape of my sling blade. All ships, prepare for battle. Chapter 45 The Battle of Ilium Red tribal drums played in the belly of one of my ships, the evening tide, beat through the speakers in a martial rendition of the forbidden song. A steady undulation of defiance as we roll toward the sword armada. I've never seen a fleet so large, not even when we stormed Mars. 
that was just two rival houses summoning allies. This is the conflict of peoples, and it is appropriately massive. Unfortunately, Roke and I studied under the same teachers. He knows the battles of Alexander, of the Han armies, and Trafalgar. He knows the greatest threat to an overwhelming power is miscommunication, chaos. So he does not overestimate the power of his force. He subdivides into twenty smaller mobile divisions, giving relative autonomy to each preta to create speed and flexibility. We face not one huge hammer, but a swarm of razors. It's a nightmare, Victor murmurs. I thought Roke would do this, but I still curse as I see it. In any space engagement, you must decide if you're killing enemy ships or capturing them. It seems he's intent on boarding, so we cannot slug it out with them and hope for the best. Nor can we lure his fleet into my trap from the first. They'll muscle through it and kill the howlers. Everything depends on the one advantage we do have, and it's not our ships. It is not our hundred thousand obsidians I have packed in leechcraft. It is the fact that Roke thinks he knows me, and so his entire strategy will be predicated on how I would behave. So I decide to overshoot his estimation of my insanity and show him how little he really understands the psychology of Reds. Today... I lead the Pax on a suicide mission into the heart of his fleet. But I don't begin the battle. Orion does, soaring forward ahead of me on the Persephone's howl with three quarters of my fleet. They cluster in spheres, the smallest corvettes still four hundred meters long, most are half-kilometer-long torch ships, some destroyers, and the four huge dreadnoughts. Long-range missiles slither out from the gold ships and from our own. Miniature computer-guided countermeasures are deployed. And then Roke's fleet flashes into motion, and the black space between the two fleets erupts with flak, missiles, and long-range railgun munitions. Billions of credits' worth of munitions spent in seconds. Orion shrinks the distance to Roke's fleet as Mustang and Romulus's ships hurtle toward the southern edge, per Io's pole, of Roke's formation, attempting to hit the only vulnerable place on a ship, the engines. But Roke's fleet is nimble, and ten squadrons divide from the rest, orientating themselves so their bristling broadsides face the bows of the Moon Lord ships coming up from the planet's south pole and rake them with railgun fire. A hundred thousand guns go off simultaneously. Metal shreds metal. Ships vomit oxygen and men. But ships are made to take a beating. Huge hulks of metal subdivided into thousands of interlocking, honeycombed compartments designed to isolate breaches and prevent ships from venting with one railgun shot. From these floating castles stream thousands of tiny one-man fighter craft, they swarm in small squadrons through the no-man's land between our fleet and Roke's. Some packed with miniature nukes meant for killing capital ships. 
hell divers and drill boys, trained night and day in sims by the sons of Ares, fly with squadrons of synced blues. They slash into the society's war-hardened pilots, led by rip-wings striped with gold. Romulus's force peels away from Mustangs to link with Orion, while Mustang continues toward the heart of the enemy formation, preparing the way for my thrust. We close to three hundred kilometers, and the mid-range railguns open up. Huge barrages of twenty-kilogram munitions hurtling through space at Mach 8. Flak shields plume over the entire gold formation. Closer to the ships, pulse shields throb iridescent blue as munitions crack into them and careen off into space. My strike force lingers behind the main battle. Soon it will become a war of boarding parties, leechcraft launching by the hundreds. Aggressive praetors will empty their ships of their marines and obsidians to claim enemy vessels, which they will then keep after the battle, per rules of naval law. Conservative praetors will hoard their men till the last, keeping them to repel boarding parties and use their ships as their main weapon of war. Orion's given the signal, my captain says. Set course for the Colossus. Engines to ramming speed. My ship rumbles under my feet. Pallas, the trigger's yours. Ignore torch ships. Destroyers, or larger, are the order of the day. The ship groans as we hurtle forward from the back of Orion's fleet. Escorts, keep tight. Match velocity. We pass the artillery ships, then the four-kilometer-long Persephone's howl, as we emerge out the center of Orion's front with the enemy, like a hidden spear, now driving into the fifty kilometers of no-man's land, aiming for the heart of the enemy. Orion's ships fire chaff, creating a corridor to protect our mad approach. Roke will see what I intend now, and his capital ships drift back from mine, inviting me to the center of his huge formation as they rain fire down on my strike force. Our shields flicker blue. Enemy munitions sneak through the chaff and punish us. We return fire, raking a destroyer as we pass with a full broadside. It loses power. Leechcraft pour out of it to try and slip through our chaff tunnel, but our escorts shred the small craft. Still, we're hit by the guns of a dozen ships. Red glows around our shields. They fail in stages, local generators shorting out on our starboard side. Instantly, our hull is punctured in seven places. The honeycomb network of pressurized doors activates, shutting the compromised levels of my ship off from the rest. I lose a torch ship. Half a click off bow, a full barrage of rail munitions rake her from stem to stern, fired by Antonia's dreadnought, the Pandora. Seems my sister is enjoying my ship, Victor says. Bodies erupt out of the torch ship's bridge, but Antonia continues to fire on the much smaller ship until the nuclear core of her engines implodes, pulsing white twice before devouring the ship's back half. The shockwave pushes our craft sideways. Our EMP and pulse shielding holds, lights flickering just once. Something huge slams into the ten-meter-thick bulkhead beyond the bridge. The wall bends inward to my right, the shape of a railgun munition stretching the metal inward like an alien baby. 
Our gunners rip apart the 1.5-kilometer destroyer that fired on us, loosing 80 of our railguns directly into our bridge. 200 men, gone. We're taking no prisoners at this stage. It's staggering the amount of violence the packs can deal out, and staggering the amount we're taking. Antonia dissects another part of my strike force. Hope of Tinos is down, my blue sensor officer says quietly. The cry of Thebes is going nuclear. Tell Tinos and Thebes' helmsman to punch negative 45 the midline and abandon ship, I snap. The ships obey and alter course to ram Antonia's flagship. She reverses her engines and my dying ships carry on harmlessly into space. One goes nuclear. We're outmatched and outgunned here in the heart of the enemy formation. Trapped. No escape. A sphere forming around us. I only have four torch ships left. Make that three. Multiple deck fires, an officer intones. Munitions detonations on deck 17. Engines 1 through 6 are down. 7 and 8 are at 40% capacity. The pax dies around me. Rogue's moonbreaker looms ahead, twice the length of my ship, three times the girth. A floating military dock city, eight kilometers long, with a huge crescent bow, like a shark with an open mouth swimming sideways. She retreats from us at the same pace we advance, making sure we cannot ram her as she punishes us with her superior weaponry. Rogue thought I would pull a carnus, try to slam into their capital ship with my own. That's now impossible. Our engines are nearly done. Our hull compromised. All forward guns target their railguns and missile launchers on their top deck. Carve us a shadow. I pull up a hologram of the ship and circle the area of fire with my fingers, directing the fire as Victor gives commands to the fighter groups which we've held onto till now. The rip wings scream out into space. The pax rotates to present her main gun banks to the Colossus to open a broadside. It doesn't matter what we do at this stage. We're a wolf pinned to the ground by a bear and it's smashing our legs, one by one, carving off our ears, our eyes, our teeth, but keeping our belly nice and ready for a raking. My ship shudders around me. Blues rip out of sync, vomiting in the pits as the data nerves in the ships, to which they're linked, die one by one. My helmsman, Arnas, has a seizure as the engines are shredded, the dancer of Ferran is gone, Captain Palos says. No escape pods. It was the skeleton crew, but still, forty die. Better than a thousand. Only two torch ships of my initial sixteen remain. They race around Antonius Pandora behind us, but that ship is a black, hulking monster. She shreds the fast movers till they're dead metal. And when escape pods launch from the quiet ships, she shoots them down. Victra watches the murder quietly, adding it to Antonia's debt. Roke is inviting us to launch our leechcraft, drawing the Colossus closer to my dead ship. 
a kilometer away now. I accept the invitation. Launch all leechcraft at the surface of the moonbreaker. I say. Now, fire the spit tubes. Hundreds of empty suits fire out the spit tubes as they would in an iron rain. Two hundred leechcraft launch from the four hangars of my ship, spewed out in a stream of ugly metal. Each could carry fifty men to pump into the guts of the moonbreaker. Controlled remotely by blue pilots on board Persephone's Howl, they race fast as they can to cross the dangerous space between the two capital ships. And they're wiped away before they make it half the distance, as Roke detonates a series of low-yield nuclear warheads. He guessed my move, and now my flight of ships is nothing but debris floating between the two vessels. Emergency sirens flash on the ceiling of my bridge. Our long-range sensors are down. Our guns smashed. Multiple deck breaches. Hold together, I murmur. Hold together, Pax. We're receiving a transmission, Virga says. Roke appears in the air before me. Darrow? He sees Victra, too. Victra? It is done. Your ship is dead in the water. Tell your fleet to surrender, and I will spare your lives. He thinks he can end this rebellion without putting us in the grave. The entitlement of it rankles me. But we both know he needs my body to show the world's if he destroys my ship and kills me, they'll never find me in the wreckage. I look at Victra. She spits on the ground in challenge. What is your answer? Roke demands. I bend my fingers crudely. Fuck you. Roke looks off screen. Legit Drusus, launch all leechcraft. Tell the Cloud Knight to bring me the Reaper. Dead or alive, just make sure he's recognizable. Chapter 46 Hell Diver I looked to the Blues at their station. Most were here when I took this ship, when I renamed her. They became pirates with Orion, rebels with me. You all heard him. I say, well done. You did the Pax proud. Now say goodbye, get your shuttle, and I'll see you soon. There's no shame in this. They salute, and Captain Pellis opens the hatches in the bottom of the pit. The blues begin their slide down the narrow shaft into the berth where there should be escape pods, but we replaced with heavily armored shuttles. My own escape pod is built into the side of the bridge. But Victra and I aren't escaping. Not today. Time to go, baby boy, Victra says. Now. I pat the doorframe of the bridge. Thank you, Pax, I say to the ship. One more friend lost to the cause. I follow Victra and the Marines in a sprint down the empty halls. Red lights pulse, sirens wail. Small thumps reverberate through the hull as we go. Rogue's leechcraft will be swarming the packs by now. Melting holes through her sides, 
and pumping in boarding parties of greys and obsidians, led by gold knights. Instead of me, they'll find an abandoned ship. A molten circle throbs on the hallway wall beside a grav lift as we board. I watch the orange deepen till it is the color of the sun. The drums still beat through the speakers. Thump, thump, thump. Victor leaves a mine behind as a present for the boarding party. We hear it detonate ten levels above us as the grav lift deposits us on level negative three in the auxiliary hangar. Here my true assault force waits. Thirty heavy assault shuttles with their ramps down. Blues performing flight checks in the cockpits. Orange mechanics working furiously to prime engines fill fuel tanks. Each ship is filled with a hundred Valkyrie in full smart armor. Reds and greys accompany them in equal number for special weapons tasks. The obsidians stomp their pulse axes and razors as I run past, a thunderous chanting of my name. I find Holiday in the center of the hangar, standing with Sefi and a coterie of Valkyrie, who will be my personal squad. With them, praying in a small group, are the hell divers I requested from Dancer. They are less than half the size of the obsidians. Ship is breached, I say to Holiday. She jerks her head at a squad of reds who rush off to cover our back. Distance is less than a click. No, Holiday says with an elated laugh. That close? I know, I reply excitedly. They want to get close so we can't shoot down their leechcraft. So now we give them a kiss, Victor says with a little purr for Holiday. And some tongue. Holiday bobs her cinder block head up and down. Then let's stop John. Sefi pulls a handful of dried mushrooms from a satchel. God's bread? she asks. You will see dragons. War's scary enough, darling, Victor says. Then, as an aside, I one time tripped on that shit with Cassius for a week on the thermic. She catches my look. Well, it was before I met you. And have you ever seen him with his shirt off? Don't tell Severo, by the way. Holiday and I abstain from the mushrooms as well. Automatic weapons fire rattles from a hall just beyond the hangar. The hour is here, I boom to the three thousand obsidian in the assault shuttles. Sharpen your axes. Remember your training. Here, Glaw Ragnar. Here, Glaw Ragnar, they roar. It means Ragnar lives. The Queen of the Valkyrie salutes her razor to me and begins the obsidian war chant. It spreads through the black armored assault craft, a horrible dread sound. This time, it is on my side. I've brought the Valkyrie to the heavens, and now I let them loose. Victor, are you prime? I ask, worried about Antonia being so near. Is my friend distracted by her sister? I'm gory damn splendid, baby boy, the tall woman says. Take care of that pretty little ass of yours. She slaps my butt before backpedaling, blowing me an obnoxious kiss and jogging to her shuttle. I'll be right behind. I'm left with the hell divers. They're smoke and burners, 
watching me with evil red eyes. First one through gets the bloody damn laurel, I say. Helmets on. Little needs to be said to such men. They nod their heads and grin. We depart. I fly thirty meters upward on my grav boots to land atop of one of the four claw drills we confiscated from the Platinum Mining Company in the inner asteroid belt. They stand in a row on the hangar deck, each fifty meters apart, like grasping hands, the cockpit where elbow would be, the dozen drill bits on the deck where fingers would reach. Each is retrofitted by Rolo to have thrusters on the back and thick plates of armor extends down the sides. I slide into the cockpit, enlarged for my frame and armor, and slip my hands into the digital control prism. Fire them up, I say. A familiar thrum of energy goes through the drill, vibrating the glass around me. I grin like a madman. Perhaps I am one but I knew I could not win this battle without altering the paradigm, and I knew Roke would never be driven into a trap or lured into an asteroid belt for fear of exposing his larger force to ambushes. So I had only one recourse, hide my ambush in a flaw of character. He always preached for me to step back, to find peace. Of course he thought he knew how to beat me, but I'm not fighting as the man he knew today, as a gold. I'm a bloody damn helldiver, with an army of giant, mildly psychotic women behind me, and a fleet of state-of-the-art warships crewed by pissed-off pirates, engineers, techs, and former slaves. And he thinks he knows how to fight me. I laugh as the claw drill shakes my seat, filling me with a dormant, crazed sort of power. An enemy boarding party breaches the hangar from the same grav lift we took. They stare up at the huge claw drills and evaporate as Victor's shuttle fires a railgun at them from point-blank range. Remember the words of our golden leader, I say to the helldivers. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. These are the better parts of humanity. Bloody damn slag, one says over the comm. I'll show her the better part of my humanity. Trail's hot, I order. They echo confirmation, one by one. Helmets up. Let's burn. I flip the rotation toggle on my claw drill clockwise. Beneath, the drill whirs. I plunge both hands forward in the control prism. Existence shakes. Teeth rattle. The metal deck sags under me. Molten metal peels back. I lurch ten meters down into the ship, carving through the deck in five seconds, and the one after that. I sink again, falling through the floor of the hangar bay completely, chewed metal around the cockpit. Then the next deck goes, then the next. Heat builds along the drill as I slam through more of the ship, leaving the Valkyrie behind. Slow, the drill jams. Slow, and you die and this speed is the pulse of my people, momentum flowing into more momentum. My claw drill is building up a hell of a pace, slamming through the decks, murdering metal with molten tungsten carbide teeth. I glimpse fractured sights of the other claw drills ripping through the heart of the ship as we fall through the dimly lit barracks. 
each drill glowing with heat and then slamming into the next deck. It is a glorious, horrible sight, going through a mess hall, through a water tank, then a hallway where a boarding party stumbles back from the debris and stares at the megalithic drills carving through the ship like the molten hands of some hilarious metal god. Don't slow! I roar, entire body convulsing in the seat. I'm out of control, going too fast, drill too hot. Then... nothing. I breach the belly of the packs. Silence of space grips me. Weightless. I float like a spear through water toward the huge colossus. Leechcraft, bound for the packs, streak past me, one close enough I can see the captain's wide eyes inside the cockpit. Another flies straight into my superheated drill's mouth, shredded in seconds. Men and debris cartwheel to the side. The other drills exit farther down the pax's belly, bursting into space, diving for the moonbreaker. Around us, the battle rages. Blue explosions, huge fields of flak. Mustangs group, racing along the edge of Roke's formations, exchanging punishing broadsides. Several still wait, hiding. I can feel the confusion in the enemy gunners. I'm in the center of their leechcraft assault teams. They can't fire. Their computers won't even register the vessel classification. It'll look like a hunk of debris shaped like an arm from the elbow down. I doubt the bridge will even know what it is without seeing it with their naked eye. Blast engines, I say. The engines of the retrofitted claw drill kick behind me and hurl me down at the black surface of the Colossus. Recognizing my threat, a ripwing sprays me with chain gun rounds. Thumb-sized bullets slam silently into the drill. The armor holds. Not so on the claw drill beside mine. When a railgun round fired from a five-meter gun along the top crest of the moonbreaker punches through the cockpit, murdering the helldiver in it, his ship shatters. One of his drill bits slams into my glass cockpit, cracking it. A dozen more rounds shred the leechcraft beside me. Roke might not know what the thirty-meter projectiles coming from my ship are, but he's willing to kill his own men to stop their approach. Gray metal blurs toward me. A railgun slug, fired from the Colossus, punches through three leechcraft in front of my ship, before striking the bottom of my claw drill, at the wrist. It tears up the length of the drill, erupts up through the floor of my cockpit, between my legs, inches from my balls, scraping along my chest, almost taking my head off at the jaw. I jerk back, and the slug slams into the metal support of the cockpit, shattering the glass and bending the bar outward like a melting plastic straw. I gasp, knocked half unconscious by the kinetic energy transference. White spots flash across my vision. I shake myself, trying to bring my senses back. I've spun off course. This rig isn't meant for steering. About to slam into the moonbreaker's deck. Instinct doesn't save me. My friends do. The claw drill's engines are slaved to the bank of blues back on Orion's ship. Someone reverses the thrusters at the last moment so I don't crash. I'm slammed back in my seat as the claw drill slows and then lands gently onto the surface of the Colossus. I jerk in my seat, 
laughing in fear. Bloody damn! I whoop to my distant saviour, whoever they are. Thank you! But the claw drill itself is all manual. Blues can't operate the digits any better than I can plot slingshots around a planet. My hands dance over the controls, flowing into my old mode of labor. I reactivate the drill, using my engines to push me down like a nail into the surface of the ship. Metal wheezes, bolts rattle, and I begin to gnaw through the top layer of armor, which they said no leechcraft could penetrate. Pressure hisses out around my drill. I ramp up the revolutions, my hands dancing through the controls, shifting the drill bits as they overheat, cycling through cooled units. Space disappears. I burrow into the warship, carving not in a straight line, but a tunnel toward the front of the ship. One deck, two decks, chewing through halls and barracks and generators and gas lines, it's hideous, and as savage a thing as I've ever done. I just pray I don't hit a munitions store. Men and women and debris fly out into space through the hole I've carved, like autumn leaves sucked from the various deck levels I penetrate. Bulkheads will seal off the wounds, but those caught between the bulkheads and the tunnel are good as dead. Three hundred meters into the ship, my claw drill breaks down. Drill bits spent and engine overheating. I reach down to pop my cockpit canopy to abandon the drill, but my hand slips on the lever. Blood coats it. I search my body frantically, but my armor isn't punctured. The blood isn't from me. It floats off the right cockpit wall, slick around the round railgun slug that pierced the three leechcraft to embed itself in the support beam of my claw drill. Bits of hair and a fragment of bone clump in the clotting blood. I leave my claw drill behind for the vacuum of the tunnel I carved. Air no longer gushing from the ship. It's calm now, the pressure already vented, and the emergency bulkheads closed to quarantine the compromised hull. The gravity generator in this section of the ship must have been hit. My hair floats in my helmet. I look up. At the end of the tunnel, where I penetrated the hull, is a little keyhole to the stars. A dead man drifts just beyond it, slowly spiraling. A shadow grips him as Antonia's flagship passes beyond, blocking the light reflected from Jupiter's surface. Like the man, I'm left in darkness, alone in the belly of the Colossus. My calm, a flood of war chatter. Victor is launching from our hangar. Orion and the Moon Lords are in flight, knocked off the poles of Io and bound for Jupiter. Mustang's flagship is now under assault by Roke's ship, as Antonia leads the rest of his fleet after the retreating Telemannuses and Ra's. Still, Severo waits. Thirty meters above me, something moves out from one of the levels I carved through, peering into the twenty-meter-wide tunnel. My helmet identifies an active weapon. I fly upward, activating my pulse shield as I go, only to find a young grey staring at me through the plastic faceplate of an emergency oxygen mask. He floats, one arm holding a ragged length of metal wall. 
blood coats him. Not his own. The body of one of his friends floats behind him. He's shaking. My drill must have gone through his entire platoon, and then space pulled their bodies out, leaving him alone here. The terror of me is reflected in his eyes. He raises his scorcher, and I react without thinking, putting my razor into the side of his heart. I make him a carcass. He dies wide-eyed and young, and he floats there upright, till I put my foot on his chest so I can pull my blade out. We drift away from each other, little droplets of blood dancing off my blade in the zero gravity. Then the gravity generators reboot and my feet clump to the floor. The blood splatters over them. His body flops to the ground. Light floods in behind me from the tunnel shaft. I pull myself away from the dead man and peer up into the tunnel to see a shuttle ripping in out of space. More follow. A whole cavalcade of assault craft led by Victra. Rip wings chase them, but mounted guns on the back of the assault craft spray high-energy, fist-sized rounds at them, shredding the rip wings. More will come. Hundreds more. We must move fast. Speed and aggression are only advantage here. Victor's transport slows dramatically in the tunnel beyond my level, just above the claw drill. Valkyrie pour out to join me. More transports unload on levels above. Holiday and several reds with battle armor move with the obsidians, carrying breaching equipment across the airless room, toward the bulkhead's door that seals us off from the rest of the ship. They slam the thermal drill into the metal. It begins glowing red. They deploy a pulse bubble over the metal hatch, so that when we breach, we don't activate more bulkheads. Breach green in fifteen, Holiday says. Victor stands to the side listening to enemy chatter. Response teams inbound. More than two thousand mixed units. She's also patched to the strategic command on Orion's ship, so she can gather battle data from the huge sensor arrays on the flagship. Looks like Roke launched more than fifteen thousand men at us in his leechcraft. Most will be in the packs by now, burrowed through to find me. Silly bastards. Roke gambled big. Bet wrong. And I've just brought three thousand crazed obsidian berserkers to a mostly empty warship. The poet is going to be pissed. Ten, Holiday says. Valkyrie! On me! I boom, lifting my hands in a triangle formation. The hundred obsidians step over the debris of the commissary and gather behind me, just as we trained them to do on the journey from Jupiter. Cephi's on my left hip, Victor's on my right, and Holiday behind. The superheated metal door sags. The reds and greys back away. All along the tunnel, on the ten levels I carved through, teams like this will be preparing to breach just like us. Two of the other claw drills hit home. Two thousand obsidians are breaching there as well. Greys, Reds and a scattering of sympathizer golds will lead them against the security forces who take trams and grav lifts to ferry themselves to the new battlefront inside the ship. This is going to be a firestorm. Close quarters combat. Smoke. Screams. The worst of war.
Full power to shields, I say in Nagal, facing the Valkyrie. They ripple iridescent as shields over their armor. Kill anything with a weapon. Harm nothing without one. Doesn't matter the color. Remember our target. Clear me a path. Herglar Ragnar. Herglar Ragnar, they roar, beating their chests, embracing the madness of war. Most will have taken their berserker fungus in the shuttlecraft. They'll feel no pain. They move foot to foot, eager for the sucker of battle. Victor vibrates next to me. I remember sitting with her in Mickey's lab as she told me how she loves the smell of battle. The old sweat in the gloves, the oil on the guns, the pulled muscles and shaking hands afterward. It's the honesty of it, I realize. That's what she loves. Battle never lies. Victor, stay at my side, I say. Pair up for the Hydra if we encounter golds. Nyarlatagog, Sefi says from behind me. Sinchirika. There is no pain, only joy, they chant, deep in the embrace of the god's bread. Sefi begins the war bellow, her voice higher than Ragnar's. Her two wing sisters join her, then their wing sisters, until dozens fill the calm with their song, giving me a sense of grandeur as my mind tells my body to flee. This is why the obsidians chant, not to sow terror, but to feel brave, to feel kinship instead of isolation and fear. Sweat drips down my spine. Fear is not real. Holiday deactivates her safety. Nyar la tagog. My razor goes rigid. Pulse weapon shudders and whines, priming. Body trembles, mouth full of ashes. Wear the mask, hide the man, feel nothing, see everything. Move and kill, move and kill. I am not a man. They are not men. The chanting swells. Sintirika. Fear is not real. If you're watching, Eo, it's time to close your eyes. The Reaper has come, and he's brought hell with him. Chapter 47 Hell Breach! Holiday roars. The door falls open. I rush into the pulse field surrounding the breach point. Everything condenses. Sights, sounds, the movement of my own body. All a haze. Holiday's scatter flash cackles through the two-meter opening in the bulkhead, frying any unshielded optic nerves on the other side. A secondary fusion grenade detonates. I jump through the hole into the smoke, going right. Victra comes with. Sefi goes left. Enemy fire hits us immediately. My shield cackles with the sound of hail hitting a tin roof. The end of the hall, a chaos of muzzle flashes and pulse fire. Superheated projectiles slice through the smoke. I fire my pulse fist, arm jerking spasmodically, ducking and moving so I don't block the entrance. Something slams into me. I stumble into the left wall, superheated particles screaming from my fist. My shield crackles with coil gun rounds that impact the energy barrier and fall flattened to the ground at my feet. More obsidian fill the hall behind me. They move so fast, 
It's a cacophony of sound. My tactical mind shoves the facts to the front. We're pinned down. Men die in the breach. Must move forward. Something whizzes past my head. It detonates behind at the entrance. Limbs and armor slop onto the floor. The helmet mutes the massive noise, saving my eardrums. I stumble forward, trying to get out of the kill zone. Another grenade lands among us, detonating after an obsidian dives upon it. More meat for the grinder. Must close the distance. Can't see anything in front of me. So much smoke. Fire. To hell with this. With a roar of frustration, I activate my grav boots and rocket down the narrow hall 80 kilometers an hour toward our assailants, firing as I go, flying a meter above the floor. Victor follows. It's a whole squad of twenty greys led by a gold legate in brilliant silver armor. I crash into the gold, razor outstretched, piercing his shield and spearing his brain. Crash to the ground, arm pinned under me. The grey response team separates from one another, keeping me at the center as I struggle to my feet. One shoots an iron charge into my back. Blue lightning spasms over my shields, killing them. I stab one grey through the neck with my razor. Two others fire into my chest. My armor dense with a dozen rounds. I stumble back. A heavy railgun with a boring round in the chamber levels at my head. I dip and dodge to the side, slipping on blood, going down. The gun goes off and opens a hole the size of a man's head in the floor. Then Victra smashes into the greys, bursting side to side with her grav boots, an angry wrecking ball, shattering bones between the walls and her heavily armoured body. Then the obsidians are among the greys, hacking them to pieces with their pulse axes. The greys are screaming, falling back around the corner where they have fire support. A grey's leg is slashed off by Sefi, and he stumbles, firing his weapon into the wall. She rips his head clean off from behind. This is horror. The smoke, the twitching bodies, and evaporation of blood as it boils out of charred wounds. A dying man's urine pools around my armor, hissing against the superheated barrel of my pulse fist as Victra helps me up. Thanks. A frightening bird helmet nods to me without expression. As the rest of my platoon files through the breach, I move forward to the corner around which several of the greys escaped. Another enemy response squad hastily sets up a heavy weapon mounted on a floating grav pod about thirty meters down near a grav lift entrance. When it fires, a quarter of the wall above me melts. I order Holiday to take my place at the corner with Trigg's ambifire. Four tins, one gold, I say. They've got a mounted QR-13. Slag em. She adjusts her rifle's multi-use barrel. Yes, sir. At our breach point, six Valkyrie are down. A huge woman's helmet peels back into her armor. She vomits blood. Half her torso smokes, molten armor still melting her flesh. She tries to stand, laughing at the pain. High on God's bread. But this is a new type of war to these women, with new injuries. Unable to support herself, the obsidian slumps against a sister who calls to Sefi. The young queen looks at the wounds and sees Victra shake her head. A quicker learner than the rest of them, Sefi knew well what this war would cost her people. 
but staring it in the face as something different altogether. She says something of home to the woman, something of the sky and the feathers at summer's twilight. I don't see the blade she slips into the base of the dying woman's skull until she pulls it back out. A hologram of Mustang's face flashes in the corner of my screen. I open the link. Darrow, have you breached? We're in. Double for my teams. Pressing to the bridge now. What's what? You need to hurry. My ship's under heavy fire. We're in. You're supposed to bug out. Head to Thebe. Roke used EMPs. Her voice is tense. Our shielding kept us up, but half my fleet's engines are squabbed. We're sitting dead, punching it out with him. Soon as your claw drill hit, the Colossus started shooting to kill. They're ripping us apart. We're outgunned hard. Main batteries are already at half strength. A sick feeling rises in my gut. Rogue can see us on the cameras in his ship. He knows the strength of my boarding party. It's only a matter of time till I reach the bridge. Soon he'll make an announcement over the comm for me to surrender or he'll kill her. Get to the gory damn bridge and put him down, register? Register. I turn to face my troops. We gotta move, I say. Victor, take squad command. I'm going digital. Sefi, range ahead. Holiday, any time, Victor says eagerly, pacing back and forth in the hall. The little lion needs our help. Come on, come on. Hold your tits, Holiday mutters, adjusting her rifle and toggling the corner shot feature. The barrel joints rotate, so it peeks around the wall and feeds the visual link directly into her bionic eye. Four quick bursts, tear out of the gun. Thirty rounds each from the ammo magazine in the back of her armor. Go! Victor and I burst around the corner, eating up meters as a grey tries to take his companion's place at the gun. I cut him down with my pulse fist, and Victor exchanges a four-move cravat set with the gold, before skewering him with a thrust to the chest. I finish him with a stab to the throat. Holiday has her commandos haul the QR-13 with us, only able to keep pace with our long legs because of our heavy armor. As we press for the bridge at a full sprint, other elements of my invasion force make for vital ship functions with a new, frantic speed. It's a lightning strike. Greys can't move with this speed because they rely on tactics, leapfrog maneuvers, corner shots, and sly tech. The obsidian are straight, battering rams. It's tempting to surge ahead, focus only on getting to the bridge. But I can't abandon my plan. My platoons need me to guide them using the battle map on my HUD. Speaking to red and grey platoon leaders, I coordinate on the run as Victor leads us through the maze of metal halls and ambushes. As the platoons are pinned down, I use my comm to maneuver other platoons through grav lifts and halls to flank entrenched security teams. It's an intricate dance. Not only are we racing against the destruction of Mustang's ship, but we're racing against the return of the leechcraft. Roke knows this, and less than three minutes into our insertion, the ship goes into full lockdown protocol. All grav lifts and trams and bulkheads sealed off, creating a honeycomb of obstacles throughout the ship. We can only advance fifty meters at a time. It's a devilish system, pins down boarding forces, a security teams with digital keys, 
run about the ship at ease, flanking and creating deadly kill boxes and crossfires that can shred even a boarding party like mine. There's no way to combat it. This is the grind of war. No matter the tech or the tactics, it all comes down to terrifying moments crouching chalk-mouthed at a corner as a friend lays down cover fire and you try not to trip over the high-tech gear that's wrapped around your body as you advance, head lowered, legs churning. It's not bravery. It's fear of shaming yourself in the eyes of your friends that keeps you moving. As we melt our way through bulkhead after bulkhead, Sefi's Valkyrie feeds the grinder. We're ambushed from every side. Some of the best warriors I've ever seen fall with smoking holes in the back of their helmets from grey marksmen. They melt under pulse fist fire. They fall to a gold knight flanked by seven obsidian till Victra, Sefi, and I put them down with razors. All this to reach the bridge. All this to reach a man who I could have reached out and touched the day before. If this is the cost of honour, give me a shameful murder. If I'd have stabbed Roke in the throat then, Valkyrie would not litter the ground now. Men and women of the Society Navy, this is the Reaper. Your ship has been boarded by the Sons of Ares, I hear my voice over the ship's general comm unit. One of my platoons has reached the communication mainframe in the back of the ship. Every boarding party in my fleet has copies of the speech Mustang and I recorded together to upload to boarded enemy vessels. It exhorts low colors to aid my units, to deactivate lockdown protocol if they can, to unlock doors manually if they cannot, and to storm the armories. Most of these men and women are veterans, it's unrealistic to expect the same sort of conversion as I had on the Pax's crew, but every little bit helps. The announcement works partially on the Colossus. It buys us precious time as we bypass several doors in seconds instead of the minutes it would take to melt through. Roke also turns off the artificial gravity, realizing by watching their tactics that my obsidians don't have zero-g experience. Society greys push their way through halls like seals underwater, taking their revenge on my floating obsidians, robbed of their closing speed, who've mauled so many of their friends. In the end, one of my teams reactivates the gravity. I have them decrease it to one-sixth Earth standard so that my force is not encumbered by the heavy armor we wear. It's a blessing on our lungs and legs. After cutting through a security team of greys, we finally reach the bridge, battered and bloody. I crouch, panting, and increase the oxygen circulation in my armor. Swimming in sweat, I activate a stim injection in my gear to keep me from feeling the gash in my bicep where a gold's razor caught me. The needle bites into my thigh. Reports come from my other platoons that we've lost contact with the enemy, which means they're being consolidated by rogue, redirected, likely to us. Back to the bridge door, I stare across the circular exposed antechamber to the bridge and remember how my instructor at the academy demonstrated the geometric deadliness of the space for anyone besieging a starburst bridge design like this. Three halls 
from three directions, lead to the circular room, including a grav lift in the center. It's indefensible, and Rogue's marines are coming. Rogue, darling, Victor calls up to the cameras in the ceiling as Holiday and her team set up the drill on the door. How I have pined for you since the garden. Are you there? She sighs. I'll just assume you are. Listen, I understand. You think we must be wroth with you. What with the murder of my mother, the execution of our friends, the bullets in the spine, the poison, and a year of torture for dear Reaper and I. But that's not so. We just want to put you in a box. Maybe several. Would you like that? It's very poetic. Holiday's remaining three commandos are attaching magnetic clamps to the door and mounting their thermal drills. She taps a few commands, and the eye of the drill begins to spin. Sefi returns from her scouting. Her helmet slithers back into her armor. Many enemies come from tunnel. She points to the middle hall. I killed their leader, but more golds follow. She didn't just kill the leader— she brought his head back. But she's limping, and her left arm bleeds. Oh, hell, that's flagellous, Victor says, regarding the head. He was in my schoolhouse. Very sweet fellow, actually. Wonderful cook. How many are coming, Seffy? Enough to give us a good death. Shit, shit, shit! Holiday punches the door behind me. It's too thick, isn't it? I ask. Yeah. She pulls her assault helmet off. Her mohawk is smashed to the side, tense face dripping with sweat. Doors not VDY specs like the rest of the ship. It's Ganymede Industries, custom, at least twice as thick. How long will it take to get through? I repeat. At full burn? Fourteen minutes? She guesses. Fourteen? Victra repeats. Maybe more. I turn, hissing the anger out. The women know as well as I that we don't have even five minutes. I hail Mustang's comms. No answer. Our ship must be dying. Bloody damn. Stay alive. Just stay alive. Why did I ever let her out of my sight? We charge them, Victor saying. Straight down the middle hall. They'll run like foxes from hounds. Yes, Sefi says. Finding a more kindred spirit in Victor than either might have thought prior to shedding blood together. I will follow you, daughter of the sun, to glory. Piss on glory, Holiday says. Let the drill do its work. And sit here to die like pixies, Victor asks. Before I can say a word, or do much of anything, there's a metallic wheeze behind me from the hydraulics in the wall as the door to the bridge opens. Chapter 48 Imperator We surge onto the bridge, expecting an ambush. Instead, it's calm. Clean, lights dimmed, just as Rogue prefers it. Beethoven streams from hidden speakers. Everyone is still at their stations. Wan faces illuminated by pale light. 
Two golds walk along the wide metal path that leads over the pits toward the front of the bridge, where Rogue stands orchestrating his battle before a thirty-meter-wide holographic projection. Ships dance among the sensors. Framed by fire, he cycles through images, issuing commands like a great conductor summoning the passion of an orchestra. His mind, a beautiful, terrible weapon. He is destroying our fleet. Mustang's Deja Thoris leaks flame from her oxygen stores as the Colossus and her three escort destroyers continue to hammer her with railguns. Men and debris float through space. This is just one part of the larger battle. The great host of his force, including Antonia, has pursued Romulus, Orion, and the Telemannuses toward Jupiter. To our left, twenty meters away, near the bridge's armory, a tactical squad of obsidian and greys secure their heavy weapons and listen intently to their gold commanders, preparing to defend their bridge against me. And just to our right, at the control panel by the now-open door, unseen and unnoticed by anyone else on the bridge, trembles a small pink in a white valet's uniform. The passcode display glows green under her hands, her thin figure is frail against the backdrop of war. But the woman's face is set defiantly, her finger on the door's release button, her mouth spreading into the most delightful little smile as she shuts the door behind us. All this in three seconds. The gold infantry commander sees us. Wolves, lovely as they are when they howl, kill best in silence. So I point to the left, and the obsidian surge toward the soldiers listening to the gold. He shouts for them to turn, but Sefi is already on his men before they can lift their weapons, dancing through them with her blades fluttering into faces and knees. Her Valkyries smash into the rest. Only two guns go off by the time the gold's body slides off the end of Sefi's razor and thumps to the floor. Greys fire at us from the other side of the pit. Holiday and her commandos pick them off. My helmet slithers away. Roke! I snarl as my men continue to kill. He's turned now from his battle to see me. All the nobility in him, all the cold-blooded imperator, melting away, leaving him a stunned, startled man. Victra and I stalk across the bridge, blues beneath us to every side, staring up at us in confusion and fear, even as their ship is engaged in battle. Silently, Rogue's two Praetorians come at us. Both wear black and purple armor adorned with the silver quarter moon of House Loon. We pair off on the metal bridge in the Hydra, Victra taking the right, me the left. My Praetorian is shorter than I, her helmet off, hair and tight bun, ready to proclaim the grand laurels of her family. My name is Felicia Ow. I faint a whip at her face. She brings her blade up, and Victor goes diagonal and impales her at the belly button. I finish her off with a neat decapitation. Bye, Felicia, Victor spits, turning to the last Praetorian, no substance these days. Are you of the same fiber? 
The man drops his razor and goes to his knees, saying something about surrender. Victor's about to cut his head off anyway when she glimpses me out of the corner of her eye. Grudgingly, she accepts his surrender, kicking him in the face, and hands him over to our obsidians who secure the bridge. You like the claw drills? Victor asks, pacing to Rogue's left, hungry for the kill. That's some poetic justice for you, you little backstabbing bitch. The Blues still watch on, unsure of what to do. The boarding party that came for us now fills our place in the corridor, outside the bridge. We left the drill, but it would take them ten minutes at least to breach the door. The calm on Roke's head buzzes with requests for orders. Squadrons he'd sent on attack runs now drift, overexposed. Their commanders, used to being guided by the invisible hand, now fight blind to the overall battle. It's the flaw in Roke's strategy. The individual initiative now creates chaos because the central intelligence has just gone silent. Roke, tell your fleet to stand down, I demand. I'm soaked with sweat, hamstring pulled, hand trembling with exhaustion. I take a heavy step forward, boot clumping on steel. Do it! He stares past me, at the pink who let us onto the bridge, voice thick with the betrayal of a lover instead of that of a master. Amethia, even you. The young woman is not ashamed by his sadness. She pulls her shoulders back, anchoring herself to the spot. She removes the rose badge on her collar that marks her the property of the gens Fabii and drops it to the ground. A tremor passes through my friend. You romantic sop! Victor laughs. I close the distance between myself and Roke, boots tracking blood over his grey steel deck. I point to the display behind him, where Mustang's ship is dying. I can see the stars glittering through holes in her hull. But still the destroyers punish her. They are orientated off the bow of the packs, thirty kilometers closer than her ship. Tell them to stop firing, I say, pointing my razor at him. His own is on his hip. He knows how little it means to draw it against me. Do it, now. No. That's Mustang, I say. She chose her fate. How many men did you send? I ask coldly. How many did you send to the packs to bring me back here? Fifteen thousand? How many are on those destroyers? I slide back the protective sheath over my data pad on my left forearm and summon the reactor diagnostics of the packs. It pulses red. We've reversed the coolant flow to let the reactor overheat. A slight increase in the output demand and it goes thermal. Tell them to cease fire, or their lives are forfeit. He lifts his gentle chin. According to my conscience, I can give no such order. He knows what it means. Then this is on both of us. His head snaps towards his comblue. 
Cyrus, tell the destroyers to take evasive action. Too late, Victor says, as I raise the output on the generator. It throbs an evil crimson on my datapad, washing us with its light. And on the hologram behind Rogue, the Pax begins to release gouts of blue flame. Frantically responding to their Imperator, the destroyers halt their barrage on Mustang and try to jet away, but a bright light implodes in the center of the Pax, enveloping the metal decks and crumpling the hull as energy spasms outward. The shockwave hits the destroyers and, crumpling their hulls, smashes them into one another. The Colossus shudders around us, and we're knocked through space as well, but her shielding holds. The Deja Thoris drifts, lights dark. I can only pray that Mustang is alive. I bite the inside of my cheek to make me focus. Why didn't you just use our guns? Roke says, shaken by the loss of his men, of his destroyers, at being so outmaneuvered. You could have crippled them. I'm saving these guns, I say. They won't save you. He turns back to me. My fleet has yours in flight. They will decimate the remainder and return here and take the Colossus back. Then we'll see how well you hold a bridge. Silly poet, haven't you wondered where Severo is? Victor asks. Don't tell me you lost track of him in all this. She nods to the screen where his fleet pursues the routed forces of the Moon Lords and Orion toward Jupiter. He's about to make his entry. When the battle began, the outermost of the inner four moons of Jupiter, Thebe, was in far rotation. But as the battle dragged on, her orbit brought her closer and closer, taking her across the path of my now-retreating navy, just under 20,000 kilometers from Io. Led by Antonia's flagship, Rogue's fleet pursued, as they should have, to complete the destruction of my forces. What they did not anticipate was that my ships had always planned to bring them to Thebe, the proverbial dead horse. While I negotiated with Romulus, Teams of Helldivers were melting caverns into the face of Baron Thebe. Now, as Rogue's battlecruisers and torchships passed the moon, Severo and six thousand soldiers in starshells pour out of the caverns, and out the other side of the moon pours two thousand leechcraft, packed with fifty thousand obsidians and forty thousand screaming reds. Railguns spray, flak deploys last minute, but my forces envelop the enemy, latching onto their hulls like a cloud of lunar gutter mosquitoes to burrow into their guts and claim the ships from the inside. Yet even my victory carries betrayal. Romulus had gold leechcraft of his own prepared to launch from the surface of the moon so that he could capture ships as well to balance my gains. But I need the ships more than he and my reds collapsed the mouth of their tunnels at the same time several launches. By the time he realizes the sabotage, my fleet will outnumber his. I could not lure you to an asteroid field, so I brought one to you, I say to Roke, as we watch the battle unfold. Well played, Roke whispers. 
But we both know the plan works only because I have a hundred thousand obsidian and he does not. At most, his entire fleet has ten thousand. Probably more like seven. Worse, how could he have known that I had so many, when every other Sons of Ares attack had rested on the backs of Reds? Battles are won months before they are fought. I never had enough ships to beat him. But now my ships will continue to flee, continue to run away from his guns as my men carve his battlecruisers apart from the inside. Slowly, his ships will become my ships and fire on the very vessels they're in formation with. You can't defend against that. He can vent the ships, but my men will have magnetic gear, breathing masks. He'll only kill his own. The day is lost, I say to the thin Imperator. But you can still save lives. Tell your fleet to stand down. He shakes his head. You're in a corner, poet, Victor says. There's no getting out. Time to do the right thing. I know it's been a while. And destroy what's left of my honor he asks quietly as a group of twenty men in star shells penetrate the rear hangar of a nearby destroyer. I think not. Honor? Victor sneers. What honor do you think you have? We were your friends, and you gave us up. Not just to be killed, but to be put in boxes, to be electrocuted, burned, tortured night and day for a year. Here, in armor, it's hard to imagine the blonde warrior to have ever been a victim. But in her eyes there's that special sadness that comes from seeing the void, from feeling cut away from the rest of humanity. Her voice is thick with emotion. We were your friends. I swore an oath to protect the society, Victra. The same oath you both swore the day we stood before our betters and took the scar upon our faces. To protect the civilization that brought order to man. Look upon what you've done instead. He eyes the Valkyrie behind us in disgust. You don't live in a bedtime story, whimpering little sod, she snaps. You think any of them care about you? Antonia? The Jackal? The Sovereign? No he says quietly. I have no such illusions. But it's not about them. It's not about me. Not every life is meant to be warm. Sometimes the cold is our duty, even if it pulls us from those we love. He looks pityingly at her. You'll never be what Darrow wants. You have to know that. You think I'm here for him? she asks. Rogue frowns. Then it's revenge. No, she says angrily. It's more than that. Who are you trying to fool? Rogue asks, jerking his head toward me. Him or yourself? The question catches Victor off guard. Rogue, think of your men, I say. How many more have to die? If you care so much for life... Tell yours to stop firing, Roke replies. 
tell them to fall in line and understand that life isn't free. It isn't without sacrifice. If all take what they want, how long will it be till there's nothing left? It breaks me to hear him say those words. My friend has always had his own way of things, his own tides that come in and out. It is not in his nature to hate, nor was it in mine. Our world's made us what we are, and all this pain we suffer is to fix the folly of those who came before, who shaped the world in their image and left us the ruin of their feast. Ships detonate in his irises, washing his pale face with furious light. All this, he whispers, feeling the end coming. Was she so lovely? Yes. She was like you, I say. A dreamer. He's too young to look so old. Were it not for the lines on his face and the world between us, it would seem only yesterday that he crouched before me as I shivered on the floor of the Mars castle after killing Julian, and he told me that when you're thrown in the deep, there's only one choice. Keep swimming or drown. I should have loved him more. I would have done anything to keep him at my side and show him the love he deserves. But life is the present and the future, not the past. It's as if we look at each other from distant shores, and the river between widens and roars and darkens till our faces are pale shards of the moon in the deep night. More ideas of the boys we were than the men we are. I see the resolve forming in his face, the determination pulling him away from this life. You don't have to die. I have lost the invincible armada, he says, stepping back, his hand tightening on his razor. Behind him, the display shows Severo's trap ruining the main body of his fleet. How can I go on? How can I bear this shame? I know shame. I watched my wife die, I say. Then I killed myself. Let them hang me to end it all, to escape the pain. I've felt that guilt every day since. This is not the way out. My heart breaks for who you were, he says, for that boy who watched his wife die. My heart broke in that garden. It breaks now, knowing all you suffered. But the only solace was my duty, and now that has been robbed from me. All the remittance I've attempted to make, gone. I love the society. I love my people. His voice softens. Can't you see that? I can. And you love yours. It's not judgment, not forgiveness that he gives me. 
It's just a smile. I cannot watch mine fade. I cannot watch it all burn. It won't. It will. Our age is ending. I feel the day shortening, the brief light dimming upon the kingdom of man. Roke. Let him do it, Victor says from behind me. He chose his fate. I hate her for being so cold, even now. How can she not see that beneath his deeds he's a good man? He's still our friend, despite what he's done to us. I'm sorry for what happened, Victor. Remember me fondly. I won't. He favors her with a sad smile as he strips the Imperator badge from his left shoulder and clutches it in his hand, drawing his strength from it. But then he tosses it to the ground. There's tears in his eyes as he strips away the other. I do not deserve these. But I shall have glory by losing this day. More than you by vile conquest shall attain. Roke, just listen to me. This is not the end. This is the beginning. We can repair what's broken. The world's need Roke Al Fabii. I hesitate. I need you. There is no place for me in your world. We were brothers but I would kill you, if only I had the power. I'm in a dream, unable to change the forces that move around me, to stop the sand from slipping through my fingers. I set this into motion, but didn't have the heart or strength or cunning or whatever the hell I needed to stop it. No matter what I do or say, Roke was lost to me the moment he discovered what I am. I step toward him, thinking I can take his razor from his hand without killing him, but he knows my intention, and he holds up his off-hand plaintively, as if to comfort me and beg me the mercy of letting him die as he lived. Be still. Night hangs upon mine eyes. He looks to me, eyes full with tears. Keep swimming, my friend, I tell him. With a gentle nod, he wraps his razor whip around his throat and stiffens his spine. I am Roke Al Fabii of the Gens Fabii. My ancestors walked upon Red Mars. They fell upon Old Earth. I have lost the day, but I have not lost myself. I will not be a prisoner. His eyes close. His hand trembles. I am the star in the night sky. I am the blade in the twilight. I am the god, the glory. His breath shudders out. He is afraid. I am the gold. And there, on the bridge of his invincible warship, as his famous fleet falls to ruin behind him. The poet of Deimos takes his own life. Somewhere the wind howls, 
and the darkness whispers that I'm running out of friends, running out of light. The blood slithers away from his body toward my boots, a shard of my own reflection trapped in its red fingers. Chapter 49 Colossus Victra is less shaken than I. She assumes command as I linger over Roke's corpse. His lifeless eyes stare at the ground. Blood thunders in my ears. Yet the war rages on. Victra's standing over the blue operations pit, face drawn in determination. Does anyone contest that this ship now belongs to the Rising? Not a sailor says a word. Good. Follow orders and you'll keep your post. If you can't follow orders, stand up now and you'll be a prisoner of war. If you say you can follow orders but don't, we shoot you in the head. Choose. Seven blues stand. Holiday escorts them out of the pit. Welcome to the Rising, Victor says to the remainders. The battle is far from won. Give me a direct link to Persephone's Howl and Reynard. Main screen. Belay that, I say. Victor, make the call on your datapad. I don't want to broadcast the fact that we've taken this ship just yet. Victor nods and punches her datapad several times. Orion and Daxo appear on the hollow. The dark woman speaks first. Victor, where is Darrow? Here, Victor says quickly. What's your status? Have you heard from Virginia? A third of the enemy fleet is boarded. Virginia is aboard an escape pod, about to be picked up by the Echo of Ismania. Severo's in the halls of their secondary flagship. Periodic reports. He's making headway. Telemannus and Ra are pinching. An even match, Daxo says. We'll need the Colossus to tilt the odds. My father and sisters have boarded the Pandora. They're striking for Antonia. The conversation feels a world away. Through my grief, I feel Sefi approach me. She kneels beside Rogue. This man was your friend, she says. I nod numbly. He is not gone. He is here. She touches her own heart. He is there. She points to the stars on the hollow. I look over at her, surprised by the deep current she reveals to me. The respect she gives Roke now doesn't heal my wounds, but it makes them feel less hollow. Let him see, she says, nodding to his eyes. The purest gold, they stare now at the ground. So I unscrew my gauntlet and close them with my bare fingers. Sefi smiles, and I gain my feet beside her. Pandora is moving lateral to Sector D6, Orion says of Antonia's ship. On the display, the Severus Julii ships are separating from the Sword Armada and firing at each other to try and skin away the leechcraft which festooned them. 
She's shifting power to engines and away from shields, and angling away from the engagement. Now, D7. She's abandoning them, Victor says, dumbfounded. The little shit is saving her own hide. The society preters must not believe what they're seeing. Even if I brought the Colossus to bear on them, the fleets would be evenly matched. The battle would last another twelve hours and exhaust both our fleets. Now it crumbles apart. Whether by cowardice or betrayal, I don't know, but Antonia just gave us the battle on a silver platter. She's left us a gap, Orion says. Her eyes go distant as she sinks with her ship captains and her own vessel, thrusting the huge capital ships into the region formerly occupied by Antonia, which brings them into the flank of the main enemy body. Do not let her escape, Victor snarls. But neither Daxo nor Orion can spare the ships to pursue Antonia. They're too busy taking advantage of her absence. We can catch her, Victor says to herself. Engines, prepare to give us sixty percent thrust. Escalate by ten percent over five. Helmsman, set our course for the Pandora. I make a quick assessment. Of our small battle at the rear of the war zone, we're the only ship still battle-ready. The rest are drifting rubble. But the Colossus has not yet made an action or a declaration that its bridge has been taken by the Rising, which means we have an opportunity. Belay that, I snap. What? Victor wheels on me. Darrow, we have to catch her. There's something else that needs doing. She'll escape, and we'll hunt her down. Not if she gets enough of a lead. We'll be tied here for hours. You promised me my sister. And I'll deliver. Think beyond yourself, I say. Bridge shields down. I ignore the wrathful woman's glare and walk past Rogue's body to peer into the blackness of space as the metal shielding beyond the glass viewports slides into the wall. In the far distance, ships flicker and flash against the marble backdrop of Jupiter. Io is beneath us, and far to our left. The city moon of Ganymede glows, large as a plum. Holiday. Recall all available infantry to protect the bridge and make safe the vessel. Sethi, make sure no one gets through that door. Helmsman, set course for Ganymede. Do not make any society ships aware the bridge is taken. Do I make myself clear? No broadcasts. The Blues follow my instructions. To Ganymede? Victor asks, eyeing her sister's ship. But Antonia, the battle... The battle is won. Your sister made sure of that. Then what are we doing? Our ship's engines throb, and we untangle ourselves from the wreckage of the packs and Mustang's devastated strike group. Winning the next war. Excuse me. I wipe blood from my armored kneecap onto my face and let my helmet slither over my head. The HUD display expands. I wait. And then, as expected, a call from Romulus comes. I let it flash on the left-hand side of my screen, altering my breathing so it seems I've been running. I accept the call, 
His face expands over the left eighth of my visor's vision. He's in a firefight, but my vision is as constricted as his. All I can see is his face in his helmet. Daru, where are you? In the halls, I say. I pant and crouch on a knee as if taking a respite. Pressing for the Colossus's bridge. You're not in yet? Broke-initiated lockdown protocol. It's thick going, I say. Dado, listen carefully. The Colossus has altered trajectory and is headed for Ganymede. The docks, I whisper intensely. He's going for the docks. Can any ships intercept? No, they're out of position. If Octavia can't win, she'll ruin us. Those docks are my people's future. You must take that bridge at all cost. I will. But Romulus, he has nukes on board. What if it's not just the docks he's going for? Romulus pales. Stop him, please. Your people are down there too. I'll do my best. Thank you, Darrow. And good luck. First cohort, on me. The connection dies. I remove my helmet. My men stare at me. They haven't heard the conversation, but they know what I'm doing now. You're going to destroy Romulus's dockyards around Ganymede, Victor says. Holy shit, Holiday mutters. Holy shit. I'm not destroying anything, I reply. I'm fighting my way through corridors, trying to reach the bridge. Roke is ordering this move as his last act of violence before I claim his command. Victor's eyes light up, but even she has reservations. If Romulus finds out, if he even suspects, he'll fire on our forces and everything we've won today goes to ash. And who will tell him? I ask. I look around the bridge. Who will tell him? I look to Holiday. If anyone sends a signal out, shoot them in the head. Wipe the video memory from the whole ship. If I ruin Ganymede's dockyards, the Rim won't be able to threaten us for fifty years. Romulus is an ally today, but I know he will threaten the core if the Rising succeeds. If I must give Rogue for this victory, if I must give the suns on these moons... I will take something in return. I look down. Red boot prints follow my path. I didn't even realize I'd stepped in Rogue's blood. We carve our way free of the debris formed by Mustang's fleet and mine and break away from Jupiter toward Ganymede, leaving her behind. I feel the pulsing desperation as the Moon Lords send their fastest craft to intercept us. We shoot them down. All the pride and hope of Romulus's people are in the rivets and assembly lines and electric shops of that dull grey ring of metal. All their promises of power and future independence are at my mercy. When I reach the sparkling gem that is Ganymede, I bring the Colossus parallel to the monument of industry they've built in orbit at her equator. The Valkyrie gather behind us at the viewport. Sefi staring in awe at the majesty and triumph of gold will.
two hundred kilometers of docks, hundreds of haulers and freighters, birthplace of the greatest ships in the Sol system, including the Colossus herself. Like any good monster of myth, the girl must eat her mother before being free to pursue her true destiny. That destiny is leading the assault on the core. Men built this? Sefi asks with quiet reverence. Many of her Valkyrie have fallen to a knee to watch in wonder. My people built it, I said. Reds. It took 250 years. It's how old the first dock there is, Victor says, shoulder to shoulder with me. Hundreds of escape pods flower out from her metal carapace. They know why we're here. They're evacuating the senior administrators, the overseers. I'm under no delusion. I know who will die when we fire. There's still going to be thousands of reds on there, Holiday says quietly to me. Oranges, blues, greys. He knows that, Victor says. Holiday doesn't leave my side. You sure you want to do this, sir? Want to? I ask hollowly. Since when has any of this been about what we want? I turn to the helmsman, about to give the order when Victra puts a hand on my shoulder. Share the load, darling. This one's on me. Her aureate voice rings clear and loud. Helmsman, open fire with all port batteries. Launch tubes 21 through 50 at their center line. Together, we stand shoulder to shoulder and watched the warship lay ruin to the defenseless dock. Sefi stares out in profound awe. She has watched the hollows of ship warfare, but her war until now has been narrow hulls and men and gunfire. This is the first time they see what a vessel of war can do, and for the first time I see her frightened. It's a crime that the marvel should die like this. No song, nothing but silence, and the unblinking gaze of the stars to herald the end of one of the great monuments of the Golden Age. And I hear, in the back of my mind, that age-old truth of darkness whispering to me. Death begets death begets death. The moment is sadder than I wanted. So I turn to Sefi as the dock continues to fall apart. The shattered bits drifting down to the moon where they will fall into the sea or upon the cities of Ganymede. The ship must be renamed, I say. I would like you to choose. Her face is stained with white light. Tear Morga, she says without hesitation. What's that mean? 
Holliday asks. I look back out the viewport as explosions ripple through the dock and her escape pods flare against the atmosphere of Ganymede. It means morning star. Part 4 Stars My son, my son, remember the chains when gold ruled with iron reins. We roared and roared and twisted and screamed for hours a veil of better dreams. Eo of Lycos Chapter 50 Thunder and Lightning The Sword Armada is shattered, more than half destroyed, a quarter seized by my ships, the remainder fled with Antonia, or in little ragged bands, rallying around the remaining Praetors to sprint for the core. I sent Thraxa and her sisters in fast-moving corvettes out under Victor's command to reel Antonia in and recapture Kavax, who was captured by Antonia's forces while attempting to board the Pandora. I asked Severo to go with Victor, thinking to keep the two of them together, but he went to her ship then returned a half-hour before it departed, wrathful and quiet, refusing to discuss whatever it was that transpired. For her part, Mustang is beside herself with worry for Kavax, though she makes a brave face. She'd lead the rescue mission herself if she weren't needed in the main fleet. We make repairs where we can to make the ships fit for travel. We scuttle the ships we can't save, and searched the naval debris for survivors. A tentative alliance exists between the Rising and the Moon Lords, one that will not last long. I've not slept since the battle two days ago. Neither, it seems, as Romulus. His eyes are dark with anger and exhaustion. He's lost an arm and a son on the day, and more, so much more. Neither one of us could risk meeting in person, so all we have left between us is this hollow conference. As promised, you have your independence, I say. And you have your ships, he replies. Marble columns stretch up behind him, carved with Ptolemaic effigies. He's on Ganymede, in the Hanging Palace, the heart of their civilization. But they will not be enough to defeat the core. The Ash Lord will be waiting for you. I hope so. I have plans for his master. Do you sail on Mars? Perhaps. He allows a thoughtful silence. There's one thing I find curious about the battle. Of all of the ships my men boarded, not one nuclear weapon over five megatons was found. Despite your claims. Despite your evidence. My men found plenty enough. I lie. Come aboard if you doubt me. It's hardly curious that they would store them on the Colossus. Roke would want to keep them under tight watch. We're only lucky that I managed to take the bridge when I did. Docks can be rebuilt. Lives cannot. Did they ever have them? Romulus asks. Would I risk the future of my people on a lie? I smile without humor.
Your moons are safe. You define your own future now, Romulus. Do not look the gift horse in the mouth. Indeed, he says, though he sees through the lie now, knows he was manipulated. But it is the lie he must sell to his own people if he wants peace. They cannot afford to go to war with me now, but their honor would demand it if they knew what I'd done. And if they went to war with me, I would likely win. I have more ships now. But they'd hurt me bad enough to ruin my real war against the Corps. Sir Romulus swallows my lies, and I swallow the guilt of leaving hundreds of millions in slavery and personally signing the death warrants of thousands of sons of Ares to Romulus's police. I gave them warning, but not all will escape. I would like your fleet to depart before end of day, Romulus says. It will take three days to search the debris for our survivors, I say. We will leave then. Very well. My ships will escort your fleet to the boundaries we agreed upon. When your flagship crosses into the asteroid belt, you may never return. If one ship under your command crosses that boundary, it will be war between us. I remember the terms. See that you do. Give my regards to the Corps. I'll certainly give yours to the sons of Ares you leave behind. He terminates the signal. We depart three days after my conference with Romulus, making additional repairs as we travel. Welders and repairmen dot hulls like benevolent barnacles. Though we lost more than twenty-five capital ships during the battle, we've gained over seventy more. It is one of the greatest military victories in modern history. But victories are less romantic when you're cleaning your friends off the floor. It's easy to be bold in the moment, because all you have is what you can process. See, smell, feel, taste. And that's a very small amount of what is. But afterward, when everything decompresses and uncoils bit by bit, and the horror of what you did and what happened to your friends hits you, it's overwhelming. That's the curse of this naval war. You fight, then spend months waiting, engaged only by the tedium of routine. Then you fight again. I've not yet told my men where we sail. They don't ask me themselves, but their officers do, and again I give them the same answer. Where we must. The core of my army is the sons of Ares, and they are experienced in hardship. They organize dances and gatherings and force jubilation down war-weary throats. It seems to take. Men and women whistle in the halls as we distance ourselves from Jupiter. They sew unit badges onto uniforms and paint star shells in wild colors. There's a vibrancy here, different from the cold precision of the Society Navy. Still, they keep mostly to their color, blending only when assigned to do so. It's not as harmonious as I thought it would be, but it's a start. I feel disconnected from it all, even as I smile and lead as best I know.
I killed ten men in the corridors. Killed another thirteen thousand of my own when we destroyed the docks. Their faces don't haunt me. But that feeling of dread is hard to lose. We have not yet been able to contact the sons of Ares. Communications are blacked out across all channels, which means Nerol succeeded in destroying the relays, as he promised. Gold and red are just as blind now. I give Roke the burial he would have wanted, not in the soil of some foreign moon, but in the sun. His casket is made of metal, a torpedo with a hatch through which Mustang and I slip his body. The Howlers smuggled him from the overflowing morgue so we could say goodbye to him in secret. With so many of our own dead, it would not do to see me honor an enemy so deeply. Few mourn the death of my friend. Roke, if he is remembered by his people, will forever be known as the man who lost the fleet. A modern Gaius Terentius Varro, the fool who let Hannibal encircle him at Kani. Or Alfred Jones, the American general who went mad and lost his Imperium's dreaded mech division in the conquering. To my people, he is just another gold who thought himself immortal till the Reaper showed him otherwise. It's a lonely thing carrying the body of someone dead and loved. Like a vase, you know, will never again hold flowers. I wish he believed as firmly in the afterlife as I once did, as Ragnar did. I'm not sure when I lost my faith. I don't think it's something that just happens. Maybe I've been worn down bit by bit, pretending to believe in the veil because it's easier than the alternative. I wish Roke would have thought he was going to a better world. But he died believing only in gold, and anything that believes only in itself cannot go happily into the night. When it is my turn to say goodbye, I stare at his face and see nothing but memories. I think of him on the bed, reading before the gala, before I stabbed him with the sedative. I see him in his suit, pleading with me to come along with him and Mustang to the opera in Aegea, saying how much I delight in the plight of Orpheus. I see him laughing by the fire at her estate after the Battle of Mars, his arms around me as he sobbed after I came home to House Mars when we were hardly more than boys. Now he is cold, eyes ringed with circles, all the promise of youth fled all the possibilities of family and children and joy and growing old and wise together are gone because of me. I'm reminded of Tactus now, and I feel tears coming. My friends, the Howlers in particular, do not much like that I've let Cassius come to the funeral, but I could not stand the idea of sending Roke to the sun without the Bologna kissing him farewell. His legs are chained, hands manacled behind his back with magnetic cuffs. I uncuff them so he can say goodbye properly, which he does, leaning to kiss Rogue farewell on the brow. Severo, pitiless even now, 
slams shut the metal lid after Cassius is done. Like Mustang, the little gold came for me, in case I needed him. He has no love for the man, no heart for someone who betrayed me and Victra. Loyalty is everything to him. And, in his mind, Roke had none. So too with Mustang. Roke betrayed her as readily as he betrayed me. He cost her a father, and though she can understand Augustus was not the best of men, he was her father nonetheless. My friends wait for me to say something. There's nothing I can say that will not anger them, so, as Mustang recommended, I spare them the indignity of having to listen to compliments about a man who signed their death warrants, and instead recite the most relevant lines of one of his old favorites. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done. Home art gone, and tame thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney-sweepers, come to dust. Paraspera ad astra, my golden friends whisper, even several. And with the press of a button, Roke disappears from our lives to begin his last journey to join Ragnar and generations of fallen warriors in the sun. I remain behind. The others leave. Mustang lingers with me, eyes following Cassius as he is escorted away. What are your plans for him? She asks me when we're left alone. I don't know, I say, angry she would ask that now. Darrow, are you all right? Fine. I just need to be alone right now. Okay. She doesn't leave me. Instead, she steps closer. It's not your fault. I said I want to be alone. It's not your fault. I look over at her, angry she won't leave. But when I see how gentle her eyes are, how open to me they are, I feel the tension in my ribs release. The tears come unbidden, streaking down my cheeks. It's not your fault, she says, pulling me close as I feel the first sob rattle my chest. She wraps her arms around my waist and puts her forehead into my chest. It's not your fault. Later that night, my friends and I have supper together in the stateroom I've inherited from Rogue. It's a quiet affair. Even Severa doesn't have much to say. He's been quiet since Victor left, something gnawing in the back of his mind. The trauma of the past few days weighs heavy on all of us. But these few men and women know where we travel, and it's that knowledge that adds even more weight than the regular soldier carries. Mustang wants to stay behind with me, but I don't want her to. I need time to think. So I quietly click the door shut behind her. I am alone. Not just at the table in my suite, but in my grief. 
My friends came to Roke's funeral for me, not him. Only Safi was kind about his passing, because over the course of our journey to Jupiter, she learned of Roke's prowess in battle, and so respected him in a pure way the others can't. Still, of my friends, only I loved Roke as much as he deserved in the end. The Imperator's stateroom still smells like Roke. I leaf through the old books on his shelves. A piece of blackened ship metal floats in a display case. Several other trophies hang on the wall. Gifts from the Sovereign, for heroism at the Battle of Daimos, and from the Arch-Governor of Mars, for the defense of Oriet society. Sophocles' Theban plays lies open on the bedside. I've not changed the page. I've not changed anything. As if by preserving the room, I can keep him alive. A spirit in amber. I lie down to sleep, but can only stare at the ceiling. So I rise and pour three fingers of scotch from one of his decanters and watch the holotube in the lounge. The web is down, thanks to the hacking war. Creates an eerie feeling being disconnected from the rest of humanity. So I search the old programs on the ship's computer, skimming through vids of space pirates, noble golden knights, obsidian bounty hunters, and a troubled violet musician on Venus, till I find a menu with recently played vids catalogued. The most recent dates to the night before the battle. My heart thumps heavily in my chest as I sort through the vids. I look over my shoulder like I'm going through someone else's journal. Some are Aegean renditions of Roque's favorite opera, Tristan and Isolde, but most are feeds from our time at the Institute. I sit there, my hand in the air, about to click on the feed, but instead I feel compelled to wait. I call Holiday on my calm. You up? Now I am. I need a favor. Don't you always? Twenty minutes later, Cassius, chained hand and foot, shuffles in from the hall to join me. He's escorted by Holiday and three sons. I excuse them, nodding my thanks to Holiday. I can take care of myself. Begging your pardon, sir, that's not exactly a fact. Holiday. We'll be right outside, sir. You can go to bed. Just chat if you need anything, sir. Ironclad discipline you have here, Cassius says awkwardly after she's left. He stands in my circular marble atrium, eyeing the sculptures. Roke always did dress up a place. Unfortunately, he's got the taste of a ninety-year-old orchestra first chair. Born three millennia late, wasn't he? I reply. I rather think he would have hated the toga of Rome. Distressing fashion trend, really. They made an effort to bring it back in my father's day, especially during drinking bouts and some of the breakfast clubs they had back then. I've seen the pictures. He shudders. Dreadful stuff. One day they'll say it about our high collars, I say, touching mine. 
he eyes the scotch in my hand. There's a social occasion. Not exactly. I lead him into the lounge. He's slow and loud in the forty-kilogram prisoner boots they've sealed his feet inside, but is still more at home in the room than I am. I pour him a scotch as he sits on the couch, still expecting some sort of trap. He raises his eyebrows at the glass. Really, Darrow? Poison isn't your style. It's a cache of Lagavulin, Lorne's gift to Roke after the Siege of Mars. Cassius grunts. I never was fond of irony. Whiskey, on the other hand, we never had a quarrel we couldn't solve. He looks through the whiskey. Fine stuff. Reminds me of my father, I say, listening to the soft hum of the air vents above. Not that the stuff he drank was good for anything more than cleaning gears and killing brain cells. How old were you when he died? Cassius asks. About six, I reckon. Six? He tilts his glass thoughtfully. My father wasn't a solitary drinker, but sometimes I'd find him on his favorite bench, near this eerie path on the spine of the Mons. He'd have a whiskey like this. Cassius chews the inside of his cheek. Those were my favorite moments with him. No one else around, just eagles coasting in the distance. He'd tell me what sort of trees were on the hillside. He loved trees. He'd ramble on about what grew where and why and what birds liked to roost there, especially in winter. Something about how they looked in the cold. I never really listened to him. Wish I had. He takes a drink. He'll find the spirit in the glass. The peat, the grapefruit on the tongue, the stone of Scotland. I can never taste anything but the smoke. Is that Castle Mars? Cassius asks, nodding to the hologram above Rogue's console. By Jove, it looks so small. Not even the size of the engines on a torch ship, I say. Boggles the mind, the exponential expectations of life. I laugh. I used to think rays were tall. Well, he smiles mischievously. If your metric is several. He chuckles before growing serious. I wanted to say thank you for inviting me to the funeral. That was surprisingly decent of you. You'd have done the same. Hmm. He's not sure of that. This was Roke's console? Yeah. I was going through his vids. He's rewatched most of these a dozen times. Not the strategies or the battles against other houses, but the quieter bits, you know. Have you watched them? He asks. I wanted to wait for you. He's struck by that, and suspicious of my hospitality. So I press play, and we fall back into the boys we were in the Institute. It's awkward at first, but soon the whiskey dispels that, and the laughs come easier. The silences stretch deeper. 
We watched the nights when our tribe cooked lamb in the northern gulch. When we scouted the highlands, listening to Quinn's stories by the campfire. We kissed that night, Cassius says, when Quinn finishes a story about her grandmother's fourth attempt to build a house in a mountain valley, a hundred kilometers from civilization, without an architect. She was climbing into her sleeping row. I told her I heard a noise. We investigated. When she found out I was just throwing rocks into the dark to get her alone, she knew what I wanted. That smile. He laughs. Those legs. The kind meant to be wrapped around someone. You know what I mean? He laughs. But the lady did protest. Put her hand in my face. Shoved me away. Well, she wasn't an easy one, I say. No, but she did wake me up near morning to give me a kiss or two. On her terms, of course. And that is the first time throwing stones has ever worked on a woman. You'd be surprised. There's moments I never knew existed. Roke and Cassius tried to catch fish together, only for Quinn to push Cassius in from behind. He takes a deep drink beside me now, as his younger self splashes in the water and tries to pull Quinn in. We watch private moments where Roke fell in love with Leah, where they scouted the highlands in the dark, their hands brushing innocently together as they stopped for water. Fitchner surveying them from a copse of trees, taking notes on his data pad. We watch the first time they sleep snuggled under the same blankets in the gate's keep, and as Roke takes her off to the highlands to steal his first kiss, only to hear boots on rocks, and see Antonia and Vixus emerge from the mist, eyes glowing with optics. They took Leah, and when Roke fought, threw him off a cliff. He broke his arm and was swept down the river. By the time he returned, after three days of walking, I was supposedly dead by the jackal's hand. Roke mourned for me, and visited the cairn I built atop Leah, only to find that wolves dug in and had stolen the body. He wept there by himself. Cassius grows somber witnessing this, reminding me of the distress on his face when he returned with Severo to discover what had happened to Leah and Roke, and perhaps feeling guilty for ever allying himself with Antonia. There's more videos, more little truths I discover, but the one viewed the most according to the holodeck was the time Cassius said he'd found two new brothers and offered us places as lancers to house Bologna. He looked so hopeful then, so happy to be alive. We all did, even I, despite what I felt inside. My betrayal feels all the more monstrous watching it from afar. I refill Cassius's tumbler. He's quiet under the glow of the hologram. Rokes riding his dappled grey mare away from us, looking pensively down at his reins. We killed him, he says after a moment. <laughs> 
It was our war. Was it? I ask. We didn't make this world, and we're not even fighting for ourselves. Neither was Roke. He was fighting for Octavia, for a society that won't even notice his sacrifice. They'll play politics with his death, blame him. He died for them, and he'll just be a punchline. Cassius feels the disgust I intended. That's his greatest fear, that no one will care that he goes. This noble idea of honor, of a good death. That was for the old world, not this one. How long do you think this goes on? He asks pensively. This war. Between us or everyone? Us. Till one heart beats no more. Isn't that what you said? You remembered. He grunts. And everyone? Until there are no colors. He laughs. Well, good. You've aimed low. I watch him tilt the liquor around in his glass. If Augustus did not put me with Julian, what do you think would have happened? Doesn't matter. Say it does. I don't know, he says sharply. He downs his whiskey and pours himself another, surprisingly agile in his cuffs. He considers the glass in irritation. You and I aren't like Roke of Virginia. We're not nuanced creatures. All you have is thunder. All I have, lightning. Remember that dumb shit we used to say when we would paint our faces and write about like idiots? It's the deep-spine truth. We can only obey what we are. Without a storm, you and I, we're just men. But give us this. Give us conflict. How we rattle and roar. He mocks his own grandiloquence, a dark irony staining his smile. You really think that's true? I ask. That it was stuck being one thing or another? You don't. Victor says that about herself. I shrug. I'm betting a hell of a lot that she's not. That we're not. Cassius leans forward and pours me a drink this time. You know, Lorne always talked about being trapped by himself, by the choice he made, till it felt like he wasn't living his own life. Like something was behind him, beating him on. Something to the sides, winnowing his path. In the end, all his love, all his kindness, family, it didn't matter. He died as he lived. Cassius sees more than just the doubt in my own theory. He knows I could talk about Mustang or Severo or Victra changing, being different, but he sees the undercurrent because in many ways his thread in life is the most like my own. You think you're going to die, he says. As Lorne used to say, 
The bill comes at the end, and the end is on its way. He watches me gently, his whiskey forgotten, the intimacy deeper than I intended. I've touched a part of his own mind. Maybe he, too, has felt like he's marching toward his own burial. I never thought about the weight on you, he says carefully. All that time among us? Years? You couldn't talk to anyone, could you? No. Too risky. Kind of a conversation killer. Hello, I'm a red spy. He doesn't laugh. You still can't. And that's what kills you. You're among your own people and you feel a stranger. There it is, I say, raising a glass. I hesitate, wondering how much to confide in him. Then whiskey talks for me. It's hard to talk to anyone. Everyone is so fragile. Severo with his father, with the weight of a people he hardly knows. Victor thinks she's wicked and keeps pretending like she just wants revenge, like she's full of poison. They think I know the path here, that I've had a vision of the future because of my wife. But I don't feel her like I used to. And Mustang... I stop awkwardly. Go on. What about her? Come on, man, you killed my brothers, I killed Fitchner, it's already awkward. I grimace at the weirdness of this little moment. She's always watching me, I say, judging, like she's keeping a tally of my worth, whether I'm fit. For what? For her, for this, I don't know. I felt like I proved myself on the ice, but it hasn't gone away. I shrug. It's the same for you, isn't it? Serving at the Sovereign's pleasure when Aja killed Quinn. Your mother's... expectations. Sitting here with the man who took two brothers from you. You can have Carnus. He must have been a treat at home. He was actually fond of me as a child, Cassia says. I know, hard to believe, but he was my champion. Included me in sports, took me on trips, taught me about girls, in his way. He was not so kind to Julian, though. I have an older brother. His name's Kieran. Is he alive? He's a mechanic with the sons. Got four kids. Wait. You're an uncle? Cassius says in surprise. Several times over. Kieran married Eo's sister. Did he? I was an uncle once. I was good at that. His eyes go distant, smile fading, and I know the suspicions that rest heavy on his soul. I'm tired of this war, Darrow. So am I. And if I could bring Julian back to you, I would. But this war is for him, or men like him, the decent. It's for the quiet and gentle who know how the world should be but can't shout louder than the bastards. Aren't you afraid you're going to break everything? <laughs>
and not be able to put it back together? He asks sincerely. Yes, I say, understanding myself better than I have for a long time. That's why I have Mustang. He stares at me for a long, odd moment before shaking his head and chuckling at himself, or me. I wish it was easier to hate you. There's a toast if I ever heard one. I raise my glass, and he his, and we drink in silence. But before he parts with me that night, I give him a hollow cube to watch in his cell. I apologize in advance for its contents, but it's something he needs to see. The irony is not lost on him. He'll watch it later in his cell, and he will weep and feel lonelier still. But the truth is never easy. Chapter 51 Pandora Hours after Cassius has left me, I'm woken from a restless dream by Severo. He calls my datapad with an urgent message. Victor has engaged Antonia in the belt. She requests reinforcements, and Severo's already got his gear and has Holiday mustering a strike team. Mustang, the Howlers, and I hitch a ride on the remaining Telemannus torch ship, the fastest left in the fleet. Sefi tried to come along, eager for more combat, but even after the victory at Io, my fleet rides on a razor's edge. Her leadership is needed to keep the Obsidians in line. She's a peacemaker, and the punchline of Severo's favorite new joke. What do you say when a seven-and-a-half-foot-tall woman walks into a room with a battle-axe and tongues on a hook? Absolutely nothing. Personally, I'm more worried that only a handful of strong personalities bind this alliance together. If I lose one, the whole thing might crumble. We go full burn, straining the ships to reach Victra, but an hour before we arrive at her coordinates amidst a thicket of sensor-disrupting asteroids, we receive a brief encoded message that is patented Julii. Bitch captured, Kavax free, victory mine. We shuttle over from the lean Telemannus torchship toward Victra's waiting fleet. Severo picks nervously at his pant leg. Victor's won a great victory. She set out in pursuit with twenty strike craft. Now she possesses nearly fifty black ships. Fast, nimble, expensive craft. Just the sort you'd expect of a trading family. None of the hulking behemoths, the Augustuses and the Bologna favor. All the black ships bear the weeping, spear-pierced son of the Julii family. Victor waits for us on the deck of her mother's old flagship, the Pandora. She's splendid and proud in a black uniform, with the Julii sun upon her right breast, a fiery orange line burning down the black pants, gold buttons sparkling. She's found her old earrings. Jade hangs from her ears. Her smile is broad and enigmatic. My goodman, welcome aboard the Pandora. Beside her stands Kavax, injured yet again, with a cast on his right arm and res flesh coating the right side of his face. The daughters who raced ahead to find him flank him now, 
and laugh as Kavak's bellows a hello to Mustang. She tries to maintain propriety as she rushes to him and tosses her arms around his neck. She kisses him once on his bald head. Mustang, he says happily. He pushes her back and lowers his head. Apologies, deepest apologies. I cannot stop being captured. Just a damsel in distress, Severa says. It seems the case, Kavax replies. Just promise me this time is the last time, Kavax, Mustang says. He does. And you're injured again. A scratch, just a scratch, my liege. Don't you know I've magic in my veins? I have someone who's been dying to see you, Mustang says, looking back up the ramp. She whistles, and inside the shuttle, Pebble lets Sophocles go. Claws clatter behind me, then under me, as he races through Severo's legs, almost knocking my friend down, to jump onto Kavax's chest. Kavax kisses the fox with open mouth. Victra cringes. Thought you were in trouble, Severo grunts up at her. I told you I had it under control, she says. How far behind is the rest of the fleet, Darrow? Two days. Mustang looks around. Where's Daxo? Daxo is dealing with rats on the upper decks. Still some hardcore peerless left. It's been a bitch digging them out, Victor says. There's barely any wreckage, I say. How did you do this? How? I am the true heir of House Julii, Victor says proudly. According to Mother's will and according to birth. Antonia's ships, legally my ships, were run by stool pigeons, paid allies. They contacted me, thought the whole fleet was right behind my little harrying party. They begged me to spare them from the big, bad reaper. And where are your sister's men now? I ask. I executed three and destroyed their ships as an example to the rest. The disloyal praetors which I could capture are rotting in cells. My loyalists and mother's friends have taken command. And will they follow us? Severo asks gruffly. They follow me, she says. That's not the same thing, I say. Obviously, they're my ships. She's one step closer to taking back her mother's empire, but the rest can only be done in peace. Still, it gives her an eerie independence, just like Roke had when he gained ships after the lion's reign. It will test her loyalty, a fact Severo does not seem entirely comfortable with. Mustang and I frown at one another. Property is a funny thing these days, Severo says. Tends to have opinions. Victor bristles at the challenge. Mustang inserts herself. I think Severo means to say, now that you have your revenge, do you still intend to come with us to the core? I don't have my revenge, Victor says. Antonia still breathes. And when she does not, Mustang asks. Victor shrugs. I'm not good with commitment. 
Severo's mood sours even more. Dozens of prisoners fill the ward's cells, most gold, some blue and grey, all high-ranking and loyal to Antonia. A canyon of enemies who glare out at me from the bars. I walk alone down the hall, enjoying the feeling of so many golds knowing I'm their captor. I find Antonia in the second-to-last cell. She sits against the bars of the cell that separates her from the adjacent one. Aside from a bruised cheek, she's as beautiful as ever. Mouth sensual, eyes smoldering behind thick eyelashes, as she broods under the brig's pale lights. Her willowy legs are folded under her, black-nailed hands picking at a blister on her big toe. I thought I heard the reaper swing, she says with a seductive little smile. Her eyes drift slowly up the length of me, eating every centimeter up. You've been downing your protein, haven't you, darling? All big again. Don't fret. I'll always remember you as a weeping little worm. You're the only bone riders left alive in the fleet, I say, looking at the cell adjacent hers. I want to know what the jackal's planning. I want to know his troop positions, his supply routes, his garrison strength. I want to know what information he has on the sons of Ares. I want to know what his plans are with the sovereign. Are they colluding? Is there tension? Is he making a move against her? I want to know how to beat him, and most of all, I want to know where the bloody damn nuclear weapons are. If you give me this, you live. If you do not, you die. Am I clear? She didn't flinch at the mention of the weapons, neither did the woman in the adjacent cell. Crystal clear, Antonia says. I'm more than willing to cooperate. You're a survivor, Antonia, but I wasn't just talking to you. I slam my hand on the bars of the cell next to hers, where a shorter, dark-faced gold sits watching me with raw eyes. Her face is sharp like her tongue used to be, hair curly and more golden than last time I saw her, artificially lightened, same with her eyes. I'm talking to you too, Thistle. Whichever of you gives us more information gets to live. Devilish ultimatum, Antonia applauds from the ground. And you call yourself a red. I think you are more at home with us than you are with them. Isn't that right? She laughs. It is, isn't it? You have an hour to think it over. I walk away from them, letting them stew in it. Darrow, Thistle calls after me. Tell Savro I'm sorry. Darrow, please. I turn and walk back to her slowly. You dyed your hair, I say. Little Bronzy just wanted to fit in. Antonia purrs, stretching her long legs. She's more than a head and a half taller than Thistle. Don't blame the runt. Unrealistic expectations. Thistle stares out at me, hands clutching the bars. I'm sorry, Darrow. I didn't know it would go so far. I couldn't have- Yes, you did. You're not an idiot. 
and don't be pathetic and claim to be one. I understand how you could do it to me, I say slowly. But Severo was supposed to be there. So were the Howlers. She looks at the ground, unable to meet my gaze. How could you do that to him? To them? She has no answer. I touch her hair with my hand. We liked you the way you were. Chapter 52 Teeth I joined Severo, Mustang, and Victor in the Briggs monitoring room. Two techs leaned back in ergonomic chairs, several dozen hollows floating around them at once. They said anything yet? I ask. Not yet, Victor answers. But pot's stirred and I've cranked the heat. Severo's watching Thistle on the hollow display. Did you want to talk with Thistle? I ask. Who? He asks, raising his eyebrows. Never heard of her. I can tell he's wounded by seeing her again, wounded even more because he tells himself to be hard. But this betrayal by one of his own howlers cuts at his core. Still, he plays it off. Not sure if it's for Victor, for me, or for himself. Probably all three. After several minutes, Antonia and Thistle drip with sweat. Per my recommendation, we've made the cells 40 degrees Celsius to amp up their irritability. Gravity has jacked up a fraction, too, just outside the realm of perception. So far, Thistle's done nothing but weep, and Antonia has been touching the bruise on her cheek to see if any lasting damage has been done to her face. You need to come up with a plan, Antonia says idly through the bars. What? Plan, Thistle asks from the far corner of her own cell. They're going to kill us, even if we give them information. You weeping little cow. Pick your chin up. You're embarrassing your scar. Your house Mars, aren't you? They know we're listening, Severo says. At least Antonia does. Sometimes it doesn't matter, Mustang replies. Highly intelligent prisoners often play games with their captors. It's the self-confidence that can make them even more vulnerable to psychological manipulation because they think they're still in control. You know this from your own extensive personal experience being tortured? Victor asks. Do tell me about that. Quiet, I say, turning up the hollow's volume. I'm going to tell them everything, Thistle saying to Antonia. I don't give a shit about this anymore. Everything? Antonia asks. You don't know everything. I know enough. I know more, Antonia says. Who would ever trust you? Thistle snaps. Matricidal psychopath. If you even knew what people really thought about you. Oh, darling, you can't really be so stupid. Antonia sighs sympathetically. You are so sad to watch. What do you mean? Use your head, you little simpleton. Just try, please. Slag, you bitch. I'm sorry, Thistle, Antonia says, 
arching her back against the bars. It's the heat. Oh, syphilitic madness. Thistle mutters, now pacing, arms wrapped around herself. How? Base. It's in the upbringing, really. I consider pulling Thistle out, extracting the information she's willing to give. Could be a ruse, Mustang says. Something Antonia designed in case they were captured. Or maybe my brother's play. That'd be like him, to sow misinformation. Especially if they just let themselves be captured. Let themselves be captured? Victor asks. There's over fifty dead girls in the morgues of this ship who would disagree with that statement. She's right, Severus says. Let it play. Might make Antonia open up more when we get her in a room. Antonia closes her eyes, resting her head against the bars, knowing Thistle will ask what she meant by use her head. And sure enough, Thistle does. What did you mean when you said, if I tell them everything, I'd have no more use? Antonia looks back at her through the bars. Darling, you really haven't thought this through. I'm dead. You said it yourself. I can try to deny it, but... My sister makes me look like the village cat. I shot her in the spine and played acid drip with her back for almost a year. She's going to peel me like an onion. Darrow wouldn't let her do that. He's red. We're just devils in crowns to him. He wouldn't do that. I know a goblin that would. His name's Severo. Is it? Antonia couldn't care less. Point's the same. I'm dead. You might have a chance, but they only need one of us alive for information. The question you have to ask yourself is, if you tell them everything, will they still keep you alive? You need a strategy. Something to hold back to barter incrementally. Thistle approaches the bars that separate the women. You're not fooling me. Her voice becomes brave. But you know what? You are done. Darrow is going to win, and maybe he should. And you know what? I'm going to help him. Thistle looks up at the camera in the corner of her cell, taking her eyes off Antonia. I'll tell you what he's planning, Darrow. Let me make... Get her out, Mustang says. Get her out now. No, Victor murmurs beside me, seeing what Mustang sees. Severo and I look at the women in confusion, but Victor's already halfway to the door. Open cell 31, she shouts to the text before disappearing into the hall. Realizing what's happening, Severo and I rush after her, knocking over a green who's adjusting one of the hollow screens. Mustang follows. We break into the hallway and run to the brig security door. Victor's hammering on the door, shouting to be let in. The door buzzes, and we fly in behind her, past the confused security guards who are gathering their gear, and into the cell block. Prisoners are shouting, but even then I hear the wet thwop, 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 before we make it to Antonia's cell and see her hunched over thistle, her hands through the bar that separate their cells, drenched in blood, fingers gripping thistle's curly hair. 
The shattered remnants of the top of the howler's skull bend around the bar as Antonia jerks Thistle's head toward her and against the bars between them one last time. Victor shoves open the magnetized cell door. Antonia rises, grisly deed finished, bloody hands held in the air innocently as she bestows a little smirk upon her older sister. Careful, she taunts. Careful, Vicky. You need me. I'm the only one left with information to sell. Unless you want to stumble into the jackals more, you'll... Victra breaks Antonia's face. I can hear the brittle snap of bone from ten meters away. Antonia reels back, trying to escape. Victra pins her to the wall and beats her, machine-like and eerily quiet, elbow pumping back, driving from her legs, just as they teach us. Antonia's fingers claw at Victra's muscled arms, then go limp as the sound becomes wet and muddy. Victor doesn't stop, and I don't stop her, because I hate Antonia, and that dark little part of me wants her to feel the pain. Severo shoves past me and launches himself at Victor, pinning her right arm back and choking her with his left. He sweeps her legs and takes her backward to the floor, locking his legs around her waist, immobilizing her. Released from Victor's hold, Antonia flops sideways. Mustang lunges forward to keep her head from cracking on the sharp edge of the welded metal bed pallet. I kneel and reach through the bars to feel Thistle's pulse, though I don't know why I bother. Her head is caved in. I stare at it, wondering why I'm not horrified at the scene. Some part of me has died. But when did it die? Why did I not notice? Mustang is shouting for a yellow, the guards picking up the call. I shake myself. Severo's letting go of Victra. She coughs from where he restrained her, shoving him away angrily. Mustang bends over Antonia, who's now snoring through her shattered nose. Face a ruin, bits of teeth littering mashed lips. Except for her hair and sigils, you can't even tell she's a gold. Victor leaves the room without looking at her, pushing through the grey guards so hard two of them fall down. Victor! I call after her like there's something to say. She turns back to me, eyes red, not with rage, but with a fathomless sadness. Knuckles frayed open. I used to braid her hair she says forcefully. I don't know why she's like this. Why I am. Half of one of her sister's broken teeth protrudes from the meat between her middle and ring knuckle. She pulls the tooth from her knuckles and holds it up to the light like a child discovering sea glass on the beach before shivering in horror and letting it clatter to the steel deck. She looks past me to Severo. Told you. Later that day, as the doctors tend to Antonia, the sons go through Thistle's personal effects in her suite aboard the torch ship, the Typhon. Under a false bottom in the cabinet, they find the stinking, cured fur of a wolf.
Severo chokes up when Screwface brings it to him. This'll cut her down, Clown says as the remaining original howlers loiter around the room. Mustang gives them space, watching from the wall. Pebble, Screwface, and Severo are with us. When Antonia was crucified by the jackal at the Institute, this'll cut her down. I'd forgotten, I say from her desk. Severo snorts. What a world! Remember when you had her fight Leah when Leah couldn't skin the sheep? Trying to make her tough, Pebble says with a little laugh. Severo laughs too. Why are you laughing? Clown asks. You were still off eating mushrooms and howling at the moon back then. I was watching, Severo says. I was always watching. That's creepy, boss, Screwface says drolly. What were you doing while you were watching? Wanking in the bushes, obviously, I say. Severo grunts. Only when everyone was asleep. Gross. Pebble wrinkles her nose and tucks the howler cloak in her pack. Howl on, little thistle. The kindness in her eyes is almost too much to bear. There's no recrimination, no anger, just the absence of a friend. Reminds me how much I love these people. Clown and Pebble leave hand in hand, Screwface taunting them all the while. I smile at the sight as Severo and I linger behind. Mustang still hasn't moved from her place at the wall. What did Victra mean when she said, told you? I ask. Severo glances at Mustang. Ah, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. He acts like he's going to leave, but hesitates. She called it off. It? I ask. Us. Oh. I'm sorry, Severo, Mustang says. She's going through a lot right now. Yeah. He leans against the wall. Yeah, it's my fault, Prolly. Told her, he makes a face. I told her I loved her before the battle. You know what she said? Thank you, Mustang guesses. He flinches. No, she just said I was an idiot. Maybe she's right. Maybe I just read too much into it. Just got excited, you know. He looks at the ground, thinking. Mustang nods at me to say something. Severo, you're a lot of things. You're smelly, you're small, your tattoo taste is questionable, your pornographic proclivities are... Uh, eccentric. And you've got really weird toenails. He swivels to look at me. Weird? They're really long, mate. Like... You should trim them. Nah, they're good for hanging on to things. I squint at him, not sure if he's joking, and carry on as best I can. I'm just saying you're a lot of things, Boyo, but you are not an idiot. He makes no sign of having heard me. 
She thinks she had poison in her veins. That's what she was talking about in the brig. Said she'd just ruin everything, so better just to cut it off. She's just scared, Mustang says, especially after what just happened. You mean what's happening? He sits against the wall and leans his head back against it. Starting to feel like a prophecy. Death begets death begets death. We won at Jupiter, I say. We can win every battle and still lose the war, several mutters. The jackal's got something up his sleeve and Octavius only wounded. Scepter Armada is bigger than the Sword Armada, and they'll pull the fleets from Venus and Mercury. We'll be outnumbered three to one. People are gonna die. Probably most of the people we know. Mustang smiles. Unless we change the paradigm. Chapter 53 Silence after Mustang details the broad strokes of her plan to us, and we finish laughing, analyzing and dissecting its flaws, she leaves us to ruminate on it and departs to rejoin the rest of the fleet with the Telemannuses. We stay behind with Victra and the Howlers to interrogate Antonia and oversee ship repair. The beautiful Antonia is a thing of the past. The damage she suffered was superficially catastrophic. Left orbital bone pulverized. Nose flattened, crushed so brutally they had to pull it out of her nasal cavity with forceps. Mouth so swollen it makes a hissing sound as air goes between her shattered front teeth. Whiplash and severe concussion. The ship doctors thought she was in a ship crash until they found the imprint of House Jupiter's lightning crest in several places on her face. Marked by justice, I say. Zebra rolls his eyes. What? I can be funny. Keep practicing. When I question Antonia, her left eye is a swollen black mass. The right peers out at me in rage, but she cooperates. Perhaps now because she thinks threats against her carry a bit of merit and that her sister is just waiting to finish the job. According to her, the Jackal's last communique stated he was making preparations for our attack on Mars. He gathers his fleet around retaken Phobos and recalls society ships from the Cannes and other naval depots. Similarly, there's an exodus of gold, silver, and copper ships away from Mars to Luna or Venus, which have become refugee centres for disenfranchised patricians. Like London during the First French Revolution, or New Zealand after the Third World War, when the continents brimmed with radioactivity. The problem with Antonia's information is that it's difficult to verify. Impossible, really, with long-range and intraplanetary communication essentially back to the Stone Age. For all we know, the Jackal might have prepared contingency information for her to give us, in case she was captured under duress. If she uses that information, and we act on it, we could easily be falling into a trap. Thistle would have been crucial to our understanding of information. Antonia's murder of her was horrific, but tactically very efficient.
Holiday joins me on the bridge of the Pandora as I try to make that contact. I sit cross-legged on the forward observation post, attempting to log into Quicksilver's digital data drop again. It's late night, ship time. Lights dimmed. Skeleton crew of blues manning the pit below, guiding us back to the rendezvous with the main fleet. Shadowy asteroids rotate in the distance. Holiday plops down beside me. Fortify thyself, she says, handing me a tin coffee mug. That's nice of you, I say in surprise. Can't sleep either. Nah, hate ships, actually. Don't laugh. That's got to be inconvenient for a legionnaire. Tell me about it. Half of being a soldier is being able to sleep anywhere. And the other half? Being able to shit anywhere. Wait, and to accept stupid orders without going manic. She taps the deck. It's the engine hum. Reminds me of wasps. She wiggles off her boots. You mind? Go on. I sip the coffee. This is whiskey. You catch on quick. She winks at me boyishly. She nods to the datapad in my hands. Still nothing? The asteroids are bad enough, but society is jamming everything they can. Well, Quicksilver gave them a run for it. We sit quietly together. Hers isn't a naturally soothing presence, but it's the easy one of a woman raised in the agriculture backcountry, where your reputation's only as good as your word and your hunting dog. We're not alike in many ways, but there's a chip on her shoulder, I understand. Sorry about your friend, she says. Which one? Both. You know the girl long? Since school. She was a bit nasty, but loyal. Till she wasn't, she says. I shrug in reply. Julie is rattled. She talked to you, I ask. She laughs lightly. Not a chance. She pops a laced burner into her mouth and lights up. I shake my head when she offers me a drag. The ship's air ducts hum. Silence is a bitch, isn't it? She says after a while. But I guess you'd know that after the box. I nod. No one ever asks me about it, I say. The box. No one asks me about Trig. Do you want them to? Nah. I never used to mind it, I say. The silence. Well, you fill it with more things when you get older. Wasn't much to do in Lycos, except sit around and watch the darkness in Lycos. Watch the darkness. That's so badass sounding. Smoke jets out of her nose. We grew up near corn. Bit less dramatic. Shitloads of it as far as you could see. I'd go stand in the middle of it at night sometimes and pretend it was an ocean. You can hear it whispering. It's not peaceful. Not like you'd think. It's malevolent. I always wanted to be somewhere else. Not like Trig. 
he loved Good Hope, wanted to enlist at the local precinct for policing duty or be a game warden. He'd be happy kicking it in the backwater till he was old, drinking with those idiots at Lou's, going hunting in early morning frost. I was the one who wanted out, who wanted to hear the ocean, see the stars. Twenty years of service to the Legion. Cheap price. She mocks herself, but it's curious to me that she's choosing to open up now. She found me here. At first I thought it was because she came to console me, but there's already whiskey on the squat woman's breath. She didn't want to be alone. And I'm the only one who knew Trigg even a little. I set my datapad down. I told him he didn't have to come with, but I knew I was dragging him along. Told Mom that I'd take care of him. Haven't even been able to tell her he's dead. Maybe she thinks we both are. Were you able to tell his fiancée? I ask. Ephraim, right? You remembered? Of course. He was from Luna. She watches me for a moment. Yeah, F's a good one. Was with a private security firm in Imbrium City. Specialized in high-value property recovery. Art, sculptures, jewels. A real pretty boy. They met at one of those themed bars when we were on leave from the 13th. Venusian beach regalia. F didn't know about Trig and me, that we were with the sons and all. But I got a hold of him after we rescued you from Luna when I was out on a supply run. Used a web cafe. About a week after I told him Trig was gone, he sent a message saying he was going off-grid, joining the sons on Luna. Haven't heard from him since. I'm sure he's all right. I say, thanks. But we both know Luna's a cluster of shit right now. She shrugs. After a moment of picking the weightlifting calluses on her palms, she nudges me. I want you to know you're doing good. I know you didn't ask, and I'm just a grunt, but you are. Trigg would approve. Yeah. And he'd piss his pants if he knew we were marching on. She's cut short as the hollow above us beeps softly, and one of the comblues calls up to me. I scramble to pick up my datapad. A single message is being broadcast across all frequencies into the belt. Our first contact with Mars since we went through the asteroid belt the first time. Play it, Holiday says. I do, and a recording appears. It's a grey interrogation room. A man's covered in blood, shackled to a chair. The jackal walks into frame to stand behind him. Is that... Holiday whispers beside me. Yes, I say. The man is Uncle Nero. The jackal holds a pistol in his hand. Darrow, my bone riders found this one sabotaging beacons in deep space. Really is tougher than he looks. Thought he might know your mind, 
but he tried to bite off his own tongue instead of talking to me. Irony for you. He walks behind my uncle. I don't want a ransom. I don't want anything from you. I just want you to watch. He lifts up the pistol. It's a slender grey slip of metal the size of my hand. The blues in the pit gasp. Severo rushes onto the bridge just as the jackal points the gun at the back of my uncle's head. My uncle lifts his eyes to look into the camera. Sorry, Darrow, but I'll say hello to your father for... The jackal pulls the trigger, and I feel another part of me slip away into the darkness as my uncle slumps in his chair. Turn it off, I say numbly, the past flooding into me. Nerol putting a frysuit helmet on my head as a boy, tussling with him at the laurel tide, his sad eyes as we sat beneath the gallows after Eo's hanging, his laugh. Timestamp puts it at three weeks ago, sir. Virga, the com blue, says quietly, We didn't receive it because of the interference. Did the rest of the fleet get this? I ask quietly. I don't know, sir. Interference is marginal now and it's on a pulse frequency. They've probably already seen it. And I told Orion to keep all ships scanning in case we got lucky. It will leak. Oh, shit. Several mutters. What? Holiday asks. We just set fire to our own fleet. I say mechanically. The fragile alliance between the high colors and low will shatter from this. My uncle was nearly as beloved as Ragnar. Nerol is gone. Just like that. I feel helpless. I shudder inside. It's not real yet. What do we do? Several asks. Darrow. Holiday, wake the howlers, I say. Helmsman, max thrust to rear engines. I want to be with the main fleet in four hours. Get me Mustang and Orion on the comm. Telemannus is too. Holiday snaps to attention. Yes, sir. Despite the interference, I reach Orion over the comm and tell her to seal off all the ship bridges and to isolate control of the guns in case anyone decides to take a pot shot at our gold allies. It takes nearly thirty minutes for the Blues to connect me with Mustang. Severo and Victor are with me now along with Daxa. The rest of his family is on their ships. The signal is weak. Interference causing static that wavers across Mustang's face. She is moving through a hall. Two golds with her. Darrow, you've heard, she says, seeing the others behind me. Thirty minutes ago. I'm so sorry. What's happening? We received the communique... Some jackass tech pimped it to all the sensor chiefs, Mustang confirms. It's on the ship hubs throughout the fleet. Darrow, there's already movement against high colors on several of the ships. Three golds on Persephone were killed fifteen minutes ago by reds, and one of my lieutenants opened up on two obsidian who tried to take her. They're dead. Shit's hitting the fan, Severo says. I'm evacuating all my personnel back to our ships. There's gunshots in the background behind Mustang. 
Where are you? I ask. On the Morning Star. What the hell are you doing there? You have to get off. I still have men on here. There's seven golds in the engine deck for logistical support. I'm not leaving them behind. Then I'm sending my father's guard. Daxo growls from his family's torch ships. They'll get you out. That's stupid, Severo says. No, Mustang snaps. You send gold knights in here, and this turns into a bloodbath we don't recover from. Darrow, you have to get back here. That's the only thing that might stop this. We're still hours out. Well, do your best. There's one more thing. They've stormed the prison. I think they're going to execute Cassius. Several and I exchange a look. You need to find Sefi and stay with her, I say. We'll be there soon. Find Sefi? Darrow. She's leading them. Chapter 54 The Goblin and the Gold My assault shuttle lands on the auxiliary deck of the Morning Star, where Mustang was supposed to meet us. She's not there. Neither are the gold she was rescuing. A coterie of sons of Ares waits for us instead, led by Theodora. She carries no weapon and looks out of place surrounded by the armored men, but they defer to her. She tells me what's happened. My uncle's death sparked several small fights that escalated into shootings on both sides. Now several ships roil with conflict. Mustang has been taken by Sefi's men, along with Cassius and the rest of the high-color prisoners, Darrow. Theodora announces, assessing the rest of my lieutenants. Gory damn savages, Victor mutters. If they kill her, this is done. They won't kill her. I say. Sefi knows Mustang's on her side. Why would she do this? Holliday asks. Justice, Victor says, drawing a look from Severa. No, I say. No, I think it's something else altogether. Gory damn marvellous, Victor nods back to space. Looks like the Telemannuses are intent on slagging this all up. Another shuttle taxis into the hangar behind us. We gather as it lands. Storming down the ramp before it even gets down, jumping to the deck, is the whole Telemannus clan. Daxo, Kavax, Thraxa, two other sisters I haven't met, land heavily behind them. Armed to the teeth, though Kavax's arm is still in a sling. Behind them come thirty more of their house golds. It's a bloody damn army. They're going to get us all killed, Holliday says. At my side, Severo blinks up at the disembarking war party. Death begets death begets death, he murmurs. Kavax, what the hell are you doing? I ask as his family crosses the hangar. Virginia needs our help, he booms, not breaking his pace until I cut him off, blocking his way deeper into the ship. For a moment, I think he'll go through me. We will not leave her to the mercy of savages. I told you to stay on your ship. Unfortunately, we take orders from Virginia, not you, Daxo says. We know the ramifications of being here, but we will do what we must to protect our family. 
Mustang even told you not to storm here with knights. The situation has changed. Kavax rumbles. You want this to turn into a war? You want our fleet to shatter? The fastest way you do that is marching in here with a show of gold force. We will not let her die, Kavak says. And what if they kill her because of you? I ask. That's the only thing that gives him pause. What if they cut her throat when you storm in there? I step close so he can see the fear on my face too, and I can speak just loud enough for Daxo to hear as well. Listen to me, Kavax. The problem with that is that you leave the Obsidian only one choice. Fight back. And you know they can. Let me handle this, and we'll get her back. Don't, and we'll be standing over her casket tomorrow. Kavax looks back to his lean son, always the moderating influence, to see what he thinks. And to my relief, Daxo nods. Very well, Kavak says, but I will go with you, Reaper. Children, await my summons. If I fall, come with all fury. Yes, father, they say. Breathing a sigh of relief, I turn back to my men. Where's Severo? Severo snuck away while we argued, to what purpose I don't know. We rush after him through the corridors, Victor behind us. Holiday leads, taking information from other sons of Ares in through the optic implant in her eye. Her men have spotted the mob in the main hangar. They're holding a trial for Cassius, for the murder of several dozen sons of Ares and, of course, Ares himself. No sign of Mustang. Where is she? She was supposed to stay out of sight. Meet us, if she could. Did they catch her? Worse. When we reach the corridor that leads to the hangar, there's such a press of people that we can barely get through, shoving reds and obsidians out of the way as I pass. They're all shouting and pushing. Over their heads, near the center of the hangar, I see several dozen obsidian and reds astride the twenty-meter-high walkway that spans part of the hangar, high over the crowd. Sefi's at their center. Seven golds hang dead from the walkway, suspended by rubber cable ligature, feet dangling five meters above the crowd, scalps hewn off. Oriet's spines are tougher than average humans. Each of these men and women would have died horribly over several minutes from cerebral anorexia watching the crowd beneath them curse and spit at them, and hurl lug-nuts and wrenches and bottles. Blood-clots in a long ribbon cover their chins to their chests, tongues removed by Sefi the Quiet. Cassius and several other prisoners await their own executions upon the walkway, kneeling beside their captors, bloody and beaten. Mustang is not with them, thank Jove. They've stripped Cassius to the waist and carved a bloody sling blade across his broad chest. Sefi! I shout, but I can't be heard. Can't see Severo anywhere. There's more than twenty-five thousand in a space meant for ten. Many are armed, some wounded from the battle the week prior, all pressing into the hangar to watch the execution. 
The obsidian stands titanic amidst the masses, like great boulders amidst a sea of low colors. I never should have condensed most of the wounded and rescued crews into this hotbed of grief. The crowd has realized I'm here now, and they part for me and begin to chant my name as if they think I've come to see justice done. The barbarity of it chills me. One of the men holding Cassius down is a green tech who gave me coffee on Phobos. Most of the others I don't recognize. One by one, those sons nearby recognize my presence. The quiet spreads around me. Sefi! I snarl. Sefi! At last she hears me. What are you doing? What you will not, she calls down in her own language, not in wrath, but acceptance that she performs an unsavory but necessary deed. Like a spirit of vengeance has drifted up from hell. Her white hair hangs long behind her. A knife is bloody from the tongues it has claimed. And to think, I vouched for her. Let her name this ship. But just because a lion lets you pet it doesn't mean it's tame. Kavax is horrified by the scene. He's almost ready to call his children, and would if Victor did not grip his arm and talk him down. There's fear in her eyes, too. Not just at the sight above, but at what could happen to her here. I shouldn't have brought the goals with me. There's moments in life when you're walking ahead so intent on your task that you forget to look down until you feel knee-deep in quicksand. I'm right there now, surrounded by an unpredictable mob, looking up at a woman with the blood of Alia Snowsparrow running through her veins. My only defense, a small circle of sons of Ares and golds, Holiday's pulling a scorcher. Victra's razor moves beneath her sleeve. I was too brash and storming in here. All this could go so wrong so quickly. Where is Mustang? I call up to Sefi. Did you kill her? Kill her? No. The daughter of the lion brought us from the ice. But she stood in the way of justice, so she is in chains. Then she's safe. That's what this is, I call up. Justice? Is that what was given to Ragnar's friends, who your mother hanged from the chains of the spires? This is the code of the ice. You're not on the ice, Sefi. You're on my ship. Is it yours? This doesn't sit well with the low colors among the crowd. We paid for it in our blood. As did we all, I say. What about the ice was good? You left that place because you knew it was wrong. You knew your ways were shaped by your masters. You said you'd follow me. Are you a liar now? Are you? You promised my people they would be safe. Sefi bellows down to me, pointing her axe, the weight of loss heavy upon her. I have seen the works of these people. I have seen the war they make, the ships they sail. Words will not suffice. 
These golds speak one language, and that is the language of blood. And so long as they live, so long as they speak, my people will not be safe. The power they have is too great. Do you think this is what Ragnar wanted? Yes. Ragnar wanted you to be better than them, than this, to be an example. But maybe the goals are right. Maybe you are just killers, savage dogs, like they made you to be. We will never be anything more until they are gone, she says down to me, voice echoing around the hangar. Why defend them? She drags Cassius toward her. Why weep over one who helped kill my brother? Why do you think Ragnar gripped your hand instead of the sword when he died? He didn't want you to make your life about vengeance. It's a hollow end. He wanted more for you. He wanted a future. I have seen the heavens. I have seen the hells. And I know now that our future is war, Sefi says. War until they fade in the night. She drags Cassius toward her and lifts her knife to carve out his tongue. But before she does, a pulse fist fires and knocks the weapon from her hands. And Ares, lord of this rebellion, slams down on the walkway wearing his spiked helmet of war. The obsidians recoil from him as he straightens, dusts off his shoulders, and lets the helmet slither back into his armor. What is he doing? Victor asks me. You dumb shit, Severo sneers. You're touching my property. He stalks across the bridge toward Sefi. Tst, get away. Several Valkyrie bar his way. He stands nose to chest with them. Move, you albino sack of pubic hair. The obsidian moves only when Sefi tells her to. Sephiro walks past the bound golds, tapping their heads playfully as he goes. That one's mine, he says, pointing at Cassius. Get your hands off him, lady. She doesn't move her knife. He cut my father's head off and put it in a box. And unless you want me to do the same to you, you'll do me the courtesy of letting go my property. Sefi backs away, but does not sheathe her knife. It is your blood debt. His life belongs to you. Obviously. He shoes her away. Stand up, you little pixie. He barks at Cassius, kicking him with his boot and hauling him up by the cable around his neck. Have some dignity. Stand up. Cassius rises to his feet awkwardly, hands behind his back, face swollen from the beatings. The sling blade livid on his chest. Did you kill my father? Severo flicks him on his broad chest. Did you kill my father? Cassius looks down at him. No measure of humor to the man, just pride. Not the vain sort I've seen in him over the years. War and life have drained that vigorous spirit from him. This is the phase, 
the bearing of a man who wants nothing more than to die with a little dignity. Yes, he says loudly. I did. Glad we cleared that up. He's a murderer, Severo shouts to the crowd. And what do we do to murderers? The crowd roars for Cassius's life, and Severo, after making a show of cupping his ear, gives it to them. He shoves Cassius off the edge of the walkway. The gold plummets till the cable around his neck snaps taut, arresting his fall. He gags, feet kick, face reddens. The crowd roars hungrily, chanting Ares's name. Mobs are soulless things that feed on fear and momentum and prejudice. They do not know the spirit in Cassius, the nobility of a man who would have given his life for his family, but was cursed to live while they all died. They see a monster, a seven-foot-tall former god, now mostly naked, humbled, strangling on his own hubris. I see a man trying his best in a world that doesn't give a shit. It breaks my heart. Yet I do not move, because I know I'm not witnessing the death of a friend so much as I'm witnessing the rebirth of another. My company does not understand. Horror stains Kavix's face, Victor's too. Even though she held little pity for Cassius all this time, I think she mourns the savagery she sees in Severo. It's an ugly thing for any man to bear. Holiday pulls her weapon, eyeing the reds nearby who point to Kavix, but they're missing the show. I watch in awe of Severo as he bounds up onto the railing, arms wide, embracing his army. Beneath, Cassius dangles and dies, and the crowd beneath makes a game of seeing who can launch themselves high enough to pull his feet. None succeed. My name is Severo Aubaca, my friend cries out. I am Ares, he thumps his chest. I have killed forty-four golds, fifteen obsidian, one hundred and thirteen greys with my razor. The crowd roars in approval, even the obsidians. Jove knows who else with ships, railguns and pulse fists, with nukes, knives, sharp sticks... He trails off dramatically. They slam their feet. He beats his chest again. I am Ares. I am a murderer, too. He puts his hands on his hips. And what do we do to murderers? This time no one answers. He never expected them to. He grabs the cable from the neck of one of the kneeling goals, wraps it around his own neck, and looking to Seffy with a demented little smile, winks and backflips off the railing. The crowd screams, but Victor's stunned gasp is the loudest. Severo's rope snaps taut. He kicks, choking beside Cassius, feet scrambling, 
silent and horrible, face turning red on its way to purple like Cassius's. They swing together, the goblin and the gold, suspended above the swirling crowd that's now stampeding, trying to get up the ladder to the walkway to cut Severo down. But in their madness, they overload the ladder, and it bends away from the wall. Victra's about to launch herself into the air on her grav boots to save him. I hold her down. Wait. He's dying, she says frantically. That's the point. It is not a boy who dangles on that line. It is not a broken-hearted orphan who needs me to pick him up. It's a man who has been through hell and now believes in the dream of his father, in the dream of my wife. It's a man I would die to protect, even as he dies to save the soul of this rebellion. Kavax is transfixed, watching Sefi, who stares down at the curious scene. Her obsidian are just as confused. They glance to her, searching for leadership. Ragnar believed in his sister, in her capacity to be better than the world that was given them, one in which there is no such thing as mercy, no such thing as forgiveness. Silently, she hefts her axe and swings it into Severo's cable, and then, reluctantly, Cassius's. Somewhere, Ragnar is smiling. Both men tumble through the air to be caught by the swirling crowd beneath. Kavax has not moved since Severo jumped, watching Sefi with a profound look of confusion, still with his hand on the comm to call his children, but I lose him in the crowd. The sons of Ares and Howlers have formed a tight circle around their leader, shoving others back. Severo hacks for breath on all fours. I rush to him and kneel as Holiday helps Cassius, who wheezes on the ground to my left. Pebble drapes her howler cloak over his body. Can you talk? I ask Severo. He nods, lips trembling from the pain, but his eyes are all fire. I give my arm and help him stand. I hold up a fist, demanding silence. Sons shout the others down till twenty-five thousand breaths balance on the beating heart of my little friend. He looks out of them, startled by the love he sees, the reverence, the wet eyes. Darrow's wife, Severo croaks, larynx damaged. His wife, he says more deeply, and my father never met. But they shared a dream, one of a free world, not built on corpses, but on hope, on the love that binds us, not the hate that divides us. We have lost many, but we are not broken. We are not defeated. We fight on, but we do not fight for revenge for those who have died. We fight for each other. We fight for those who live. We fight for those who don't yet live. Cassius Albalona killed my father. He stands over the man, 
swallowing before looking back up. But I forgive him. Why? Because he was protecting the world he knew. Because he was afraid. Victra pushes her way to the front of the circle, watching Severo, who speaks now as if it was meant for her, and her alone. We are the new age, the new world, and if we're to show the way, then we better damn well make it a better one. I am Severo Albarca, and I am no longer afraid. Chapter 55 The Ignoble House Barker You're bloody damn manic, I tell Severo when we're alone in Virenie's infirmary. Severo's holding his neck, laughing at himself. I kiss the top of his head. Bloody damn insane, you know that? Yeah, well, I stole that one from your playbook. What does that say about you? That he's insane as well. Mickey says from the corner. He's smoking his laced burners, purple smoke slithering from nostrils. Several winces. That slagging hurt. I can't even look sideways. You sprained your neck, damaged the cartilage, lacerations in your larynx, Dr. Virini says from behind her biometric scanner. She's a lithe, tan woman with that special small silence inside her reserved for people who have seen both sides of hardship. Just as I said when you came in, all these tools you use, Verony. Really, where's the art in it? Verony rolls her eyes. Another ten kilos on your body, and you would have broken your neck, Severo. Count yourself lucky. Good thing I took a shit before, he grumbles. Darrow's neck would have held up under the strain of fifty more kilos. Mickey brags idly. The tensile raising of a cervical... Really? Virini says tiredly. Can't you brag later, Mickey? Merely observing my own mastery, Mickey replies, giving me a little wink. He enjoys pushing the gentle Virini's buttons. Since he's employed her help in his project, they've been spending most waking moments in his laboratory, much to Virini's chagrin. Ow! Cyril yelps as she prods the back of his spine. That's my body! Sorry. Pixie, I say. I almost broke my neck, Several complains. Been there, done that. At least you didn't have to get whipped. I'd rather have been whipped, he mutters, wincing as he tries to turn his neck. Be better than this. Not being whipped by Pax, I reply. I saw the video. He wasn't swinging that hard. Have you ever been whipped? Did you see my back? You seen my bloody damn eye at the Institute? Jackal had it plucked out with a knife. Didn't see me whining. I had my whole bloody damn body carved open, I say, as the doors hiss open and Mustang enters. Twice! Oh, it always comes back to the slagging carving, Several mutters, wiggling his fingers in the air. I'm so bloody damn special. I had my bones peeled, my DNA spliced. Do they always do this? Virini asks Mustang. Seems like, Mustang says. Any chance I could bribe you to suture their mouths shut till they learn not to swear so much? 
Mickey perks up. Well, it's interesting you ask. Several interrupts him. How's the gold holding up? He asks Mustang. You know. Happy he still has a tongue, Mustang says. They're suturing his chest in the infirmary. He has some internal bleeding from blunt trauma, but he'll live. You finally went to see him? I ask. I did. She nods thoughtfully to herself. He was... emotional. He wanted me to thank you, Sarah. He says he knows he didn't deserve it. Damn right he didn't, Sarah mutters. Sefi says the obsidian will leave him be, I say. The obsidian? Mustang asks, my statement pulling her from her thoughts. All of them? I laugh suddenly. I didn't even think about that. What's that? Several asks. She spoke for the obsidian now, not just the Valkyrie. Wasn't a slip of the tongue. Pan-tribalism wasn't in place before the riot, I say. Must have used it to unite the other war chiefs under her direction. So... She pulled a coup? Several asks. I laugh. Seems like. We'll see if it holds. Still... Impressive, Mustang says. They always told us never to let a good crisis go to waste. Mickey shivers. Obsidians playing politics. So, all that out there, was that strategy, or was that real? Mustang asks Severo. Dunno, Severo shrugs. I mean, gotta stop the cycle somewhere. Sucks, but Dad's gone. No sense burning down the world to try and bring him back, you know. Cassius didn't kill Dad because he hated him. They were both soldiers doing what soldiers do. Mustang shakes her head, at a loss for words. So she sets a hand on his shoulder, and he knows how impressed she is. The compliment of silence is as deep a one as she can give, and Severo favors her with a rare unironic smile. One that disappears when the door opens and Victra comes in. She's red-eyed and agitated. I need to talk to you, she says to Severo. Get out, Severo says when we don't move. Everyone! We wait outside the door as Victra and Severo speak inside. How long do you think it will take to make the journey? Mustang asks. Forty-nine days, I say, pulling Mickey back from the door where he cups his ear in an attempt to hear the happenings inside. Key is keeping the blues quiet. Forty-nine days is a long time for my brother to make plans. Beyond our hull, the worlds continue to turn. Reds are hunted. And though we've woken the spirit of the low colors and given this rebellion another victory, Every day we spend crossing the distance to the core is another day that the jackal can hunt our friends and the sovereign can squelch the rebellions that plague her. My uncle's already gone. How many more will die before I return? This won't heal everything, Mustang says. The obsidian still killed seven prisoners. My people are wary of this war. The consequences particularly if Sefi now has united the tribes. That makes her dangerous, 
and more useful, I say, until she disagrees with you again. This could go wrong at any moment. She straightens as Mickey skitters back and the door to the infirmary opens. Severo and Victor come out, both wearing smiles. What are you two grinning about? I ask. Just this. Severo thrusts out a House Jupiter Institute ring. It's loose on his finger. I squint at it, not understanding right away. His own ring is missing, and then I see it awkwardly jammed onto Victor's pinky. She proposed, he says with delight. What? I sputter. Mustang's eyebrows shoot up. Proposed? As in, yeah, boyo, Severo beams. We are getting hitched. Severo and Victor marry seven nights later in a small ceremony in the auxiliary hangar of the Morning Star. When Victor asked me to give her away after they broke the news to us, I couldn't speak. I hugged her then as I hug her now, before taking her arm and walking her through the small line of scrubbed and washed howlers and towering telemanuses. It's the cleanest I've ever seen Severo, his unruly mohawk combed to the side as he stands before Mickey. It is custom to have a white give the benediction, but Victor laughed at the idea of tradition and asked Mickey. The violet's face glows now. Too much makeup on the day, but he's a ray of light all the same. From carver to slaver to slave to wedding officiant, he's not had an easy road. But he's lovelier for it. He was delighted when Clown and Screwface asked him to join us for Severo's bachelor night, and he howled along with us as we kidnapped Severo from his room the night before and dragged him to the mess hall where the howlers gathered to drink. The animosity stemming from the riot has not abated entirely, but the wedding brings a sense of nostalgic normalcy. Surrounded by the insanity of war, it's a special hope given, knowing life can go on. Though some sons gripe about the marriage of the red leader to a gold, Victor's done enough to merit respect from the leaders within the sons, and the bravery she showed in storming the morning star with Sephi and me around Ilium has bought her their respect. She shed blood for them, with them, so my fleet is quiet, at peace. At least for tonight. I've never seen Severo so happy, nor so nervous as he was the hour before the ceremony when he combed his hair in my washroom. Not that you can do much with a mohawk. Is this insane? It seemed like a good idea yesterday, he asked, staring at himself in the mirror. And it's a good idea today, too, I told him. You're not just saying that. Tell me the truth, man. I feel sick. Before I married Eo, I threw up. Bullshit. Got it all over my uncle's boots. A twinge of pain as I remember he's gone. Wasn't that I was afraid of making the wrong decision. I was afraid she was. Afraid of not living up to our expectations. But my uncle told me that it's women who see us better than we see ourselves. That's why you love Victor. That's why you fight with her. 
and that's why you deserve this. Severo squinted at me in the mirror. Yeah, but your uncle was crazy, everyone knows that. Even company, then. We're all a little manic, especially Victor. I mean, she'd have to be to marry you. He grinned. Bloody damn right. And I rumpled his hair, hoping beyond all hope that they can have this little moment of happiness, and maybe more after that. It's the best any of us can hope for, really. Wish Pops was here, though. I think he's laughing his ass off somewhere, that you have to stand on your tiptoes to kiss your bride, I said. Always was a prick. Now Severo shifts from foot to foot as I hand Victor over to him, and he looks up into our eyes. I'm not even there. None of us are, not to them. The gentleness I see from the raging woman now is all it takes to know how much she loves him. It's not something she'd ever talk about. It's not her way. But the sharp edge she has for everything and everyone is dull tonight. Like she sees Severo as a refuge, a place where she can be safe. I rejoin Mustang as Mickey begins his flowery speech. It's not half so grandiloquent as I might have expected. The way Mustang nods along to the words, I know she must have helped him edit it down. Reading my mind, she leans over. You should have heard the first draft. It was a spectacle. She sniffs me. Are you drunk? She looks back at the flushed howlers and teetering telemanuses. Are they all drunk? Shh, I say, and hand her a flask. You're too sober. Mickey is finishing the ceremony. A compact that can be broken only by death. I pronounce you Severo and Victra Barker. Julii, Severo corrects quickly. Hers is the elder house. Victra shakes her head down at him. He said it right. But you're a Julii, he replies, confused. Yesterday I was. Today I'd rather be a Barker. Presuming you don't have a problem with that and I don't have to become proportionally diminutive. It'd be lovely, Severo says, cheeks glowing as Mickey continues and Severo and Victor turn to face their friends. Then I present you to your fellows and the worlds as Severo and Victor of the Martian House Barker. The ceremony may have been small, but the celebration is anything but. Fleet-spanning, even. If my people know one thing, it is how to survive hardship with celebration. Life's not just a matter of breathing. It's a matter of being. Word of Severo's speech and his hanging spread through the ships, stitching the wounds back together. But this day is the one that matters the one that reaffirms the joy of life throughout my fleet. Dances are held on the smallest corvettes, on the destroyers and torch ships, and the morning star. Flights of rip wings buzz bridges in celebratory formation. Swill and society liquors flow among the milling crowds, which gather in hangars to sing and dance around weapons of war. Even Kavak's, 
so stubborn in his fear of chaos and his prejudice against the obsidians, dances with Mustang, drunkenly hugging Severo and Victra, and clumsily attempting to forget the ballroom dreck of gold dancers, and learn those of my people from a full-figured red with a laughing face and a mechanic's grease under her nails. With them is Scyther, the awkward orange who so impressed me a year and a half ago in the garages of the Pax. He only just finished Mustang's special project this morning. Now he's drunk and turning his ungainly body around on the dance floor as Kavax roars approval. Daxo shakes his head at his father's antics while sitting in reserve on the side, as always. I share a drink with him. It's wine, I say. Thank Jove, he replies, delicately taking the glass. Your people keep trying to give me some kind of engine solvent. He scans his datapad warily. I've got a holiday on security, I say. This isn't a gold party. He laughs. Thank Joe for that then as well. Finally, he takes a sip from his wine. Venusian atolls, he says. Very nice. Broke had good taste. Your father is a sight, I say, nodding to the dance floor where the big man sways along with two reds. He's not the only one, Daxo replied shrewdly, following my eyes to Mustang, who's now being spun about by Severo. The woman's face is aglow with life, or maybe it's the alcohol. Hair sweaty and plastered on her forehead. She loves you, you know, Daxo says. She's just afraid of losing you, so she holds you far away. He smiles to himself. Funny how we are, isn't it? Daxo, why aren't you dancing? Victor says, striding up to him. So proper all the time. Up, up! She hauls him up and pushes him onto the dance floor, then collapses into his chair. My feet. Raided Antonia's closet. Forgot she's got pigeon feet. I laugh and Clown stumbles up to us, heavily drunk. Victor, Darrow, a question. Do you think Pebble is interested in that man? He asks me, leaning against one of the tables as he chugs down another glass of wine. His teeth are already purple. The tall one? Victor asks. Pebbles dancing with a grey captain. She seems to fancy him. He's terribly handsome, Clown says. Good teeth, too. I suppose you could always cut in, I say. Well, I wouldn't want to seem desperate. Joe forbid, Victor says. I think I'll cut in. I think it's a good idea, she says. But you should bow first, to be polite. Oh, then it's settled. I'll go right now. He pours another glass of wine. After another drink. I take the wine from him and push him on his way. Holiday appears in the doorframe to watch Clown's awkward interruption. He's bowing to Pebble and sweeping back his hand dramatically. Oh, hell. He actually did it. Victor snorts champagne through her nose. 
You should do the same with Mustang. Think she's trying to steal my husband away. Husband. That's a weird word. It's a weird world. Isn't it, though? Wife. Who'd have thought? A looker up and down. On you, it seems to fit. I put my arm around her. It seems to fit perfectly. She smiles radiantly. Sir, Holiday says, coming up to us. Holiday, come to have a drink? I glance over at her, smile dying when I see the expression that marks her face. Something has happened. What is it? She motions me away from Victor. It's the jackal, she says quietly, so as not to spoil the mood. He's on the calm for you. Direct link. What's the delay? I ask. Six seconds. On the dance floor, Severo's spinning with Mustang clumsily, laughing because neither knows the dance the reds around them perform. Her hair is dark from sweat on her temples, her eyes are light with the joy of the moment. None of them feel the sudden dread in me, in the world beyond. I don't want them to. Not tonight. Chapter 56 In Time He sits in a simple chair in the center of my circular training room, wearing a coat of white with a gold line to either side of his high collar. The stars above his glowing hologram are cold stains of light through the Duraglass dome. This room was built to train for war, and so it is here that I will grant my enemy an audience. I will not let him pervert this ship where Roke lived and where my friends celebrate by seeing or being any place else. Even though he's millions of kilometers away, I can nearly smell the pencil-shaving scent of him, hear the vast silence with which he fills rooms as I stand before his digital image. It's so lifelike, if it did not glow, I would think him here. The background behind him is blurred. He watches me enter the room. No smile on his face, no false pleasantness, but I can tell he's amused. His silver stylus spins in his one hand, the only sign of his agitation. Hello, Reaper. How are the festivities? I try not to let my discomfort show. Of course he knows of the wedding. He has spies in our fleet. How close they are to me, I cannot tell. But I don't let the thought spread malignantly through me. If he could reach out and hurt us here, he already would have. What do you want? I ask. You called me last time. I thought I should return the favor, particularly considering the message I sent of your uncle. Did you receive it? I say nothing. After all, when you arrive at Mars, the cannons will speak for us. We may never see each other again. Strange, isn't that? Did you see Rogue before he died? I did. And did he weep for your forgiveness? No. The jackal frowns. I thought he would. It's easy to fool a romantic. 
to think he was right there when I took his girl. You went running by in the hall, screaming Tactus's name, and he looked up in confusion. I pushed a sliver of Quinn's skull deeper into her brain with my scalpel. I thought about letting her live with brain damage, but the thought of her drooling everywhere made me sick. You think he still would have loved her if she drooled? There's a sound at the door, out of the camera's capture range. Mustangs followed me from the wedding. Taking in the scene, she watches quietly. I should turn off the hollow, leave this creature to himself, but I can't seem to part with him. The same curiosity that brought me here now anchors me to this spot. Roke wasn't perfect, but he cared about gold. He cared about humanity. He had something he would die for, and that makes him a better man than most, I say. It's easy to forgive the dead, the jackal replies. I'd know. A tiny spasm of humanity moves across his lips. He may never say it, but the very tone of his voice tells me he is not without regret. I know he wanted his father's approval, but could it actually be that he misses the man? that he's forgiven his father in death and now mourns him. He pulls a short gold baton up from his lap. With the press of a button, the baton extends to a scepter, one with the skull of a jackal overtop the pyramid of the society. I had it commissioned for him more than a year ago. I've not parted with your gift, he says. He traces the head of the jackal. All my life, I've been given lions. Nothing of my own. What does it say about me, that my greatest enemy knows me better than any friend? You the scepter, I the sword, I say, ignoring his question. That was the plan. I gave it to him because I wanted him to feel loved, to feel like I was his friend. And I would have been... Then, I would have helped him change like Mustang did, like Cassius might. Is it what you thought it would be? I ask. What? Your father's seat. He frowns, considering which tack to take. No, he says eventually. No, it is not what I expected. You want to be hated. Don't you? I ask. That's why you killed my uncle when you didn't need to. It gives you purpose. That's why you called me. To feel important. But I don't hate you. Liar. I don't. I killed Pax and your uncle and Lorne. I pity you. He recoils. Pity? Arch-governor of all Mars, one of the most powerful men in all the worlds with a might to do anything you like. And it's not enough. Nothing has ever been enough for you, nor will it be. Adrius, you're not trying to prove yourself to your father, to me, to Virginia, to the Sovereign. You're trying to matter to yourself, because you're broken inside, because you hate what you are. You wish you were born like Claudius, like Virginia, 
You wish you were like me. Like you? He asks with a sneer. A filthy red? I'm no red. I show him my hands, bare of sigils. It disgusts him. Not even evolved enough to have a color, Darrow. Just a homo sapiens playing in the realm of gods. Gods? I shake my head. You're no god. You're not even a gold. You're just a man who thinks a title will make him great. Just a man who wants to be more than he actually is. But all you really want is love. Isn't that right? He snorts in derision. Love is for the weak. The only thing you and I have in common is our hunger. You think that I cannot be satisfied, that I always yearn for more. But look in the mirror, and you'll see the same man staring back at you. Tell your little red friends what you like. But I know you lost yourself among us. You yearned to be gold. I saw it in your eyes at the Institute. I saw that fever on Luna when I proposed that we should rule. I saw it when you rode that triumphal chariot up to the steps of the Citadel. It's that hunger that makes us forever alone. And there he strikes the core of me. That abyssal fear that the darkness made my reality. The fear of being alone, of never finding love again. But then Mustang steps out to join me. You're wrong, brother, she says. The jackal leans back at the sight of his sister. Darrow had a wife, a family he loved. He had just a little bit and he was happy. You had everything and you were miserable. And you always will be because you covet. His foundation of calm begins to crumble. That's why you killed Father and Quinn, why you killed Pax. But this isn't a game, brother. This isn't one of your mazes. Do not call me brother, whore. You are no sister of mine. Opening your legs for a mongrel, for a beast of burden. Are the obsidians next? I bet they are all queued up already. You are a disgrace to your color and to our house. I move angrily toward his hollow, but Mustang puts a hand in the center of my chest and turns back to our brother. You think you never had love, brother, but mother loved you. If she loved me, why didn't she stay? He says sharply. Why did she leave? I don't know. Mustang says. But I loved you too, and you threw that away. You were my twin. We were bound for life. There are tears in her eyes. I defended you for years. Then I find out that it was you who had Claudius killed. She blinks through the tears, shaking her head as she finds her resolve. I cannot forgive that. I cannot. You had love and you lost it, brother. That is your curse. I step forward till I'm even with Mustang. Adrius, 
We are coming for you. We will break your ships. We will storm Mars. We will burrow through the walls of your bunker. We will find you, and we will bring you to justice. And when you hang from the gallows, when the door beneath you opens, when your feet do the devil's dance, then you will realize in that moment that this has all been for nothing, because there will be no one left to pull your feet. The pale light of the hollow vanishes as we close the connection, leaving us to the glass ceiling and the stars beyond. Are you all right? I ask Mustang. She nods, wiping her eyes. Didn't expect to start crying like that. Sorry. To be fair, I think I cry more. But forgiven. She tries a smile. Do you actually think we can do this, Darrow? Her eyes are red. The mascara she wore for the wedding stained by the tears. Her running nose is a ruddy pink, but I've never seen beauty as deep as hers is now. All the rawness of life flows through her. All the cracks and fears that make her who she is, worn in her eyes. So imperfect and rough that I want to hold her and love her as long as I can. And for once, she lets me. We have to. You and I have a whole life ahead of us, I say, pulling her into me. It seems impossible a woman like this could ever want to be held by me. But she puts her head in my chest as I wrap my arms around her, and I remember how perfectly we fit together as we hold each other and the stars and minutes pass distantly. We should return to the party, she eventually says to me. Why? I have everything I need right here. I look down at the crown of her golden head and see the darkness of her roots. I breathe in the full scent of her. If it ends tomorrow, or in eighty years, I could breathe her the rest of my life. But I want more. I need more. I tilt her slender jaw up with my hand so that she's looking at me. I was going to say something important, something memorable, but I've forgotten it in her eyes. That gulf that divided us is still there, filled with questions and recrimination and guilt. But that's only part of love, part of being human. Everything is cracked. Everything is stained except the fragile moments that hang crystalline in time and make life worth living. Chapter 57 Luna The Rubicon beacons are a sphere of transponders each as large as two obsidian, floating in space one million kilometers beyond Earth's core, encircling the innermost domain of the Sovereign. For five hundred years, no foreign fleet has passed beyond their borders. Now, two months and three weeks after news of the destruction of the Invincible Sword Armada reaches the core, eight weeks after I proclaimed that we sailed on Mars, 
17 days after the Sovereign's declaration of martial law in all society cities, the Red Armada approaches Luna, sailing past the Rubicon beacons without firing a shot. Telemannus torchships race ahead at the vanguard to clear mines and scan for any traps left by society forces. They're followed by Orion's obsidian-filled heavy destroyers, painted with the all-seeing eyes of the ice spirits. Then by the Julii fleet, with Victor's weeping sun adorning the heavy dreadnought the Pandora, the forces of the Reformers. The daughters-in-law of Lorne Au Arcos come for justice, and the gold and black ships bearing the line of Augustus led by the battle-scarred Dejah Thoris. And finally, my own vessels, led by the greatest ship ever built and stolen, the indomitable white morning star, painted with a seven-kilometer-long red scythe on her port and starboard sides. The holes we carved in her with our claw drills are not mended all through the ship, but the armor has been replaced along the outer hull. The Pax died to give her to us, and what a prize she is. We ran out of paint on the bottom scythe, so it's a sloppy crescent moon, the symbol of House Loon. The men think it's a good omen, an accidental promise to Octavia Aulun that we have her marked. War has come to the core. For three days they've known I was coming. We could not cover our entire approach from their senses, but the chaos around the planet shows how unprepared they are for it. It is a civilization in turmoil. The Ash Lord has arrayed the Scepter Armada, the pride of the core, around Luna in defensive formation. Caravans of trading vessels from the Rim clutter the Via Appia above the northern lunar hemisphere, while backlogs of civilian vessels stagger their way back along the Via Flaminia, waiting to pass through inspection on the colossal Flaminius Astrodoc before their descent into Earth's atmosphere. But as we cross the Rubicon beacons and encroach farther into lunar space, the vessels hurl themselves into a frenzy, many bursting from their ordered queue to race for Venus, others trying to pass the docks entirely and burn for Earth. They flare as silver and white society fighters and fast-moving gun frigates shred engines and hulls. Dozens of vessels die to maintain order. We're outnumbered, still vastly outgunned, but initiative is on our side, and so is the fear that all civilizations have of barbarian invaders. The first dance of the Battle of Luna has begun. Attention, unidentified fleet. A brittle copper voice echoes through an open frequency. This is Lunar Defense Command. You are in possession of stolen property and in violation of societal deep space boundary regulations. Identify yourself and intentions with all haste. Fire a long-range missile at the Citadel, I say. That's a million kilometers away, the gun blue says. It'll be shot down. He bloody well knows that, Severo says. Follow the order. 
It took a campaign of counterintelligence not just in our transmissions to Sun's cells throughout the Corps, but among our ships and commanders, to bring us here unnoticed. The Jackal will not be in position to help the Sovereign, nor will the Classes Venetum, the Fourth Fleet of Venus, or the Classes Libertas, the Fifth Fleet of the Inner Belt, which the Sovereign sent to Mars to aid the Jackal. At full burn, all the ships will be three weeks away at current orbit. The lie worked. The spies in my ship leaked misinformation about our plans, just as I'd hoped. That is the peril of a solar empire. All the power in all the worlds means nothing if it is in the wrong place. Twenty minutes later, my missile is shot down by orbital defense platforms. New direct link incoming, the Comblue says behind me. It's got Praetorian tags. Main hollow, I say. A gold Praetorian with an aquiline face and grey at the temples of his short cropped hair materializes in front of me. The image will appear on all bridges and hollow screens in the fleet. Darrow of Lycos, he asks in an impeccably well-bred lunar accent. Are you in possession of Imperium over this war fleet? What need have I of your traditions? I ask. Very well, the gold says, maintaining propriety even now. I am Archlegate Lucius Ausajanus of the Praetorian Guard, First Cohort. I know of Sejanus. He's an eerie, efficient man. I am come with a diplomatic envoy to your coordinates he says dryly. I request you stay further aggression and give my shuttle access to your flagship so we might relate the Sovereign and Senate's intentions in denied, I say. I beg your pardon? If any society ship comes toward my fleet, they will be fired upon. If the Sovereign wishes to speak with me, then let her do it herself, not through a lackey's mouth. Tell the hag we're here for war, not words, my ship throbs with activity. Told only three days ago of our true destination, the men are filled with madcap excitement. There's something immortal to attacking Luna. Win or lose, we've forever stained the legacy of gold. And in the minds of my men, and in the chatter we pick up over the comms from the core planets and moons, there is real fear in the air. For the first time in centuries, gold has shown weakness. Breaking the sword armada has spread the rebellion faster than my speeches ever could. Soldiers salute as they pass me in the hall, making their way to their troop carriers and leechcraft. The squads are predominantly red and defected greys, but I see green battle techs, red machinists, and obsidian scouts and heavy infantry in each capsule as well. I resend the shuttle flight clearance order to the Morning Star's flight controller with my authorization code. It's accepted and cleared. Most days I'd trust the order to stand on its own, but today I want to be sure, so I make my way to the bridge to confirm in person. The Red Marine captain responsible for the security of the bridge shouts his men to attention when I enter. More than fifty armored soldiers salute me. The blues in their pits continue in their operations. Orion's at the forward observation post where Roke once stood. 
meaty hands clasped behind her back, skin nearly as dark as her black uniform. She turns to me with those large, pale eyes and that nasty white smile. Reaper, the fleet is nearly ready. I greet her warmly and join her in looking out through the glass viewports. How does it look? The Ash Lord is pulled up in defensive array. He seems to think we intend an iron rain before moving him off the moon. Sharp assumption, he has no reason to come to us. All the rest of the ships in the core will be headed here. When they get here, we'll be the cockroach pinned between the ground and the hammer. He's assumed correctly we'll rush the engagement. The Ash Lord knows war, I say. That he does. She glances at her datapad. What's this I hear about a flight clearance for a Sarpedon-class shuttle from HB Delta? I knew she'd notice, and I don't want to explain myself to her now. Not everyone is as compassionate toward Cassius as I, even with Severo sparing his life. I'm sending an emissary to meet with a group of senators. I lie. We both know you're not, she says. What's going on? I step closer so no one can overhear us. If Cassius remains in the fleet while we go to war, someone will try to get past the guards and slit his throat. There's too much hate for the Bologna for him to stay here. Then hide him in another cell. Don't release him, she says. He'll just go back to them, rejoin the war. He won't. She looks behind me to ensure we're not being overheard. If the Obsidians find out, this is exactly why I didn't tell anyone, I say. I'm releasing him. You clear that shuttle. You let it go. I need you to promise me. Her lips make a thin, hard line. Promise me. She nods and looks back to Luna. As always, I feel she knows more than she lets on. I promise. But you be careful, boy. You still owe me a parrot, remember? I meet Severo in the hall outside the high-security prisoner lockup. He's sitting atop the orange cargo crate and its floating grav rig, drinking from a flask, left hand rested on the scorcher in his leg holster. The hall's quieter than it should be, given its guests, but it's in the main hangars and gun stations and engines and armories where my ship pulses with activity. Not here on the prison deck. What took you? Severo asks. He's in his black fatigues, too, stretching uncomfortably against his new combat vest. His boots click together as his legs dangle. Orion was asking questions on the bridge about the flight clearance. Shit. She figure out we were letting the eagle fly? She promised to let it go. She better. And she better keep her trap shut. If Sefi finds out. I know, I say. And so does Orion. She won't tell her. If you say so. Severo wrinkles his face and downs the last of his flask as he glances down the hall. Mustang approaches. Guards are redeployed, she says. Marine patrols are diverted from Hall 13C. Cassius is clear to the hangar. 
Good. You sure about this? I ask, touching her hand. She nods. Not entirely, but that's life. Severo, you're still prime. Severo hops down from the crate. Obviously. I'm here, ain't I? Severo helps me maneuver the grav rig through the brig's doors. The guard station is deserted. Food wrappers and tobacco dip cups, all that remain of the Sun's team who guarded the prisoners. Severo follows me from the entrance down into the decagon room of duroglass cells, whistling the tune he made for Pliny. If your leg's a little wet, he sings as we stop before Cassius's cell. Antonia's cell is across from his. Her face swollen from her beating, she watches us hatefully without moving from her cell's cot. Severo knocks on the duroglass separating us from Cassius. Wakey, wakey, Sir Bologna. Cassius wipes his eyes of sleep and sits up from his bed, taking in Severo and I, but addressing Mustang. What's going on? We've arrived at Luna, I say. Not Mars? Cassius asks in surprise. Antonia shifts in her cot behind us, just as startled by the news as Cassius appears to be. Not Mars. You're actually attacking Luna, Cassius murmurs. You're insane. You don't have the ships. How do you even plan to get past the shields? Don't you worry about that, sweetheart, Severo says. We got our ways, but soon hot metal's gonna be sliding through this ship, and someone's likely gonna come in here and pop you in the head. Darrow here gets all sad thinking of that, and I don't like sad, Darrow. Cassius just stares at us like we're mad. He still doesn't get it. When you said you were done with this war, did you mean it? I ask. I don't understand. It's pretty bloody damn simple, Cassius, Mustang says. Yes or no? Yes, Cassius says from his cot. Antonius sits up to watch. I am. How could I not be? It's taken everything from me. All for people who only care about themselves. Well, I ask Severo. Oh, please, Severo snorts. You think that's gonna satisfy me? What game are you playing at? Cassius asks. Ain't no game, boyo. Darrow wants me to let you out. Cassius's eyes widen. But I need to know you aren't gonna come try to kill us. You're all about honor and blood debts, so I need you to swear an oath so I can sleep soundly. I killed your father. You really should stop reminding me of that. If you stay here, we can't protect you, I say. I believe the worlds still need Cassius Albalona, but there's no place for you here, and there's no place for you with the Sovereign. If you give me your oath, on your honor that you will leave this war behind you, I'll give you your freedom. Antonia bursts out laughing behind us. 
This is hilarious. They're toying with you, Cassie, just plucking you like a harp. Be quiet, you poisonous little brat! Mustang snaps. Cassius eyes Mustang, judging our proposal. You agree to this? It was my idea, she says. None of this is your fault, Cassius. I was cruel to you, and I'm sorry for that. I know you wanted revenge on Dara, on me. Not on you, not ever on you. Mustang flinches. But I know you've seen what revenge brings. I know you've seen what Octavia really is, what my brother really is. You're only guilty of trying to protect your family. You don't deserve to die here. You really want me to go? He asks. I want you to live, she says. And yes, I want you to go, and never come back. But... Go where? He asks. Anywhere but here. Cassius swallows, searching himself, not just seeking to understand what he owes honor or duty, but trying to imagine a world without her. I know the horrible loneliness he feels now, even as we give him freedom. Life without love is the worst prison of all. But he licks his lips and nods to Mustang, not to me. On my father, on Julian, I promise not to raise arms against any of you. If you let me go, I will leave, and I will never come back. You coward! Antonia punches the glass of her cell. You gory damn sniveling little whipped worm! I nudge Severo. Still your call. He tugs the hairs of his little goatee. Ah, oh, hell. You better be right about this, you pricklicks. Digging into his pocket, he pulls out the magnetic keycard, and Cassius's cell door unlocks with a heavy thunk. Then there's a shuttle waiting for you in the auxiliary hangar on this level, Mustang says evenly. It's been cleared to fly, but you have to go now. That means now, shithead, Severo says. They'll pop you in the back of the head. Antonia is saying, you traitor. Cassius puts a tentative hand on the cell door, as if he's afraid he'll push and find it locked and we'll laugh at him, and all the hope we've given him will be ripped away. But he has faith, and, stealing his face, he pushes. The cell's door swings outward. Cassius walks out to join us. He holds out his hands to be cuffed. You're a free man, Severo slurs, wrapping the orange box heavily with his knuckles. But you gotta get in the box so we can wheel you out of here without anyone seeing. Of course. He pauses and turns back to me to extend a hand. I take it, a strange feeling of kinship rising in me. Goodbye, Darrow. Good luck, Cassius. And for Mustang, he pauses, 
wanting to reach out and wrap his arms around her, but she merely sticks out a hand, cold even now to him. He looks at her hand and shakes his head, not accepting her gesture. We'll always have Luna, he says. Goodbye, Cassius. Goodbye. He goes to the crate, which Severo has opened, and looks inside. Hesitating there, wanting to say something to Severo, perhaps thank him one last time. I don't know if your father was right, but he was brave. He extends a hand to Severo as he did me. I'm sorry that he's not here. Severo blinks hard at the hand, wanting to hate it. This does not come easy for him. He's never been a gentle soul, but he does his best and he takes the outstretched hand. They shake, but something feels wrong. Cassius won't let go. His face is cold, eyes unforgiving. His body rotates, so fast I can't stop him from jerking back on Severo's hand, pulling my friend's smaller body forward toward him just as he swivels his hip, bringing Severo to his right armpit like they're dancing, so he can strip Severo's pistol from his leg holster. Severo stumbles, fumbling for the weapon, but it is already gone. Cassius shoves him off and stands behind him with the scorcher pressed to his spine. Severo's eyes are huge, staring at me in fear. Darrow! Cassius, no! I shout. This is my duty. Cassius! Mustang takes a step forward, outstretched hand trembling. He saved your life! Please! On your knees! Cassius says to us. On your gory damn knees! I feel myself teetering on the edge of a precipice, the darkness spreading out before me, whispering to have me back. I can't reach for my razor. Cassius could easily shoot me down before I even pull it. Mustang goes to her knees and motions me to get down. Numbly, I follow her lead. Kill him! Antonia's shouting. Shoot the bastard! Cassius, listen to me. I beg. I said on your knees. Cassius repeats to Severo. My knees? Severo smiles wickedly. A mad gleam in his eye. Stupid gold. You forgot howler rule number one. Never bow. He snatches up his razor from his right wrist, tries to spin around, but he's too slow. Cassius shoots him in the shoulder, jerking him sideways. The combat vest cracks. Blood sprays onto the metal wall. Severo stumbles forward, eyes wild. For gold, Cassius whispers, and fires six more shots point-blank into Severo's chest. Chapter 58 Fading Light Blood erupts from Severo's chest, spraying my face. He stumbles, drops his razor, collapses to his knees, gasping in shock. I rush to him under the muzzle of Cassius's smoking weapon. Severo's grasping at his chest, confused. Blood dribbles from his mouth, bubbling out through his vest, staining my hands. He coughs it onto me. He's desperate to rise, to laugh it off, 
but nothing's working. His arms tremble, his breath ragged, eyes huge, fear wild and deep and primal in him as Antonia cackles in delight from her cell. Don't die, I say frantically. Don't die, Severo. He shivers in my arms. Severo, please, please, stay alive, please, Severo. Without a final word, without a plea or a flicker of personality, he goes still, leaking red. Pulse fading away as tears stream down my face, and Antonia howls in mockery. I cry out in horror at the bleak evil I feel in the world, rocking there on the floor with my best friend, overwhelmed by this darkness and the hate and the helplessness. Cassius stares pitilessly down at me. Reap what you sow, he says. I rise with a horrible sob. He strikes me on the side of the head with the scorcher. I don't go down. I take the blow and pull my razor, but he hits me twice more and I fall. He takes my razor from me, holding it to Mustang's throat as she tries to rise. He points the gun at my forehead as I look up at him and is about to pull the trigger. The Sovereign will want him alive, Mustang says. Yes, Cassius replies quietly, overcoming his anger. Yes, you're right. So she can peel him apart till you tell us your battle plans. Cassius, get me out of this damned cell. Antonia hisses. Cassius moves Severo's body over with his foot and pulls out the pass car to open her door. When Antonia exits her cell, she does so like a queen. Prisoner slippers making little tracks in Severo's fresh blood. She knees Mustang in the face. Mustang goes down. My own vision wavers in and out. Nausea in my gut from a concussion. Warmth from Severo's blood leaking through my shirt along the belly. Antonia sighs above me. Ugh, the goblins still leaking everywhere. Guard them and get their data pads, Cassius orders. We need a map. Where are you going? Getting manacles. He tosses her the scorcher. As he disappears around the corner, Antonia crouches over me, considering. She pushes the gun against my lips. Open. She punches my testicles. Open. Eyes rolling in pain, I open my mouth. She shoves the scorcher barrel inside. The alien metal presses against the back of my throat. Teeth scrape along the black steel. I gag, feel bile coming up. She stares me hatefully in the eyes, crouched over my head, the barrel down my throat as my body convulses, only pulling it out as I vomit on the ground. Worm. She spits on me and takes our data pads and razors, tossing Severos to Cassius when he returns from the guard station. They fit me in a prisoner harness, a metallic muzzle and vest combination that interlocks the arms and pins them to my chest so that my fingers are touching the opposite shoulder, and dump me into the container we brought for him, forcing my knees to bend so I fit. 
I am unable to arrest my fall with my hands, and my head slams on the plastic at the bottom. Then they pile Severo and Mustang in atop me like garbage, and slam shut the crate. Severo's blood drips down my face. My own leaks from the gash on the side of my head. Too dazed to weep or move. Daryl, Mustang murmurs. Are you all right? I don't answer her. You find a map? I hear Cassius ask Antonia through the crate. And a jammer for cameras, she says. I'll push. You range if you can manage. I can manage. Let's go. The jammer pops and the grav rig moves, taking us along with them. If Severo and Mustang were not atop me, I could crouch and put my back into the lid. But their weight pins me down in the small container. It's hot. Smells like sweat. Hard to breathe. I'm helpless in here. Unable to stop them as they use the path I cleared for Cassius. Unable to stop them as they push us across the deserted hangar, up the ramp into the ship, and begin pre-flight checks. Shuttle S-129, you are clear for departure. Stand by for pulse shield deactivation. The flight officer says over the comm from the distant bridge as the engines prime. You are go for launch. Out from the belly of the warship, my enemies smuggle me away from the comfort of my friends, the safety of my people, and the might of my army as it prepares for war. I hold my breath, expecting Orion's voice to come over the comm, to ground the ship, for rip wings to shoot her engines out. None do. Somewhere, my mother will be making tea, wondering where I am, if I am safe. I pray she cannot feel this pain across the void, this fear that consumes me despite all my vaunted strength and foolish bluster. I'm afraid, despite what I know. Not just for myself, but for Mustang. I hear Antonia and Cassius speaking beyond the crate. Cassius has broadcast an emergency signal from the craft. A few moments later, a cold voice crackles over the comm. Sarpedon Shuttle, this is the LDC Assault Runner Kronos. You have transmitted an Olympic distress signal. Please identify yourself. Kronos, this is the morning night. Clearance code 787 Echo Alpha 91227. I have escaped from imprisonment aboard the enemy's flagship and am requesting escort and docking clearance. Antonia Au Severus Julii is with me. We have valuable cargo. The enemy is in pursuit. There's a pause. Register, code accepted. Hold on the comm. The next voice you hear will be the Protean Knights. A moment later, Aja's voice rumbles through the ship, filling me with dread. So she did survive the waste to find her way back home. Cassius, you're alive. For now. What is your cargo? The Reaper, Virginia, and the body of Ares, Antonia says excitedly. The body. I want to see them. Boots thud toward my container. The top opens and Cassius hauls Mustang out, 
Then he hauls me out and tosses me to the ground before the hologram. Small and dark in the holographic projector, Aja watches us with otherworldly calm. Antonia keeps Severo's gun trained on my head as Cassius pulls up Severo's head by his mohawk to show his face. Gory hell, Bologna, Aja says, excitement entering her voice. Gory hell! You've done it! The Sovereign will want to see you in the Citadel. Before I do, I need you to assure me that no harm will come to Virginia. What are you talking about? Antonia asks, wary how close Cassius stands near her with his razor. She's a traitor. And she'll be imprisoned, Cassius says. Not executed, not tortured. I need your word, Aja, or I turn this ship around. Darrow killed your sister. Do you want vengeance or not? You have my word, Aja says. No harm will befall her. I am sure Octavia will agree. We need her to settle things with the rim. We're sending squadrons to intercept your pursuit. Redirect to Vector 4113.25. Circle the moon and await contact from the Lion of Mars for docking instructions. We can't clear your ship to land moonside. But Arch Governor Augustus will be joining the Sovereign in the Citadel within the hour. I don't think he'll mind offering you a ride down. The Arch-Governor is here, Cassius asks. I don't see his ships. Of course he's here, Aja replies. He knew Dara was never going to Mars. His entire fleet is on the far side of Luna, waiting for them to attack my father's. This is his trap. Chapter 59 The Lion of Mars Mustang and I are dragged down the cargo plank of the shuttle by obsidians in black armor, each nearly as large as Ragnar and wearing the badge of the lion. I try to kick up at them, but they jam two-meter-long iron pikes into my stomach, electrocuting me. My muscles cramp, electricity screaming through me. They toss me down to the deck, pulling me up by my hair so I'm on my knees, staring down at the body of Severo. Mercifully, his eyes are shut, his mouth pink from smeared blood. Mustang tries to rise, a muffled thump as an obsidian hits her in the stomach, putting her back on her knees, gasping for breath. Cassius has been forced to his knees as well. Antonia joins Lilith, who stands before us in black armor, a screaming gold skull on either shoulder, and another in the center of the breastpiece. Down her sides are human rib bones embedded in the armor, the first bone rider in all her barbaric finery. The jackal Severo. Head shaved. Quiet eyes sunken in a small, pinched face that likes little of what it sees in the world. Behind her tower ten young peerless scarred, Heads shaved like hers for war. Scan them, she orders. What the hell is this? Cassius asks. Jackal's orders. Lilith watches carefully as the golds scan me. Cassius suffers the indignity as Lilith continues. Boss doesn't want tricks. 
I have the sovereign's warrant, he says. Where to take the Reaper and Virginia to the Citadel? Understood. We received the same orders. Bound there soon. She motions Cassius to stand as her men clear them. No bugs or devices or radiation tracking. Cassius dusts his knees off. I remain on mine as Lilith peers at Severo, who one of the obsidians has dragged down the ramp. She feels his pulse and smiles. A fine kill, Bologna. One bone rider, a lofty, striking man with blazing eyes and a statue's cheekbones, makes a little cooing noise. Tattooed fingers with painted nails tap his bottom lip. How much for Barker's bones? he asks. Not for sale, Cassius replies. The man flashes an arrogant smile. Everything's for sale, my goodman. Ten million credits for a rib? No. One hundred million? Come now, Bologna. My title, Legate Valiae Rath, is Morning Night. You may address me as Sir or not at all. Ares' body is property of the state. It's not mine to sell. But if you ask me about it again, I will have more than words with you, sir. Will you have a rut? Tactus's elder brother asks. Is that what you mean? I've never met the annoyingly aristocratic creature before, and I'm glad for it. Tactus seems the better of the bunch. You gory damn savage, Mustang says through bloody teeth. Savage? Tactus's brother asks. Such a pretty mouth. That's not how you should use it. Cassius takes a step toward the man. The other bone riders reach for their blades. Tharsis, shut up. Lilith tilts her head, listening to a calm in her ear as he returns to her side, lifting his nose. Yes, my liege, she says into her calm. Barker is dead. I checked. Antonia steps forward. Is that Adrius? Let me speak with him. She holds up a hand to the taller woman. Antonia wants to speak with you. She pauses. He says it can wait. Tharsis, Novas, uncuff the reaper and spread his arms. What about Virginia? Tharsis asks. Touch her, you die, Cassius says. That's all you need to know. There's fear behind Cassius's eyes, even if he doesn't show it. He never would have brought her here if he could have helped it. Unlike the Sovereign's men, the Jackal is liable to do anything at any time. Aja's guarantee of safety suddenly feels very frail. Why would the Sovereign send us here? No one will touch your prizes, Lilith says, voice that eerie one note, except the Reaper. I'm to deliver him, we know, but my master requires compensation for past grievances. The Sovereign granted him permission while you were landing. Precautionary measures. She flashes her data pad. Cassius reads the order and goes a little pale, looking back at me. Now may we proceed, or do you care to fuss further? Cassius has no choice. He depresses the remote. The metal cuffs locking my hands to my chest open.
Tharsis and Novas are there to grab my arms and haul them to the sides, wrapping their whip-form razors around each wrist, pulling taut till my shoulders grind in their sockets. You're going to let them do this? Mustang snarls at Cassius. What happened to your honor? Is it as false as the rest of you? He's about to say something, but she spits at his feet. Antonia smiles repugnantly, captivated by the sight of me in pain. Lilith takes my razor from Cassius and walks away toward the ripwings that escorted us into the hangar. There she holds my sling blade up into one of the smoldering engines. Tell me, Reaper, did you piddle my baby brother? Is that why he was so besotted? Tharsis asks as we wait. His perfumed locks fall over his eyes. He alone has not shaved his head. Well, you're not the first to plow that field, if you catch my flow. I stare straight ahead. Is he right or left-handed? Lilith calls over. Right, Cassius replies. Pollock's tourniquet, Lilith instructs. I realize what they intend, and my blood runs cold. It feels like it's happening to someone else. Even when the rubber tightens around my right forearm and the needle pricks of sensation tingle through the tips of my fingers. Then I hear my enemy. The clicking of his black boots. The delicate shift in everyone's mannerisms. The fear. The bone riders part to watch their master enter out of the mouth of the main hall to the hangar bay, flanked by a dozen more towering gold bodyguards with shaved heads. Each tall as Victra, gold skulls laugh on their collars, on the handles of their razors. Bones rattle on their shoulders, finger joints taken from their enemies. Taken from Lorne, from Fitchner, from my howlers. These are the killers of my time. Their arrogance drips from them. And they look at me. And it isn't hate I see in their violent eyes, but a fundamental absence of empathy. I told the jackal I didn't hate him. That was a lie. It's all I feel, watching him walk across the deck, the pistol he killed my uncle with hanging on a magnetic strip holster on his thigh, his armor gold, roaring with gold lions, human ribs implanted along the sides of the torso, each carved with details I cannot make out, hair combed and parted on the side, his silver stylus in his hand, twirling, twirling. Antonia takes a step toward him, but stops herself when she sees he's walking to Severo, and not to her. Good. The bones are intact. After he's examined Severo's bloody body, he stands over his sister. Hello, Virginia. Nothing to say. What is there to say? She asks through gritted teeth. What words have I for a monster? Hmm. He takes her jaw between his forefingers, causing Cassius's hand to drift to his razor. Lilith and the bone riders would cut him to pieces if he even drew it. 
It is us against the world, the jackal says softly. Do you remember telling me that? No. We were young. Mother had just died. I couldn't stop crying. And you said you'd never leave me. But then Claudius would invite you somewhere, and you'd forget all about me. And I'd stay home in a big old house and cry, because I knew even then I was alone. He taps her nose. These next hours are going to test who you are as a person, sister. I'm excited to see what's beneath all the bluster. He moves on to me, loosening my muzzle. Even on my knees, my physicality dwarfs him, fifty kilograms heavier. Still, his presence is like the sea, strange and vast and dark and full of hidden depths and power. His silence, his roar. I see his father in him now. He tricked me, guessing my play on Luna. And now I'm afraid all I've done is going to unravel. And here we are again, he says. I do not reply. Do you recognize these? He runs his stylus down the ribs in his armor, coming closer so I can see the details. My dear father thought a man's deeds make him. I rather think it's his enemies. Do you like it? He steps even closer. One of the ribs shows a helmet with a spiked sunburst. Another rib shows a head in a box. The jackal is wearing Fitchner's rib cage. Anger roars out of me and I try to bite his face, bellowing like a wounded animal, startling Mustang. I strain against the men holding me, trembling with rage, as the jackal watches me squirm. Cassius stares at the ground, avoiding Mustang's gaze. My voice croaks out of me, hardly my own. That deeper demon only the jackal can summon from me. I'm going to skin you, I say. Bored of me, he rolls his eyes and snaps his fingers. Put the muzzle back on. Tharsis binds my mouth. The jackal opens his arms as if welcoming two long-lost friends to a party. Cassius! Antonia! He says, heroes of the hour. My dear. What happened? He asks when he sees Antonia's face. They were lovers during my imprisonment. Sometimes I'd smell her on him as he came to visit me before the box. Or she'd drag a nail along his neck as she passed. He goes close to her now, taking her jaw in his hand, tilting her head to examine the damage done to her. Did Darrow do this? My sister, she corrects, disliking his examination. She mourned her face in our captivity more than she mourned her own mother's death. The bits will pay. And I'll have it fixed, don't worry. She pulls her head back from him. Stop, the jackal says sharply. Why fixed? It's disgusting. Disgusting? 
My dear, scars are what you are. They tell your story. This is Victor's story, not mine. You're still beautiful. He pulls her down gently by her chin and kisses her lips delicately. He doesn't care for her. Like Mustang said, we're just sacks of meat to him. But while Antonia's as wicked a thing as I've ever met, she wants to be loved, to be valued. The jackal knows how to use that. This was Barker's, Antonia says, handing the jackal Severo's pistol. The jackal runs a thumb over the howling wolves engraved in the hilt. Fine work, he says. He strips his own gun from his magnetic holster and tosses it to a bodyguard before holstering Severo's. Of course he takes my friend's pistol as a trophy. His starter pad flashes, and he holds up a hand for silence. Yes, Imperato? The grotesque Ash Lord appears in the air before the jackal as a disembodied gigantic head. Dark gold eyes peer out from beneath twin thickets of eyebrows. His jowls hang over the high black collar of his uniform. Augustus, the enemy is underway. Torch ships in front. They're coming for him, Cassius says. How many? the jackal asks. More than sixty, half bearing the red fox. Do you wish me to spring the trap? Not yet. I will assume command of your ships. You know the arrangement. The Ash Lord's wide mouth makes a straight line. I do. You are to continue to join the Sovereign as planned. Escort the Morning Knight and his package to the Citadel. My daughter will take custody of him there. Go now, for gold. For gold. The head disappears. The jackal glances over to the obsidians who pulled me down the cargo ramp. Slaves, attend to Peter Lysinos on the bridge. You are no longer needed. The obsidians leave without question. When they are gone, he eyes the thirty bone riders. The morning night has given us an opportunity to win this war today. The Telemannuses will come for my sister. The Howlers and the Sons of Ares will come for the Reaper. They will not have them. It is upon our shoulders to deliver them to the Sovereign and her strategists in the Citadel. He addresses Antonia and Cassius. Set aside your little grievances. Today we are gold. We can bicker when the rising is ash. Most of you lived the darkness of the caves with me. You watched by my side as this creature stole what was ours. They will take everything from us. Our homes, our slaves, our rights to rule. Today we fight to keep what is ours. Today we fight against the dying of our age. They lean into his words, awaiting his orders hungrily. It's terrifying to see the cult he's built around himself. He's taken bits of me, of my speaking pattern, and transposed it onto his own behavior. He continues to evolve. 
The jackal turns from his men as Lilith brings back my sling blade, red hot from the engine's heat, and hands it to him, hilt first. Lilith, you're to stay with the fleet. You're sure? You're my insurance plan. Yes, my liege. Antonia's not sure what they're talking about, and she doesn't like it one bit. The jackal twirls my razor in his hand. And then, looking between me and Mustang, he's struck by a thought. How long were you imprisoned by Darrow, Cassius? Four months. Four months. Then I believe you should do the honors. He flips the red-hot razor to Cassius, who smoothly catches it by its hilt. Cut off Darrow's hand. The Sovereign wants him alive, yes. And he will be. But she doesn't want him coming into our bunker with his sword arm attached to his body, now does she? We're to take all his weapons. New to the beast, and let's be on our way. Unless there's a problem. No problem, Cassius says, stepping forward. He lifts high the razor, metal throbbing with heat. Is this what you've become? Mustang asks. Cassius suffers her gaze, shame on his face. Look at me, Darrow, Mustang says. Look at me. I will myself to forget the blade, to watch her, taking strength from her. But as the superheated metal cleaves through the skin and bone of my right wrist, I forget her. I scream in pain, looking back where my hand was, to see a stump lazily dripping blood through charred capillaries. Smoke from my burning flesh slithers into the air, and through the agony I can see the jackal picking my hand up from the ground and holding it in the air, his newest trophy. Hic sunt leones, he says. Hic sunt leones, echo his men. Chapter 60 Dragons more. I think of my uncle as I cradle the charred stump of my right arm, shivering from pain. Is he with my father now? Does he sit with Eo by a wood fire, listening to the birds? Do they watch me? Blood weeps through the blackened flesh at my wrist. The pain is blinding, overtaking my entire body. I'm strapped beside Mustang into a seat in two parallel rows in the back of the military assault craft amidst thirty bone riders. The overhead light pulses an alien green. The ship shudders from turbulence. Luna is in storm. Huge thunderheads swaddling the cities. Black towers penetrating the murky clouds. All along the rooftops, Motes of light dance from the headlamps of oranges and high reds, my own brethren, who slave under the military yoke, preparing weapons that will fell their Martian kin. Brighter flood lamps bathe military scenes. Black shapes trimmed with evil red beacons zip and float between towers as squadrons of rip wings patrol the sky and golds and grav boots jump between towers kilometers apart, checking on defenses, preparing for the storm above, saying last words to friends, schoolmates, to lovers. 
passing the Elorian Opera House, I see a line of gulls perched on its highest crenellation, staring up at the sky, their glorious war helms spiked with horns, so they look like a troop of gargoyles balanced there, silhouetted by lightning, waiting for hell to rain. We drive towards the cauldron of clouds that swirls around the highest skyscrapers. Beneath the cloud layer, the interlocking skin of cityscape is quiet, dark in anticipation of orbital bombardment, except for the veins of flame that bleed across the horizon from riots in Lost City. Flashing emergency vehicles drive towards the blazes. The city has gathered its breath for hours, for days, and, with exhalation bare moments away, her seams strain and her lungs stretch to bursting. We taxi onto a circular landing pad, in atop the sovereign spire. There, Aja and a cohort of Praetorians meet us. The bone riders unload with grav boots before we land, covering the craft as it settles onto the pad. Cassius comes out, manhandling me along. He drags Severo with his other hand like a deer carcass. Antonia shoves Mustang along. The weary winter rain of the city moon drips down Aja's dark face. Steam rises from her collar, and a brilliant white smile slashes the night. Morning night, welcome home. The sovereign awaits. A kilometre beneath the surface of the moon, the great gravlift known only in military myth as the Dragon Maw stops, hissing open to lead down a dimly lit concrete hall to another door emblazoned with the Pyramid of the Society. There, blue light scans Aja's irises. The pyramid fractures in half, gears and huge pistons whirring. Technology here, older than the citadel above, ancient from a time when Earth stood the only enemy Luna knew, and the great American railguns were the fear of all Loonborn. It's a testament to the architecture and the discipline of the Praetorians that the great bunker of the Sovereign has not had to change substantially for more than seven hundred years. I wonder if Fitchner knew its inner workings. Doubtful. Seems a secret Aja would hoard. But I wonder if she even knows all the secrets of this place. Tunnels to the left and right of the narrow hall we passed through are long ago collapsed, and I can't help but wonder who once walked through them, who collapsed them, and why. We pass heavily guarded rooms aglow with hollow lights. Sinked blues and greens lying back in tech beds, IVs hooked into their bodies as data streams through their brains via uplink nodes embedded in their skulls, eyes lost to some distant plane. It's the central nervous system of the society. Octavia can wage a war from here, even if the moon falls to ruin around her. The obsidians here wear black helmets with draconic-shaped skulls and dark purple on their body armor. Gold letters spelling Cohors Nihil wind along the short swords at their sides. Zero Legion. I've never heard of them, but I see what they guard. 
one last door of solid, unadorned metal, the deepest refuge of the society. It dilates open with a groan, and only then, a year and a half since I jumped out the back of her assault shuttle, do I see the silhouette of the sovereign. Her patrician voice echoes down the hall. Jonas, who cares about civilian casualties? Does the sea ever run out of salt? If they manage an iron rain, you shoot them down, whatever the cost. The last thing we desire is for the obsidian horde to land here and link with the riots in Lost City. The ruler of all I've ever fought against stands in a depressed circle at the centre of a large grey and black room, bathed in blue light from the Praetors and Ashlord who surround her in holographic form. There's more than forty in a semicircle, the veterans of her wars. Pitiless creatures, watching me enter the room with the dark, smug contentment of cathedral statues, as if they always knew it would come to this, as if they earned this end of mine and didn't luck into it just as they lucked into their birth. They know what my capture means. They've been broadcasting it non-stop to my fleet, trying to take our comms with hacking attacks to spread the word among my ships, spreading it to Earth to quell the uprisings there, pimping the signal to the core to forestall any more civil unrest. They'll do the same with my execution, the same with Severo's dead body. And maybe Mustang despite the deal Cassius thinks he's struck. Look what befalls those who rise against, they will say. Look how even these mighty beasts fall before gold. Who else can stand against them? No one. Their grip will tighten. Their reign will strengthen. If we lose today, a new generation of gold will rise with vigor unseen since the fall of Earth. They will see the threat to their people, and they will breed creatures like Aja and the Jackal by the thousands. They'll build new institutes, expand their military, and throttle my people. That is the future that could be. The one Fitner feared the most. The one I fear is coming as I watched the jackal move past me into the room. His obsidians are not trained in extraplanetary warfare, one of the Peters is saying. You want to tell that to Fabii? the sovereign asks. Or perhaps to his mother? She's with the other senators who I had to corral in the chamber before they could flee like little flies and take their ships with them. Politico cravens, someone murmurs. Aside from the glowing holographs, the room is occupied by a small host of martial golds. More than I expected. Two Olympic knights, ten Praetorians, and Lysander. Ten years of age now, he has grown nearly half a foot since last I saw him. He carries a data pad to make copious notes of his grandmother's conversation, and smiles to Cassius as we enter, 
watching me with the wary interest you'd watch a tiger through duroglass. His crystal gold eyes take in my bindings, Aja, and my missing hand, mentally tapping the glass with a nail to see just how thick it is. The two Olympic knights greet Cassius quietly as we enter, so as not to disturb the sovereign in her debriefing, though she's noted my presence with an emotionless glance. Both knights are heavily armoured and ready to defend their sovereign. Above the sovereign, a globular hollow dominates the domed ceiling of the room, showing the moon in perfect detail. The Ash Lord's fleet is spread out like a screen to cover Luna's dark side, where the citadel is, like a concave shield. The battle is well underway, but my forces have no way of knowing that the jackal is just waiting to swing around their flank and hammer them against the Ash Lord's anvil. If only I could reach Orion, she might find some way to salvage this. The jackal quietly takes a seat to the side, patiently watching the Ash Lord give instructions to a sphere of torchships. Cassius, you gory damn hound, the truth knight says, voice a deep baritone, his eyes narrow and Asiatic. He's from Earth, and he's more compact than us Martians. Is it really him? Bones and heart. Took him from his flagship, Cassius says, kicking me to my knees and hauling back my head by my hair so they can better see my face. He tosses several on the ground, and they inspect the kill. The joy knight shakes his head. He's thinner than Cassius and twice again as aristocratic, from an old Venusian family. Met him once at a duel on Mars. Augustus, too. Don't you just have all the luck? And Arja bagged the obsidian. Fear and love are going to get Victra and that white witch. I'd kill to snag Victra, Truth says, walking around me. That'd be a dance. Say, didn't you bed her, Cassius? I never kiss and tell. Cassius nods to the battle. How do we fare? Better than Fabia, I... They're tenacious, hard to pin down, keep trying to close so they can use their obsidian, but the Ash Lord's keeping them at a distance. The Arch-Governor's fleet will be the hammer that wins this. They're already coming around their flank. See? The knight looks longingly at the hollow. Cassius notices. You could always join, Cassius says. Order a shuttle. That would take hours, Truth replies. We've four knights in engagement already. Someone has to protect Octavia, and my ships are being held in reserve, protecting the day side. If they make landfall, which is doubtful at this point, we'll need martial men on the ground. We'll have to wash his face. What? Barker's face. It's too bloody. We'll make the broadcast soon if we're not hacked again. Saboteurs were wrecking operations. More of Quicksilver's boys. All sorts of tech-head democratic filth with delusions of grandeur. But we hit one of their dens last night with a lurcher squad. Best way to stop a hacker? Hot metal, Joy adds. The enemy is brave, 
I'll give them that, the Ash Lord is saying in the center of the room, his hologram twice again the width of his adjuncts. Cutting off their escape, but still they're standing toe-to-toe. He's on a corvette in the back of his fleet, his signal being rerouted through dozens of other ships. The Ash Lord's fleet moves with beautiful precision, never allowing my ships within fifty kilometers. Roke cared about casualties, cared about not destroying the beautiful three-hundred-year-old ships I'd captured. The Ash Lord has no such restraint. He thuggishly smashes ships to oblivion. Damn their heritage, damn the lives, damn the expense. He's a destroyer. Here, with his back to the wall, he will win at all cost. It aches to see my fleet suffer. Report when you have further news, the Sovereign says. I want Daxo out Telemannus alive, if possible. All others are expendable, including his father and the Julii. Yes, my liege. The old killer salutes and disappears. With a tired sigh, the Sovereign turns to look at her morning night and extends her arms as if greeting a long-lost child. Cassius. She embraces him after he bows, kissing his forehead with the same familiarity she once had for Mustang. My heart broke when I heard what happened on the ice. I thought you were slain. Aja was right to think I was. But I'm sorry it took so long for me to return from the dead, my liege. I had unfinished business to attend. So I see, the sovereign says, caring little for me focusing on Mustang instead. I do believe you've won the war, Cassius. The both of you. She nods without smile to the jackal. Your ships will make this a short battle. It is our pleasure to serve, the jackal replies with a knowing smile. Yes, the sovereign says in a strange, almost nostalgic way. Her fingers traced the scars on Cassius's broad neck. Did they hang you? Oh, they tried. It didn't quite take. He grins. You remind me of Lorn when he was young. I know she once said to Virginia that she reminded her of herself. The affection is more real than the jackal has for his men, but she's still a collector still using love and loyalty as a shield to protect herself. The sovereign gestures to me, wrinkling her nose at the metal muzzle around my face. Do you know what he's planning? Anything that will compromise our endgame? From what I glean, he's planning an attack on the Citadel. Cassius, stop! Mustang snaps. She doesn't care about you. And you do? The sovereign asks. We know exactly what you care about, Virginia, and what you'll do to get it. By air or ground? The jackal asks. The attack. Ground, I believe. Why didn't you mention this in space? You are more concerned with chopping off Darrow's hand. The jackal ignores the barb. How many claw drills are there on Luna? None working. Not even in the abandoned mines, the Sovereign says. We made sure of that. 
If he has a team coming, it'll be Volaris and Julii, the jackal says. They're his best weapons, and helped him take the Moonbreaker. Volaris is the Obsidian? the Sovereign asks. Yes? Queen of the Obsidian, Mustang says. You should meet her. You'd remind Sephi of her mother. Queen of the Obsidian? They are united? The Sovereign asks Cassius warily. Is that right? My politico said pan-tribal leadership was impossible. And they were wrong, Cassius says. Antonius seizes a moment to stand out in the Sovereign's eyes. It's only the Obsidian in Darrow's fold, my liege, an alliance of the southern tribes. The Sovereign ignores her. I don't like it. We have hundreds of Obsidians in the Citadel alone. They're loyal, Aja says. How do you know? Cassius asks. Are any from Mars? Octavia looks to Aja for confirmation. Most, Aja admits, even zero legion. Martian obsidians are the best. I want them out of the bunker, Octavia says. Now. One of the Praetorians moves to do her bidding. Is she as formidable as her brother? Aja asks Cassius. Worse, Mustang says from her knees with a laugh. Far worse and far brighter. She fights with a pack of warrior women. She has sworn a blood oath to find you, Aja, to drink your blood and use your skull as her chalice in Valhalla. Sefi is coming, and you cannot stop her. Aja and Octavia exchange a wary look. They would have to land first before making an assault on the citadel, Aja says. It's impossible. How are they coming? Cassius asks me. I shake my head and laugh at him behind my muzzle. Aja kicks the stump of my right hand. I almost black out as I curl around the wound in pain. How are they coming? Cassius asks. I don't reply. Emotions to the joy knight. Hold out his other arm. Joy knight grabs my left arm and pulls it out. How are they coming? He asks not me, but Mustang. I will cut off his other hand if you do not tell me. Followed by his feet and nose and eyes. How is Volaris coming? You're going to kill him anyway, Mustang sneers. So fuck you. How slowly he dies is up to you, Cassius says. Who said they didn't already land? Mustang asks. What? They came in the grain ships from Earth, compliments of Quicksilver. Landed hours ago. And they're pressing for the Citadel now. Ten thousand strong. Didn't you know? Ten thousand? Lysander murmurs from his chair to the side of the hollow pit. His grandmother's dawn scepter lies on the table before him. A meter-long length of gold and iron, it's tipped with the triangle of the society, and the withered heart of the obsidian warlord who led the Dark Revolt nearly five hundred years ago.
The legions are deployed to halt an invasion. The obsidians will overrun our defences before they can return. I will make ready the Praetorians and recall two legions, Aja says, striding for the door. No. Octavia stands motionless, thinking. No, Aja. You stay with me. She turns to the Praetorian captain. Legatus, go reinforce the surfers. Take your platoon. There's no need for them here. I have my knights. Any ship approaching the citadel should be fired upon. I don't care if it claims to carry the Ashlord himself. Do you understand? It will be done. Legatus and the remaining Praetorians rush out, leaving the room deserted save for Cassius, the three Olympic knights, Antonia, the jackal, the sovereign, three Praetorian guards, and us prisoners. Aja presses her palm into a console near the door. The sanctum seals behind the Praetorians. A second, thicker door appears from the walls in a corkscrew, slowly locking us off from the world beyond. I'm sorry, Aja, Octavia says as the woman returns to her side. I know you want to be with your men, but we already lost Moira. I couldn't risk losing you too. I know, Aja replies, but her disappointment is obvious. Their Praetorians will deal with the Horde. Shall we attend the other matter? Octavia glances over to the jackal, and he gives her the barest of nods. Severus Julii, come forward, Octavia says. Antonia does, surprised to have been singled out. A hopeful smile works its way onto her lips. No doubt she is to receive a commendation for her efforts today. She clasps both hands behind her back and waits before her sovereign. Tell me, Praetor, you were conscripted to join the Sword Armada as it subjugated the Moon Lords in June of this year, were you not? Antonia frowns. My liege, I do not understand. It's a fairly simple question. Answer it to the best of your abilities. I was. I led my family's ships and the 5th and 6th legions. Under the pro-term command of Roque Au Fabii? Yes, my liege. Then tell me, how is it that you are still alive and your imperator is not? I only barely managed to escape the battle, Antonia says, seeing the danger in the line of questioning. Her voice modulates accordingly. It was a terrible calamity, my liege. With the howlers hidden in Thebe, Roque, Imperator Fabii, fell into the trap twofold, through no fault of his own. Any would have done the same. I made effort to rescue his command, to rally our ships, but Darrow had already reached his bridge, and torch ships were burning all around us. We did not know friend from foe. It's haunted my dreams, the sounds of the obsidian horde pouring through their ships. Liar! Mustang snorts a derision. And so you retreated? At grave cost, yes, my liege. I saved as many ships for the society as I could— I saved my men, knowing they would be needed for the battle to come. It was all I could do. 
It was a noble thing, saving so many, the sovereign says. Thank, at least it would be, if it were true. I beg your pardon? I don't believe I have ever stuttered, girl. I do, however, believe you fled the battle, abandoning your post and your imperator to the enemy. You are calling me a liar, my liege. Obviously, Mustang says. I will not stand aspersions against my honor. Antonia snaps at Mustang, puffing up her chest. It is beneath... Oh, be still, child, the sovereign says. You are in deep waters here, with larger fish than you. You see, others escaped the battle. Others who transmitted their battle analytics to us so we would know what happened. So we could assess the calamity and see how Antonia of the Severus Julii disgraced her name and lost us the battle, abandoning her preacher when he called for aid, fleeing for the belt to save her own hide when she then lost her ships. Fabii lost the battle, she says vindictively. Not I. Because his allies abandoned him, Aja purrs. He might still have saved his command had you not thrown his formation to chaos. Fabii made mistakes, the sovereign says. But he was a noble creature and as loyal a servant to his color. He was even honorable enough to take his own life, to accept that he had failed and to pay justly for it and ensure he would not be interrogated or bartered. His last act in destroying the rebel docks was the act of a hero. An iron gold. But you, you scurrilous craven, you fled like a little girl who pissed her white day dress. You abandoned him to save yourself. Now you slander him in front of all, in front of his friend. She gestures protectively to Cassius. Your men saw the reptile underneath. That is why they turned on you, why you lost your ships to your better sister. I would see whoever lays these claims against me in the bleeding place, Antonia says, trembling with anger. My honor will not be smeared by faceless, jealous creatures. It is sad that they would manufacture evidence to smear my good name. No doubt they have ulterior motives. Perhaps intentions against my company, or my holdings, or they seek to undermine gold as a whole. Adrius, tell the sovereign how ridiculous this all is. But Adrius remains quiet. Adrius? I'd rather have the loyalty of a dog than that of a coward, he says. Lilith was right. You are weak, and that is dangerous. Antonia looks about like a drowning woman, feeling the water coming over her head, undertow pulling her down, nothing to grab onto, nothing to save her. Aja swells behind her like a dark wave as Octavia denounces her formally. Antonia owes Severus Julii. Matron of House Julii and Praetor First Class of the Fifth and Sixth Legions, by the power invested in me by the Compact of the Society, 
I find you guilty of treason and dereliction of duty in a time of war, and hereby sentence you to death. You bitch! Antonia hisses at her. Then to the jackal, You can't afford to kill me. Aegis, please. But she has no ships anymore. No face. Tears stream out of swollen eyes as she seeks some hope here, some way out. There is none, and when she meets my gaze, she knows what I am thinking. Reap what you sow. This is for Victra and Lear and Thistle and all the others she would sacrifice so she could live. Please, she whimpers. But there is no mercy here. Aja grasps Antonia's neck from behind. She shivers in horror, shrinking to her knees, not even attempting to fight, as the huge woman slowly closes her hands and begins to strangle her to death. Antonia snorts, wriggles, and takes a full minute to die. When she has, Aja completes the execution by snapping her neck with a violent twist and tossing her atop Severo's corpse. What an odious creature, the sovereign says, turning from Antonia's body. At least her mother had spine. Cassius, your shoes are filthy. Blood crusts the rubber soles of his prison slippers and spatters the green jumpsuit's legs. There's a complex of sleeping quarters through there. A kitchen, showers. Clean yourself. My valet has been attempting to foist a meal on me for hours. I'll have him serve it here for you. You won't miss the battle. The Ash Lord has promised it will last another several hours, at the very least. Lysander, will you show him the way? I won't leave your side, my liege. Cassius says very nobly. Not till this is through, and these monsters are put down. The truth knight rolls his eyes at the display. You're a good lad, she says, before turning toward me. Now, it's time we dealt with the red. Chapter 61 The Red Azure drags me to the sovereign's feet at the center of the hollow pad. The cold sneer of command is etched deeply into the tyrant's marble face. Her shoulders are weary, though, pressed down by the weight of empire and the shadowy mass of a hundred years of sleepless nights. Her tightly bound hair is shot with deep rivers of grey. Tendrils of blue worm through the corners of her eyes from relapsed cellular rejuvenation therapy, She's had no peace from me. Kneeling and bleeding though I am, it does my soul good to know I've haunted her nights. Remove his muzzle, she tells Aja, who stands behind me, preparing to administer the sovereign's justice. The truth knight and the joy knight flank Octavia. Cassius stands over Mustang to the side in his prisoner greens among the Praetorians 
while the jackal watches from his chair near Lysander, sipping a coffee brought by the valet. I stretch my jaw as the muzzle comes off. Imagine a world without the arrogance of the young, Octavia says to her fury. Imagine a world without the greed of the old, I reply hoarsely. Azure slams the side of my head with her fist. The world flashes black and I almost keel over. Why'd you take his muzzle off if you wanted him to be silent? Mustang asks. The jackal laughs. A fair point, Octavia. Octavia scowls at him. Because we executed a puppet last time, and the worlds know it. This is flesh and blood. The red who rose. I want them to know it is him who falls. I want them to know that even their best is insignificant. Give him words and he'll just make another slogan, the jackal warns. Octavia, do you really think my brother won't kill you? Mustang asks. He won't rest until you're dead, until you're all dead, till he takes your scepter and sits on your throne. Of course he wants my throne. Who wouldn't? The sovereign says. What is my charge, Lysander? To defend your throne. To create a union where it is safer for subjects to follow than to fight. That is the role of sovereign. Be loved by a few, be feared by the many, and always know thyself. Very good, Lysander, she says sadly. The purpose of a sovereign isn't to rule. It's to lead, I say. Not even hearing me, she turns to the joy knight, who is at the controls of the holodeck, preparing her broadcast. Is it ready? Yes, my liege. Greens have restored the links. It'll go out live to the core. Say your goodbyes to the red, Mustang, Aja says, patting Mustang's head. Can't even do it yourself, I ask the jackal. What a man you are. He frowns. I want to do it, Octavia, the jackal says suddenly, rising from his seat and walking out to the holodeck. Olympic knights carry out executive executions, Archer says. It's not your place, Arch-Governor. I don't remember asking for your permission. Arja bears her teeth at the insult, but the sovereign's hand on her shoulder restrains her tongue. Let him do it, the sovereign says. Strange, the sovereign's deference to the jackal. It's out of character, but in keeping with the oddness I felt between them on the day. Why would he be here, I wonder? Not Luna. That's obvious enough. But why would he come to a place where the Sovereign has absolute power over him? At any moment, she could kill him. He must have something over her to buy himself immunity. What is his play here? I sense Mustang trying to divine the same answer as Aja moves away from me. The Joy Knight offers the Jackal a scorcher, but Adrius refuses. Instead, he picks Severo's gun from his holster. 
and twirls it around his index finger. He's no gold, the jackal explains. He doesn't deserve a razor or a state death. He'll go like his uncle. In any matter, I very much would like to begin the transition as the hand of justice. Plus, offing Darrow with Severo's gun is... more poetic, don't you think, Octavia? Very well. Is there anything else you would like? The sovereign asks tiredly. No, you've been most accommodating. The jackal takes Azure's place beside me as the sovereign transforms before our eyes, the exhaustion burning away from her face as she adopts the serene, matronly visage I remember telling me, obedience, sacrifice, prosperity, time and time again from the H.C. and Lycos. Then... Octavia seemed a goddess, so far beyond mortal ken that I would have given my life to please her, to make her proud of me. Now I'd give my life to end hers. The joy knight nods to the sovereign. A light glows softly above her, empowering the woman with the fury and warmth of the sun. It's just a spotlight. The lamp deepens its glow. The jackal brushes an errant strand from his fastidiously parted hair and smiles fondly at me. The broadcast begins. Men and women of the society, Octavia says, this is your sovereign. Since the dawn of man, our saga as a species has been one of tribal warfare. It has been one of trial, one of sacrifice, one of daring to defy nature's natural limits. Then, after years of toiling in the dirt, we rose to the stars. We bound ourselves in duty. We set aside our own wants, our own hungers, to embrace the hierarchy of color not to oppress the many for the glory of the few, as Ares and this terrorist would have you believe, but to secure the immortality of the human race on principles of order and prosperity. It was an immortality that was assured before this man tried to steal it from us. She points a long, elegant finger at me. This man, once a noble servant of you, of your families, should have been the brightest son of his color. He was lifted up as a youth, awarded merits of honor, but he chose vanity to extend his own ego across the stars to become a conqueror. He forgot his duty. He forgot the reason for order and has fallen into darkness, dragging the worlds with him. But we will not fall into that darkness. No, we will not bend to the forces of evil. She touches her heart. We, 
We are the society. We are gold, silver, copper, blue, white, orange, green, violet, yellow, grey, brown, pink, obsidian, and red. The bonds that bind us together are stronger than the forces that pull us apart. For seven hundred years, gold has shepherded humanity, brought light where there was dark, plenty where there was famine. Today, we bring peace where there is war. But to have peace, we must destroy outright this murderer who has brought war to each and every one of our homes. She turns to me with a callousness that reminds me of how she watched my duel with Cassius, how she would have let me die then, sipped her wine, and been about her dinner. I am a speck to her, even now. She's thinking past this moment, past the time where my blood cools on the floor and they drag me off to be dissected. Darrow of Lycos, by the power entrusted in me by the compact, I hereby find you guilty of conspiracy to incite acts of terror. I stare directly into the holocam's optic lens, knowing how many countless souls watch me now, how many countless eyes will watch me long after I have gone. I find you guilty of mass murder upon the citizens of Mars. I barely listen to her. My heart thunders in my chest, rattling the fingers of my left hand, pushing up into my throat. This is it. The end swarming toward me. I find you guilty of murder. This moment... This fragment of time is my life in summary. It is my shout into the void. And I find you guilty of treason against your society. But I want no shout. Let that be for Roke. Let that be for the Golds. Give me something more. Something they cannot understand. Give me the rage of my people. The wrath of all people in bondage. As the sovereign recites her sentence, as the jackal waits to deliver it, as Mustang kneels on the ground, as Cassius watches me from among the Praetorians and knights, waiting, and as Azure sees me look to the tall, blonde knight, she steps forward in trepidation because she knows something is wrong. I throw back my head, and I howl. I howl for my wife, for my father, for Ragnar and Quinn and Pax and Nero, for all the people I've lost, for all they would take. I howl because I am a hell-diver of Lycos. I am the Reaper of Mars, and I have paid for access to this bunker with my flesh, all so I could come before Octavia, all so that I might either die with my friends or see our enemies brought to justice. The sovereign nods to the jackal to execute the sentence. He presses the barrel to the back of my head, and he squeezes the trigger. The gun 
kicks in his hand. Fire spits, scorching my scalp, deafening sound ringing through my right ear. But I do not fall. No bullet carves through my head. Smoke swirls out of the barrel, and as the jackal looks down at the gun, he knows. No. He steps away from me, dropping the gun, trying to pull out his razor. Octavia! Aja shouts, lunging forward. But just then, in that beat of the heart, the sovereign hears something behind the camera and turns to see a Praetorian guard with his head tilted, his pulse rifle thumping to the floor as a grisly red tongue protrudes from his mouth. Only it's not a tongue. It's Cassius's bloody razor that entered through the back of the Praetorian skull and out between his teeth. It disappears back into the mouth. The three guards fall before the sovereign can say a bloody damn word. Cassius stands behind the slaughtered men, his head lowered, his razor red, his left hand holding the remote control to my restraints and Mustangs. Bologna? Is all the sovereign can say before he presses the button. Mustang's steel vest unbuckles and falls to the ground. Mine follows suit. She dives for a dead Praetorian's pulse rifle. Unshackled, I rise, jerking my arms free and pulling the knife hidden inside the metal vest. I lunge toward the sovereign. Faster than she can blink, I jam the blade through her black jacket into the softness of her lower belly. She gasps, eyes huge, inches from mine. I smell the coffee on her breath, feel the flutter of her eyelashes as I stab her six more times in the gut, and on the last, rip the metal up toward her sternum. Hot blood pours over my knuckles and chest as she spills open. Octavia! Aja's charging me making it halfway before Mustang, firing from her knees, shoots her in the armored side with the pulse rifle. The blast lifts Aja off her feet, slapping her across the room into the wooden conference table beside Severo and Antonia's bodies, nearly crushing Lysander. Seeing their sovereign stumbling backward, gut ripped open, the Truth Knight and the Joy Knight both wheel on Cassius, pulling their razors from their hips, their shields thrumming to life. Unarmored, Wearing only his blood-spattered prison greens, Cassius flashes forward, skewering the surprised truth knight through his eye socket up through the roof of his skull. The jackal pulls my razor from his hip and slashes at me. I sidestep, coming at him. He swings again, screaming in rage, but I catch his arm and headbutt him in the face before sweeping his legs and tackling him to the floor. I take my razor and stake his left arm to the floor so that he has no free hand. He screams, his spit spattering my face, thrashing at me with his legs. I drop a knee into his forehead and leave him stunned and pinned to the floor. Darrow! Cassius calls to me as he duels the joy knight. Behind! Behind me, ashes rising from the shattered remains of the table eyes wide with rage. I run from her to help Cassius and Mustang, knowing she'd kill me in seconds with my right hand gone. Blood darkens Cassius's green jumpsuit. His left leg has been slashed badly by the better-armored Joy Knight, who is using his weight and the pulsing Aegis shield on his left arm to overwhelm Cassius. 
Mustang grabs two razors from the dead Praetorian and tosses one to me. I catch it on the run with my left hand, toggle the hilt, razor leaps to killing length. Cassius takes another slash to the leg and stumbles over a body, going down, blocking the second strike with the pulse fist, ruining the weapon. The joy knight's back is to me. He feels me coming, but it's too late. Silently, I jump through the air and swing a huge looping strike down at him from behind, left arm slowing as it meets the throbbing resistance of the pulse shield centimeters from the armor, then jerking as it cleaves into his sky-blue plate and through muscle and bone. Carrying from left shoulder to the right pelvis, parting his body at a diagonal, his body drips to the ground. Silence in the room as the bodies hit the floor. Mustang rushes to my side. She sweeps her golden mess of hair back, a fevered grin splitting her face. I help Cassius up from the ground. How was my acting? He asks, wincing. Not quite as good as your sword work, I say, looking at the bodies around him. He grins, more alive in battle than anywhere else. I feel a pang knowing this is always how it should have been. Missing the days where we rode together in the highlands, pretending we were lords of the earth. I grin back at him, wounded, bleeding, but almost whole for the first time I can remember. Will you two save the flirting for later? Mustang says. Side by side with her, we turn together to face the deadliest human being in the solar system. She's crouched over a terribly wounded Octavia, who has crawled to the edge of the holodeck and pants on her back, holding her stomach together with both hands. Octavia's pale and shivering. Tears stream down Aja's face and Lysander's, who has rushed into the pit to help his grandmother. Aja! The jackal screams from the floor. Kill them! Open the door or kill them! He's lost his mind, thrashing about, trying to reach the whip toggle on the razor with his stump. It's three and a half feet above him, and he just can't quite reach. Open it! He says through gnashing teeth. But to open the door, she must reach it. And to reach it, she must go through me and my friends, then present her back to us while she enters the code. She's trapped in here till we're dead, or she is. Aja, give us the sovereign. Her justice is due, I say, knowing what Aja's reply to that will be, but minding the holodeck is still active. Still broadcasting as gold blood wets the floor. Aja does not turn to look at us. Not yet. Her huge hands caress Octavia's face. She cradles the older woman like a mother holding her own child. Stay alive, she tells her. I will get you out of here, I promise. Just stay alive, Octavia. Octavia nods weakly. Lysander touches Asia's arm. Hurry, please. Wear her down, Mustang whispers. She's the one with the ticking clock. Don't let her pin you in a corner, I say. Move laterally, like we planned. Cassius, you can still take point. Just try to keep up, 
he says. Azure rises from her crouch to her full height, a brooding mass of muscle and armor, the greatest student of the greatest razor master the society has ever known. Face dark, unreadable. The deep blue protean armor moving subtly with sea dragons, shoulders nearly as broad as Ragnar's. I wish I could have brought Sefi here. A meter and a half of killing silver slithers out before Aja, and she takes the winter stance of the willow way, sword raised like a torch off to the side, left foot forward, hips sunken, knees slightly bent. Mustang and I slide apart, taking the right and left. Cassius, the best swordsman of us now, takes the middle. Aja's hungry eyes devour our weaknesses. The drag in Cassius's step, my missing right hand, Mustang's size, the arrangement of obstacles on the floor. And she attacks. There are two strategies when fighting multiple opponents. The first is use them against one another. But Cassius and I have always been of one mind in battle, and Mustang is adaptable. So Aja chooses the second option, an all-out attack on me before Cassius or Mustang can come to my aid. She deems me the weakest enemy. And she is right. Her whip cracks toward my face faster than I can bring my blade up. I flinch back, almost losing my eye, throwing my center off balance. She is on me, blade rigid, poking at me in a poetic frenzy of carefully constructed movements to bring my blade out of position across my body so she can perform Lorne's maneuver called the wing scalp, where she tries to lever her blade atop mine to touch the tip to my sword arm's shoulder and scrape down to the outside of my wrist to peel off the muscle and tendons along the way. I dance back, robbing her the leverage, navigating the corpses behind me as Cassius and Mustang close on Azure. Cassius is rushed in his approach, and he overextends like I almost did. But Aja doesn't use her razor. She activates her grav boots in a quick burst and launches back at him, two hundred kilograms of armor and peerless scarred propelled by grav boots, crashes into flesh and bones. You can almost hear his skeleton creak. His body wraps around her, forehead smashing against her armored shoulder. He drips off her, and she spikes him to the ground. Mustang rushes her flank to stop her from finishing Cassius off, but Aja was expecting the rush from Mustang and uses Cassius to bait her. She slashes Mustang shallowly across the stomach, nearly opening her lower intestine. I hurl my razor at Aja from behind. She somehow hears or feels it coming and bends sideways as it passes and sticks into the wall of the holodeck that separates it from the sitting room above. Aja's leg shoots out at Mustang, impacting her kneecap and jamming it backward. Can't tell if it dislocates, but Mustang stumbles back, razor outstretched, and Aja turns back toward me, because I have no weapon. Shit, 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 shit! I hiss, scrambling toward the Praetorians to pick up one of their razors. I gain a pulse rifle and fire blindly behind me, Azure's pulse shield absorbs the munitions, throbbing crimson as she sprints at me and slashes the weapon from my hand. 
I escape again, rolling backward, taking a long, burning gash on the back of my hamstrings, but gaining a razor as I jump out of the holodeck ring up to the sitting level several feet above. She picks up a pulse fist and shoots it at me. I dive down so she loses her shot. The steel ceiling above me bubbles and drips down. I roll to the side. Razors keen on the deck bellow. I scramble back to the lip to get back in the fight. Aja's cutting us to ribbons, and all Fleeing does is allow her to turn back to Cassius and Mustang. She bears down on him, using his limp against him and the new wound in his shoulder. Mustang attacks from behind before he's cut down, but Aja bends when Mustang slashes, moving like she's studied the fight before it ever happened. We're not going to put her down, I realize. This was our fear. Losing my hand was never part of the plan either. One by one, she's going to kill us. I have a brief moment of hope when Mustang and Cassius finally pin Aja between them. I jump down to help the assault. The woman pivots and twirls like a willow caught among three tornadoes. She knows her armor will take our glancing blows, but our skin can't take hers. She goes for shallow cuts, bleeding us out methodically, aiming for the tendons in our knees, arms, like Lorne taught us both. A sage digging the roots. Her blade cuts deep into my forearm, lacerates my knuckles, taking off a corner of my pinky. I roar anger, but anger isn't enough. My instincts aren't enough. We're too spent, too overwhelmed by the monstrosity of her. Lorne trained her too well. Spinning, she delivers a two-handed thrust up into the right side of my ribcage. My world rocks. She lifts me up with a horrible bellow. My feet dangle half a meter above the deck. Cassius charges her, and she flings me off the edge of her blade to parry his attack. I crash to the ground, my chest feeling like it is caving in on itself. Gasp for air, barely able to draw breath. Cassius and Mustang put themselves between Aja and me. Do not touch him, Mustang hisses. The blade missed my organs wedging itself between two of the reinforced ribs Mickey gave me. But I'm bleeding all over myself, trying to stand, scrambling across the deck. The jackal watches me from his place on the ground, exhausted from trying to free himself. He's grinning, despite the horror of bodies all around us, knowing Azure is going to kill me. The sovereign's face, distant and fading, she watches too, propped up against the lip of the holodeck as it rises to the rest of the room, Lysander's hands holding her together. Aja looks at her in fear, knowing she has not long to live. How could you choose him over us? Aja shouts in rage to Mustang and Cassius. Easily, Mustang replies. Cassius pulls the syringe from the holster on his leg and tosses it across the room to me. Do it before she kills us, man. I stumble to my feet as Aja tries furiously to get at me. But Cassius and Mustang have strength enough to batter her away. She roars in frustration, the three slipping on blood. My friends, not long for this world, standing toe to toe with her. I make it to the edge of the holodeck, opposite the sovereign. 
and climbed towards Severo's body. You cannot run, Aja shouts. I will carve your eyes out. There's nowhere to run, you rusty coward. But I am not running. I fall to my knees beside Severo. The front of his chest is a chaos of laboratory blood and torn fabric from the entry wounds of Cassius's execution. I could open his shirt with my razor. Six holes stare up at me from the combat vest Scyther made for him. Bits of carved flesh looking so real. His face is quiet and peaceful. But peace isn't in his nature, and we haven't earned it yet. I pop open the syringe filled with Holiday's snake bite. Enough to wake the dead, even those faking eternal sleep from Nero's wicked cocktail of Hemanthus extract. I pull off his vest. Wakey, wakey, goblin, I say, as I lift high the syringe, praying the silent prayer that his heart doesn't fail, and plunge it straight into my best friend's chest. His eyes burst open. Fuck! Chapter 62 Omnis Vir Lupus Exploding upward out of the coma induced by the Hemanthus oil in the flask he was drinking from before we freed Cassius, he flails past me, gaining his feet, looking around with manic, wild eyes, hands vibrating, holding his heart, gasping in pain, as I did when Trigg and Holiday brought me from my prison. The last thing he saw was my face on the brig. Now to wake here, to be thrust into the battle, blood and bodies littering the floor— he stares at me with crazed, bloodshot eyes, pointing at my belly. You're bleeding! Darrow, you're bleeding! I know. Where's your hand? You're missing a fucking hand! I know. Bloody damn! His eyes dart around, seeing the jackal pinned and Octavia on the ground, Aja beating Cassius and Mustang back. It worked! It fucking worked! We've got to help the Gullbrow shithead. Get up! Get up! He hauls me to my feet and shoves my razor back into my hand, rushing into the hollow pit, howling the hideous battle cry we made as children among the frozen pines. I'm going to kill you, Aja! I'm going to kill you in your face! It's Barker! The jackal screams from the ground. Barker's alive! On the run, Severo scoops up a pulse fist from a dead Praetorian and tramples over the jackal's body, stomping on his face as he grabs the razor that pins the young arch-governor to the ground without stopping. He flies into Aja, firing with a pulse fist, insane with the drugs and the victory he can smell. The pulse blasts ripple over Aja's shield, spreading crimson around her silhouette, impairing her vision enough to finally let Cassius slip his razor through her guard— Still, she twists as it comes, so it only takes her in the shoulder. But then Severo is on her, stabbing her twice in the small of her back. She grunts in pain, backing away. I join the fray as Aja gains separation, stumbling back from us. But on the ground behind her, she leaves something few humans have seen, a thin ribbon of blood. It coats Severo's razor. He wipes it from the tip of the blade and smears it between his fingers. 
<laughs> well, look at that. You do bleed. Let's see how much more you got in there. He hunches like an animal, stalking toward her as Mustang, Cassius, and I pin her between us, making a square around the greatest living Olympic night, like a wolf pack come upon a great panther of the forest, shrinking before it as it charges, striking at its hindquarters, slashing at its flanks, bleeding it out. We're a prison of four. Severo swishes his razor through the air, howling rabidly. Shut up, Azure says, lashing out at him. But Severo dances back, and Cassius and I dart forward, stabbing at her. She parries Cassius's thrust at her neck and his two successive moves, but not in time to counter me. I feign a thrust at her abdomen and slash her shin instead, raking through the metal. Metal sparks and blood coats my blade. Mustang stabs her calf. I dart back as she wheels on me, making her overextend so Severo can strike again. He does, furiously slashing the Achilles tendon on her right leg. She grunts and stumbles before lashing at him. He dances back. You're gonna die, he says with an evil little hiss. You're gonna die. Shut up. That one's for Quinn he hisses as Cassius cuts through the tendons of her left knee. This one's for Ragnar. I impale her right thigh with an underhanded thrust. This one's for Mars. Mustang takes her arm off at the elbow. Aja looks down at the appendage on the ground, as if wondering if it belongs to her. But she's given no respite. Severo tosses aside his pulse fist, picks the Truth Knight's razor from the ground, and jumps in the air to bring both his swords down into her chest, hanging there, a foot off the ground. Their faces inches from one another, noses nearly touching, as Aja sinks to her knees, setting Severo back on his feet. Omnis vir lupus. He kisses her nose and jerks his razors out of her chest, letting them slither back into whips around his forearms. Arms outstretched, he backs away from the dying protean knight, greatest of her age, as she pulses her last blood onto the cold floor. Still on her knees, Asha's eyes drift hopelessly to the sovereign, the woman who became mother to her sisters, who raised her, loved her as truly as anyone who rules the solar system can love, and now dies along with her. I am sorry, my liege. Aja wheezes wet breaths. Never be, Octavia manages from her place on the ground. You burned bright, my fury. Time itself will remember you. Nah, probably not, Severo says pitilessly. Nighty night, Grimace. He lops off her head and kicks her in the chest. Her body teeters back and collapses to the floor, where he jumps atop it on all fours and howls. A deep moan escapes the sovereign's mouth at the hideous sight. 
she shuts her eyes, leaking tears as we make our way to her and Lysander. Cassius and I limping together, his arm around my shoulders to take pressure off the leg he drags behind him. Mustang follows us. Severo secures the jackal by sitting on his chest and juggling a razor over his head. Soaked in his grandmother's blood, Lysander grabs Octavia's razor from the ground and bars our way. I won't let you kill her. Lysander. Don't, Octavia says. It's too late. The boy's eyes are swollen with tears. The razor trembles in his hands. Cassius steps forward and extends a hand. Drop the weapon, Lysander. I don't want to kill you. Mustang and I exchange a glance. One Octavia notices and must make her soul shiver. Lysander knows he cannot fight us. His sense overcomes his grief, and he drops the razor, stepping back to watch us hollowly. Octavia's eyes are distant and dark, already halfway to that other world where even she does not reign. I thought there'd be spite in the end from her, or begging like Vixus or Antonia. But there's nothing weak in her, even now. It's sadness and love lost that come in the end. She did not create the hierarchy, but she was its keeper in her time. And for that, she must be held accountable. Why? Octavia asks Cassius, shaking from sorrow. Why? Because you lied, he says. Wordlessly, Cassius pulls the small hollow cube, a thumb-sized triangular prism, from his ammunition belt and sets it in her bloody hands. Images dance across its surface before floating into the air above the sovereign's hands. The scene of Cassius's family dying plays, bathing her in blue light. Shadows move through a wall, becoming men in scarab skin. They cut down his aunt in a hallway, and the men move through and appear a moment later, dragging children, which they kill with the razors and boots. More bodies are dragged and piled up, then lit on fire so there would be no survivors. More than forty children and non-scarred family members died that night. They thought they could heap the sin upon the shoulders of a fallen man. But it was the jackal's work. He finished the war between the Bologna and the Augustuses, and the sovereign's cooperation and silence was his price for my triumph. You ask me why? Cassius's voice is barely above a whisper. It is because you are without honor. I swore an oath as an Olympic knight to honor the compact, to bring justice to the society of man. You swore the same, Octavia. But you forgot what that meant. Everyone has. That is why this world is broken. 
Maybe the next one can be better. This world is the best we can afford, Octavia whispers. Do you really believe that? Mustang asks. With all my heart. Then I pity you, Mustang says. And so does Cassius. My heart was my brother, and I no longer believe in a world that says he was too weak to deserve life. He would have believed in this, in the hope for something new. Cassius looks over at me. For Julian, I can believe that too. Cassius hands me the two other holocubes from his pouch. The first is the murder of my friends at my triumph. The second is for the rim. When they see this recording, they will know I have struck a blow for them. Politics never rests. I set the two holocubes in the sovereign's hands to join the first. Rhea glows before her. A blue and white moon, gorgeous beside its brothers Iapetus and Titan, as they orbit giant Saturn. Then, over the moon's north pole, tiny slivers which you'd hardly notice flicker several innocent times, and mushrooms of fire bloom upon the surface of the blue and white planet. As the nuclear fire blazes in the sovereign's eyes, Mustang moves aside so I can crouch before the dying woman, speaking softly so she will know that justice, not vengeance, has found her in the end. My people have a legend of a being who stands astride the road leading to the world after. He will judge the wicked from the good. His name is the Reaper. I'm not him. I'm just a man. But soon you will meet him. Soon he will judge you for all the sins you hold. Sins? Octavia shakes her head, looking back to the three hollows dancing in her hands, these drops in her ocean of sins. These are sacrifices, what it takes to rule, she says, her hands closing around them. I own them as I own my triumphs. You will see, you will be the same. Conqueror? No, I will not. In the absence of a sun, there can be only darkness. She shudders, cold now. I fight off the urge to put something over her. She knows what's being left behind. When she dies, the succession struggle will begin. It'll tear gold apart. Someone, someone must rule. Or a thousand years from now, children will ask, who broke the worlds? Who put the light out? And their parents will say, it was you. But I already know this. I knew this when I asked Severo if he knew how this would end. I will not replace tyranny with chaos. There must be order, 
even if it is a compromise. But I don't tell her that. She swallows painfully, a struggle to even breathe. Listen to me. You must stop him. You must stop Atreus. Those are the last words of Octavia Aulun. And as they fade, the fire of Rhea cools in her eyes, and life leaves a cold pupil surrounded by gold, staring into infinite dark. I close her eyes for her, chilled by her passing, by her words, her fear. The sovereign of the society, who has ruled for sixty years, is dead. And I feel nothing but dread, because the jackal has begun to laugh. Chapter 63 Silence His laughter rattles through the room, his face pale under the glow of the hollow of the moon and the fleets pummeling one another in the darkness. Mustang has turned off the holodeck's broadcast and is already analyzing the Sovereign's data center as Cassius moves toward Lysander, and I rise above Octavia's body. My body burns from wounds. What does she mean, stop him? Cassius asks me. I don't know. Lysander? The boy's too traumatized by the horror around him to speak. Video went out to the ships and the planets, Mustang says. People are seeing Octavia's death. Communique boards are flooding. They don't know who is in control. We have to move now before they marshal behind someone. Cassius and I approach the jackal. What did you do? Severo's asking. He shakes the small man. What was she talking about? Get your dog off me the jackal says from under Severo's knees. I pull Severo back. He paces around the jackal, still vibrating with adrenaline. What did you do? I ask him. There's no point in talking with him, Mustang says. No point? Why do you think the sovereign let me in her presence? The jackal asks from the ground. He comes up to a knee holding his wounded hand to his chest. Why she did not fear the gun on my hip, unless there was a greater threat keeping her in line. He looks up at me from under disheveled hair, his eyes calm despite the butchering we've done. I remember the feeling of being under the ground, Darrow, he says slowly. The cold stone under my hands, my Pluto house members around me, hunched in the darkness, the steam on their breaths looking to me. I remember how afraid I was of failing, of how long I had prepared, how little my father thought of me. All my life, weighed in those few moments, all of it slipping away. We'd run from our castle, fleeing Vulcan, they came so fast. They were going to enslave us. The last of our house members was still running through the tunnel by the time I rigged the mines to blow. 
but so were Vulcan. I could hear my father's voice, hear him telling me how he was not surprised I failed so quickly. It was a week before we killed a girl and ate her legs to survive. She begged us not to, begged us to choose someone else. But I learned then, in that moment, if no one sacrifices, then no one survives. Cold fear wells in me, beginning in the deep hollow of my stomach and spreading upward. Mustang! They're here, she says, horrified. What's happening? What's here? Several hisses. Daryl, Cassius whispers. The nukes aren't on Mars, I say. They're on Luna. The jackal's smile stretches. Slowly he gains his feet, and not one of us dares touch him. It all falls into place. The tension between him and the Sovereign. The subtle threats. His boldness in coming here, into the Sovereign's place of power. His ability to mock Aja without consequence. Oh, shit! Shit, shit, shit! Severo pulls his mohawk. Shit! I never wanted to nuke Mars, the jackal says. I was born on Mars. It is my birthright, the prize from which all things flow. Her helium is the blood of the Empire. But this moon, this skeleton orb is, like Octavia, a treacherous old crone sucking at the marrow of the society, crowing about what was instead of what can be, and Octavia let me ransom it. Just as you will, because you are weak, and you did not learn what you should have at the Institute. To win, you must sacrifice. Mustang, can you find the bombs? I ask. Mustang! She's been struck dumb. No. He would have masked the radiation signatures. Even if we could, we couldn't deactivate them. She reaches for the comm to call our fleet. If you make the call, then I detonate a bomb every minute, the jackal says, tapping his ear where a little comm has been implanted. Lilith must be listening. She must have the trigger. That's what he meant. She's his insurance. Would I really tell you my plan if you could do anything about it? He straightens his hair and wipes blood from his armor. The bombs were installed weeks ago. The syndicate smuggled the devices across the moon for me. Enough to create nuclear winter. A second rayer, if you will. When they were in place... I told Octavia what I had done, and I told her my terms. She would carry on as sovereign until the rising was put down, which has taken a surprising twist, obviously. And afterward, on the day of victory, she would convene the Senate, abdicate the morning throne, and name me her successor. In return, I would not destroy Luna.
That's why Octavia has the Senate rounded up, Mustang says in disgust. So you could be sovereign? Yes. I stand back from him, feeling the weight of the fight on my shoulders, the weakness in my body from the strain, the loss of blood. Now this. This evil. This selfishness. It's overwhelming. You're bloody damn mad, Severo says. He's not, Mustang says. I could forgive him if he were mad. Adris, there are three billion people on this moon. You don't want to be that man. They don't care for me. So why should I care for them? He asks. This is all a game, and I have won. Where are the bombs? Mustang asks, taking a threatening step toward him. Uh-uh, he says, scolding her. Touch a hair on my head, Lilith detonates a bomb. Mustang's beside herself. These are people, she says. You have the power to give three billion people their lives, Adrius. That is power beyond anything anyone should ever want. You have the chance to be better than father, better than Octavia. You condescending little bitch, he says with a small laugh of disbelief. You really think you can still manipulate me? This one is on you. Lilith, detonate the bomb on the southern Mare Serenitatis. We all look to the hologram of the moon above our heads, hoping beyond hope that somehow he's bluffing, that somehow the transmission won't go through. But a little red dot glows on the cool hologram, blossoming outward, a small, almost insignificant little animation that envelops ten kilometers of city. Mustang rushes to the computer. It's a nuclear event, she whispers. There's more than five million people in that district. Well, the jackal says. You freak! Severo shrieks, rushing the jackal. Cassius gets in his path, knocking him back. Get out of my way! Severo, come down. Careful, goblin. There's hundreds more, the jackal says. Severo's overwhelmed clutching his chest where his heart must be wrenching from the drugs. Dara, what do we do? You obey, the jackal says. I force myself to ask, what do you want? What do I want? He wraps a bit of cloth around his bleeding arm, using his teeth. I want you to be what you always wanted, Darrow. I want you to be like your wife, a martyr. Kill yourself. Here, in front of my sister. In return, three billion souls live. Isn't that what you've always wanted? To be a hero. You die, and I will be crowned sovereign. There will be peace. No, Mustang says. Lilith? Detonate another bomb. Mare anguish this time. Another red blossom erupts on the display. Nuclear fire ends the lives of millions. Stop, 
Mustang says, Please, Adrius. You just killed six million people, Cassia says, not comprehending. They'll think it's us, Severus sneers. The jackal agrees. Each bomb looks like part of an invasion. This is your legacy, Darrow. Think of the children burning now. Think of their mothers screaming. How many you can save by simply pulling a trigger. My friends look at me. But I'm in a distant place, listening to the moan of the wind through the tunnels of Lycos, smelling the dew on the gears in the early morning, knowing Eo will be waiting for me when I come home, like she waits for me now, at the end of the cobbled road, as Nerol does, as Pax and Ragnar and Quinn and, I hope, Roke, Lorne, Tactus, and the rest of them do. It would not be the end to die. It would be the beginning of something new. I have to believe that. But my death would leave the jackal here in this world. It would leave him with power over those I love, over all I fought for. I always thought I would die before the end. I trudged on, knowing I was doomed. But my friends have breathed love into me, breathed my faith back into my bones. They've made me want to live. They've made me want to build. Mustang looks at me, her eyes glassy. And I know she wants me to choose life, but she will not choose for me. Darrell, what is your answer? No. I punch him in the throat. He croaks, unable to breathe. I knock him down and jump atop him, pinning his arms to the ground with my knees so his head is between my legs. I jam my hand into his mouth. His eyes go wild, legs kicking, his teeth cut my knuckles, drawing blood. The last time I pinned him down, I took the wrong weapon. What are hands to a creature like him? All his evil, all his lies are spun with the tongue. So I grab it with my hell-diver hand, pinning it between forefinger and thumb like the fleshy little baby pit-viper it is. This is always how the story would end, Adrius. I say down to him, not with your screams, not with your rage, but with your silence. And with a great pull, I rip out the tongue of the jackal. He screams beneath me, blood bubbling from the mutilated stump at the back of his throat, splashing over his lips. He thrashes. I shove off him and stand in dark rage, holding the bloody instrument of my enemy, as he wails on the ground, feeling the hatred rolling through me and seeing the stunned eyes of my friends. I leave the calm in his ear so Lilith can hear him wailing, and I stalk to the hollow controls and hail Victra's ship. Her face appears, eyes widening at the sight of my face. Darrow! You're alive! She manages. Severo! The nukes! You need to destroy the line of Mars, I say. Lilith is detonating the bombs on the surface. There's hundreds more hidden in the cities. Kill that ship! It's at the center of their formation, she protests. We'll destroy our fleet trying to get to it. It will take hours if we even manage. Can we jam their signal? Mustang asks. 
No. EMPs, Severa asks, coming up behind me. Victor's face brightens at the sight of him before she shakes her head. They have shielding, she says. Use the EMPs on the bombs to short-circuit their radio transmitters, I say. Fire an iron rain and drop EMPs on the city till they're out. And plunge three billion people into the Middle Ages? Cassius asks. We'll be slaughtered, Victor says. We can't drop a rain, we'll lose our army, and gold will just keep the moon. Another bomb detonates, this one nearer the southern pole, and then a fourth at the equator. We know the consequences to each one. Lilith doesn't know exactly what's happened to Adrius, Cassius says quickly. How loyal is she? Will she detonate all of them? Not when he's still whimpering, I say. Least that's my hope. Excuse me, a small voice says. We turn to see Lysander standing before us. We forgot about him and the mayhem. His eyes are shot red from tears. Severo raises a pulse fist to shoot him. Cassius knocks it aside. Call my godfather, Lysander says bravely. Call the Ash Lord. He will see reason. Oh, like hell, Severo says. We just killed the sovereign and his daughter, I say. The Ash Lord destroyed Rhea, Lysander interrupts. Yes, and it haunts him. Call him, and he will help you. My grandmother would have wanted him to. Luna is our home. He's right, Mustang says, pushing me from the console. Darrow, move. She's in that locked zone of concentration, unable to relate her own thoughts as she starts opening direct comm channels to the gold preters in the fleet. The towering men and women appear around us like silvery ghosts, standing among the corpses they watched us make. Last to appear is the Ash Lord, his face stricken with rage, his daughter and master, both dead by our hands. Valona! Augustus, he growls, seeing Lysander among us. Is it not enough? Godfather, we have no time for recrimination, Lysander says. Lysander? Please listen to them. Our world depends on it. Mustang steps forward and raises her voice. Pletus of the fleet, Ashlord, the sovereign is dead. The nuclear blasts you see destroying your home are not red weapons. They come from your own arsenal, which was stolen by my brother. His preter, Lilith, is overseeing the detonation of more than 400 nuclear warheads from the bridge of the Lion of Mars. They will continue until Lilith is dead. My fellow Oriot, embrace change or embrace oblivion. The choice is yours. You are a traitor, one of the preters hisses. Lysander walks off the holopad to the table where he sat earlier. He picks up his grandmother's scepter and returns as the Pleaters are issuing threats to Mustang. She is no traitor, Lysander says, handing her the scepter, the blood of his grandmother staining his hands. She is our conqueror. Chapter 64 Hail, 
The Lion of Mars dies an ignoble death, fired upon from all sides by loyalist and rebel alike. Watching Luna crackle with nuclear explosions did more to kill the bloodlust between the two navies than any peace or truce ever did. Few men truly like seeing beauty burn, but burn it does. Before the lion is put to rest, more than twelve bombs detonate, carving new cities of fire and ash among those of steel and concrete. The moon is in turmoil, as is the gold armada. With news of the sovereign's death and the detonation of the bombs, the society shudders beneath our feet. Wealthy praetors are taking their personal ships and fracturing away, heading home to Venus, Mercury, or Mars. They do not stand together because they do not know where to stand. For sixty years, Octavia has ruled. For most living, she is the only sovereign they have ever known. Our civilization teeters on the brink. Electrical grids are down across the moon. Riots and panic spread as we prepare to leave the sovereign sanctum. There is an escape ship, but there is no escaping what we've done. We've carved the heart out of the society. If we leave, what takes its place? We knew we could never win Luna by force of arms, but that was never the goal. Just as it was not Ragnar's desire to fight until all golds perished, he knew Mustang was the key. She always has been. That's why he risked our lives to let Kavax go. Now Mustang stands beneath the hollow of the wounded moon, hearing the silent screams of the city as keenly as I. I step close to her. Are you ready? I ask. What? She shakes her head. How could he do this? I don't know, I say. But we can fix it. How? This moon will be pandemonium, she says. Tens of millions dead. The devastation. And we can rebuild it. Together. The words flutter with hope, as if she's only just remembered where we are, what we've done, that we're together, alive. She blinks quickly and smiles at me. Then she looks at my arm, where my right hand used to be, and touches my stomach where Aja stabbed me. How are you still standing? Because we're not yet done. Battered and bloody, we join Cassius, Lysander, and Severo before the door leading out of the Sovereign's inner sanctum as Cassius types in the Olympic code to open the doors. He pauses to sniff the air. What's that smell? Smells like a sewer, I say. Severo stares intensely at the razors he's taken from Aja, including the one belonging to Lorne. I think... It smells like victory. Did you shit your pants? Cassius squints at him. You did? Several, Mustang says. 
It's an involuntary muscle reaction when you're fake executed and swallow massive amounts of hemanthus oil. Severo snaps. You think I would do that on purpose? Cassius and I look at each other. I shrug. Well, maybe. Yeah, actually. He flips us the crux and makes a face, twisting his lips till it looks like he's going to explode. What's happening? I ask. Are you... still... No. He throws his water bottle at me. You stuck a needle full of adrenaline into my chest, asshole. I'm having a heart attack. He swats our hands as we try to help him. I'm good. I'm good. He wheezes for a moment before straightening with a grimace. Are you sure you're prime? Mustang asks. Left arm's numb. Probably need a yellow. We snort laughs. We look like walking corpses. Only thing keeping me up are the stim packs we found on the Praetorians. Cassius hobbles like an old man, but he's kept Lysander close to him, vetoing Severo's offers to end the loon bloodline here and now by drawing his razor. The boy is under my protection, Cassius sneered. And now he walks with us as a sign of our legitimacy. I love you all. I say, as the door begins to groan open. I adjust the unconscious jackal, who I carry on my shoulder, as a prize. No matter what happens. Even Cassius? Several asks. Especially me. Today, Cassius says. Stay close, Mustang says to us, clutching the scepter tight. The first great door parts. Mustang squeezes my hand. Severo vibrates with fear. Then the second rumbles and dilates open to reveal a hall filled with Praetorians, their weapons drawn and pointed into the mouth of the bunker. Mustang steps forward bearing two symbols of power, one in each hand. Praetorians, you serve the Sovereign. The Sovereign is dead. A new star rises. She continues walking toward them, refusing to break her step when she nears their line of bristling metal. I think a young gold with furious eyes might pull the trigger, but his old captain puts a hand on the man's weapon, lowering it. And they break for her, parting and lowering their weapons one by one. They back away to let her pass their helmets slithering back into their armor. I've never seen a woman so glorious and powerful as she is now. She is the calm eye of the storm, and we follow in her wake, riding the dragon moor lift up in silence. More than four dozen of the Praetorians have come with us. We find the citadel in chaos. Servants ransacking rooms, guards leaving their posts in two and threes, worried for their families or their friends. The obsidians we said were coming are still in orbit. Sefi is with the ships. We only created the ruse to draw men from the room, but it seems word has spread. The sovereign is dead. The obsidians are coming.
amidst the chaos, there is only one leader. And as we move through the citadel's black marbled halls, past towering gold statues and departments of state, soldiers gather behind us, their boots stampeding over the marble halls to flock to Mustang, the one symbol of purpose and power left in the building. She lifts both her symbols of power high in the air, and those who first raise weapons against us see them and me and Cassius and the swelling mass of soldiers behind us and realize they're fighting the tide. They join us, or they run. Some take shots at us, or rush forward in small bands to halt our progress, but they're cut down before they get within ten meters of Mustang. By the time we come before the great ivory-white doors to the Senate chambers, behind which senators have been sequestered inside by Praetorians, an army of hundreds is at our backs, and only a thin line of Praetorians bars our way to the Senate chamber. Twenty in number. An elegant gold knight steps forward, leader of the men guarding the chamber. He eyes the hundreds behind us, seeing the purple adherents Mustang has gathered, the obsidians, the greys, me. And he makes a decision. He salutes Mustang sharply. My brother has thirty men in the citadel, Mustang says. The bone riders. Find them and arrest them, Captain. If they resist, kill them. Yes, Lady Augustus. He snaps his fingers and departs with a fist of soldiers. The two obsidians guarding the doors push them open for us, and Mustang strides into the Senate chamber. The room is vast, a tiered funnel of white marble. At the bottom center is a podium from which the sovereign presides over the ten levels of the chamber. We enter on the north side, causing a disruption. Hundreds of beady political eyes turn their entitled focus toward us. They will have watched the broadcast, seen Octavia die, seen the bombs wrecking their moon. And somewhere in the room, Roke's mother will stand up from her seat on her marble bench and crane her neck to watch our bloody band stomping down the white marble stairs to the bottom center of the great chamber, passing senators to our right and left, bringing silence with us, instead of shouts or protests. Lysander trails behind Cassius. You can hear the rasping, panicked breath of the Senate Majority Speaker as his pink attendants help his withered form down from the podium where he was presiding over something of great importance. They were holding an election. Here, now, in the middle of chaos. And now they look like children who've been caught with their hands in the biscuit jar. Of course they would never suspect that the Praetorians guarding them would support rebels or that we could walk from the Sovereign's bunker unimpeded. But they've created a society of fear, where men and women must attach themselves to a rising star to survive. That's all this is, that simple human directive that allows for this coup to work. The old power is dead. See how they flock to the new.
Mustang takes the podium with the rest of us flanking her. I toss the jackal to the ground so the Senate can see what has become of him. He's unconscious and pale from blood loss. Mustang looks at me. This is a moment she never wanted. But she accepts it as her burden, just as I've accepted mine as Reaper. I see how it troubles her. How she will need me as I've needed her. But I could never stand where she stands, or hold what she holds. Not without destroying everyone in this room. They would never accept it. If I am the bridge to the low colors, then she is the bridge to the high. Only together can we bind these people. Only together can we bring peace. Senators of the society, Mustang proclaims. I stand before you, Virginia Au Augustus, daughter of Nero Au Augustus of the Lion House of Mars. You may know me. Sixty years ago, Octavia Aulun stood before you with the head of a tyrant, her father, and laid her claim on the post of sovereign to this society. Her keen eyes scour the room. I stand before you now with the head of a tyrant. She lifts her left hand to show the head of Octavia, one of the two objects which granted us passage here. Gold respects only one thing, and to change they must be tamed by that one thing. The old age has brought nuclear holocaust to the heart of the society. Millions burned for Octavia's greed. Millions burn now for my brothers. We must save ourselves from ourselves before the inheritance of humanity is ash. Today, I declare the beginning of a new age. She looks at me. With new allies, new ways. I have the rising at my back, a navy made of great golden houses which holds the obsidian horde in orbit. You have a choice before you. She tosses the head on the stone podium and raises her other hand. In it is the dawn scepter, bestowing upon the bearer the right to rule society. Bend or break. A silence fills the chamber. So vast I feel it might swallow us all into itself and begin the war anew. No gold will be the first to bend. I could make them, but better I bend for them. I fall to my knee before Mustang. Looking up into her eyes, I put my stump over my heart and feel myself swept away by the impossible joy of the moment. Hail, sovereign, I say. Then Cassius falls to his knees, and several. Then Lysander Aulun and the Praetorians, and then, one by one, the senators fall to their knees till all but fifty kneel and break the silence together, shouting with a single riotous voice, Hail, sovereign! Hail, sovereign! A week after Mustang's ascension, 
I stand beside her to watch her brother hang. But for Valiai Rath and some ten men, the jackal's bone riders have been found and executed. Now their leader walks past me through the crowded lunar square. His hair is feathery and combed. His prisoner jumpsuit, lime green. The low colors around us watch in silence. A light dusting of snow falls from a thin skin of gray clouds. I'm nauseous from my radiation medication. But I came for her as she came for me to watch Roke buried. She's quiet and serene beside me, face pale as the marble beneath our feet. The Telemannuses stand beside her, watching impassively as the jackal climbs the stairs of the metal scaffold to where the white hangwoman waits. The woman reads the sentence. Jeers are shouted from the crowd. A bottle shatters at the jackal's feet. A stone splits his forehead. But he does not blink or buckle. He stands proud and vain as they loop the noose around his neck. I wish this would bring Pax back to us that Quinn and Roke and Eo could live again. But this man has carved his mark in the world. The Jackal of Mars will never be forgotten. The white moves for the lever, snow gathering on Adrius's hair. Mustang swallows, and the trapdoor opens. On Mars there's not much gravity so you have to pull the feet to break the neck. They let the loved ones do it. On Luna, there's even less. But no one comes forward from the crowd as the white extends the invitation. Not a soul lifts a finger as the jackal's legs kick and his face purples. There's a stillness in me watching the sight, as if I'm a million kilometers away. I cannot feel for him. Not now. Not after all he's done. But I know Mustang does. I know this tears her apart. So I lightly squeeze her hand and guide her forward. She moves across the snow in a daze to grip her twin brother's feet, looking up at him as if this were a dream. She whispers something and, lowering her head, she pulls down, showing him he was loved, even at the end. Chapter 65 The Veil In the weeks following the bombing of Luna and the ascension of Mustang, the world has changed. Millions lost their lives, but for the first time there is hope. In the aftermath of her speech to the Senate, dozens of gold ships defected, joining the forces of Orion and Victra. The Ash Lord did his best to rally his navy, but with Luna burning, his fleet fracturing, and Mustang as sovereign, it was all he could do to keep his own ships from falling into enemy hands. He retreated to Mercury with the core of his forces. In his absence, Mustang has secured the cooperation of much of the military, 
particularly the Grey Legions and Obsidian Slave Knights. She has used this political muscle to take the first steps to dismantling the color hierarchy and the gold grip on military power. The Senate has been disbanded. The Board of Quality Control has been dissolved. Thousands face charges of crimes against humanity. Justice will not be so quick as it was with the Jackal, or so clean, but we will do the best we can. I thought I might be able to rest after Octavia was dead, but we are not without enemies. Romulus and the Moon Lords remain on the rim. The Ash Lord aims to rally Mercury and Venus. Gold Warlords have begun carving out claims, and Luna itself is a disaster. Overrun by riots and shortages of food and spreading radiation. She will survive, but I doubt she will ever look the same, no matter how much Quicksilver promises to rebuild the city to even greater heights. My own body is in recovery. Mickey and Virini reattached my hand, which I retrieved from the Jackal's shuttle that set down on Luna. It will be months before I can write again much less use a blade, though I hope I have less cause for that in the coming days. In my youth, I thought I would destroy the society, dismantle its customs, shatter the chains, and something new and beautiful would simply grow from the ashes. That's not how the world works. This compromised victory is the best mankind could hope for, Change will come slower than Dancer or the Sun's want, but it will come without the price of anarchy. So we hope. Under the supervision of Holiday, Sethi has set off to Mars to begin the slow process of freeing the rest of her people, visiting the Poles with medicine instead of weapons. I remember how dark her eyes seemed when she looked at one of the Jackal's nuclear craters in person. For now, she's embraced the legacy of her brother and plans to settle on warmer land set aside for her people on Mars. Though she wishes to keep her people from the alien cities, I think she knows deep down that she will not be able to control them. The Obsidians will leave their prisons. They will grow curious, spread, and assimilate. Their world will never be the same nor will that of my people. Soon I will return to Mars to help Dancer lead the migration of Reds to the surface. Many will stay and continue the lives they know, but for others there will be a chance for life under the sky. I said farewell to Cassius the day before last as he departed Luna. Mustang wanted him to stay and help us shape a new, fairer system of justice, but he's had enough of politics. You don't have to go, I told him, as I stood with him on the landing pad. There's nothing for me here but memories, he said. I've been living my life too long for others. I want to see what else is out there. You can't fault me that. And the boy... I asked, nodding to Lysander, who moved into the ship carrying a satchel of belongings. Severo thinks it's a mistake to let him live. What were his words? 
It's like leaving a pit viper egg under your seat. Sooner or later, it's gonna hatch. And what do you think? I think it's a different world, so we should act like it. He's got Lorne's blood in his veins as much as he's got Octavia's. Not that blood makes a difference anymore. My tall friend smiled fondly at me. He reminds me of Julian. He's a good soul, despite everything. I'll raise him right, away from all this. He extended a hand, not to shake mine, but to give me the ring he took from my finger the night Lorne and Fitchner died. I closed his hand back around it. That belongs to Julian, I said. He nodded softly. Thank you, brother. And there, on a citadel landing platform in what was once the heart of gold power, Cassius, Albalona, and I shake hands and say farewell, almost six years to the day since we first met. Weeks later, I watch the waves lap at the shore as a gull careens overhead. White caps mark the dark water that lashes the northern beaches' sea stacks. Mustang and I set our little two-person flyer down on the east-northeast coast of the Pacific Rim, at the edge of a rainforest on a great peninsula. Moss grows on the rocks, on the trees. The air is crisp, just cold enough to see your breath. It is my first time on Earth, but I feel like my spirit has come home. Eo would have loved it here, wouldn't she? Mustang asks me. She wears a black coat with the collar pulled up around her neck. Her new Praetorian bodyguards sit in the rocks a half kilometer off. Yes, I say. She would have. A place like this is the beating heart of our songs. Not a warm beach or a tropical paradise. This wild land is full of mystery. It holds its secrets covetously behind arms of fog and veils of pine needles. Its pleasures, like its secrets, must be earned. It reminds me of my dreams of the veil. The smoke from the fire we made of driftwood rises diagonally across the horizon. Do you think it will last? Mustang asks me watching the water from our place in the sand. The peace. It would be the first time, I say. She grimaces and leans into me, closing her eyes. At least we have this. I smile, reminded of Cassius as an eagle skims low over the water before rising up through the mist and disappearing in the trees that jut from the top of a sea stack. Have I passed your test? My test? she asks. Ever since you blocked my ship from leaving Phobos, you've been testing me. I thought I passed on the ice, but it didn't stop there. You noticed? she says with a mischievous little grin. It fades and she brushes hair from her eyes. I'm sorry that I couldn't just follow you. I needed to see if you could build. 
I needed to see if my people could live in your world. No, I understand that, I say. But there's more to it. Something changed when you saw my mother, my brother. Something opened up in you. She nods, eyes still on the water. There's something I have to tell you. I look over at her. You lied to me for nearly six years. Since the moment we met. In the Lycos tunnel, you broke what we had. That trust. That feeling of closeness we built. Piecing that together takes time. I needed to see if we could find what we'd lost. I needed to see if I could trust you. You know you can. I do now, she says. But... I frown. Mustang, you're shaking. Just let me finish. I didn't want to lie to you. But I didn't know how you would react, what you would do. I needed you to make the choice to be more than a killer, not just for me, but for someone else, too. She looks past me to the blue sky, where a ship coasts lazily down. I hold my hand up against the autumn sun to watch it approach. Are we expecting company? I ask warily. Of a sort? She stands. I join her. And she goes to her tiptoes to kiss me. It is a gentle, long kiss that makes me forget the sand under our boots, the smell of pine and salt in the breeze. Her nose is cold against mine, her cheeks ruddy. All the sadness, all the hurt in the past, making this moment all the sweeter. If pain is the weight of being, love is the purpose. I want you to know that I love you more than anything. She backs away from me, pulling me along. Almost. The ship skims over the evergreen forest and sets down on the beach. Its wings fold backward like a settling pigeon, sand and salt spray kicked up by its engines. Mustang's fingers twine through mine as we trudge through the sand. The ramp unfurls. Sophocles sprints out onto the beach, running toward a group of seagulls. Behind him comes the voice of Kavax and the sweet sound of a child laughing. My feet falter. I look over at Mustang in confusion. She pulls me on a nervous smile on her face. Kavax exits the ship with Dancer. Victra and Severo come with, waving over to me before looking expectantly back up the ramp. I used to think the life strands of my friends frayed around me because mine was too strong. Now I realize that when we are wound together, we make something unbreakable something that lasts long after this life ends. My friends have filled the hollow carved in me by my wife's death. They've made me whole again. 
My mother joins them now on the ramp, walking with Kiran to set foot on earth for the first time. She smiles like I did when she smells the salt. The wind kicks her gray hair. Her eyes are glassy and full of the joy my father always wanted for her. And in her arms, she carries a laughing child with golden hair. Mustang, I ask, my voice trembling. Who is that? Darrow, Mustang smiles over at me. That is our son. His name is Pax. Epilogue Pax was born nine months after the lion's reign, as I lay in the jackal's stone table. Fearing that our enemies would seek the boy out if they knew his existence, Mustang kept her pregnancy a secret on the Deja Thoris until she was able to give birth. Then, leaving the child to be guarded by Kavik's wife in the asteroid belt, she returned to war. That peace she intended to make with the Sovereign was not just for her and her people, but for her son. She wanted a world without war for him. I can't hate her for that, for keeping this secret from me. She was afraid. Not just that she could not trust me, but that I was not prepared to be the father my son deserves. That was her test, all this time. She almost told me in Tinos, but after conferring with my mother, she decided against it. Mother knew if I realized I had a son... I would not be able to do what needed to be done. My people needed a sword, not a father. But now, for the first time in my life, I can be both. This war is not over. The sacrifices we made to take Luna will haunt our new world. I know that. But I am no longer alone in the dark. When I first stepped through the gates of the Institute, I wore the weight of the world on my shoulders. It crushed me, broke me, but my friends have pieced me together. Now they each carry a part of Eo's dream. Together we can make a world fit for my son, for the generations to come. I can be a builder, not just a destroyer. Eo and Fitchner saw that when I could not. They believed in me. So whether they wait for me in the veil or not, I feel them in my heart. I hear their echo beating across the world. I see them in my son, and when he is old enough, I will take him on my knee and his mother, and I will tell him of the rage of Ares, the strength of Ragnar, the honor of Cassius, the love of Severo, the loyalty of Victra, and the dream of Eo, the girl who inspired me to live for more. The End We hope you have enjoyed this production of Morning Star by Pierce Brown, narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more, so look for us at your public library or on download sites online. And thank you for being a recorded books reader.
Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.